This is Audible. Hachette Audio presents Living with a Seal 31 Days Training with the Toughest Man on the Planet. Written and read by Jesse Itzler. This book is dedicated to my mom and dad who've been at every game, every event, and every big moment in my life. Also to my wife, who continues to teach me about unwavering support and love. Plus, she has the patience to put up with me. Disclaimer. The events of this book have been recreated from memory, and in some cases have been compressed to convey the substance of what occurred or was said. I tried to keep the time sequence of my experiences in order, but it's possible that events occurred either earlier or later in reality than they do in this story. Although every workout written is true and happened, it's important to note I'm not recommending you do or try any of the workouts in this book. First off, I don't want anyone to get hurt. Second, who wants to get sued? Like any activity involving speed, equipment, endurance, and environmental factors, the workouts described in Living with a Seal pose some very serious risks. All readers should take full responsibility for their safety and know their limits. As a trainer, Seal knew his stuff, and he factored into every single one of his workouts my level of experience, aptitude, training, and how much I could handle. I kept a detailed diary during my time living with Seal, which instantly became a blob. It was primarily for friends and family, but as the insanity of my workouts grew, so did my audience. The result is this book. You will notice as this book goes on that the person with whom I trained is referred to only as Seal. He asked that I not disclose his name, and he didn't say please. Introduction People ask me why I hired SEAL. One answer is this. When it comes to physical fitness, I tend to be a creature of habit. I guess compared to most people my age, I was in excellent shape and in a great place in my personal life. At the time, I was married, still am, to a fantastic woman, and we had our first beautiful 18-month-old son, two more since. I began running in 1992, just after I graduated from college. I've missed maybe a handful of days since. I've run 18 New York City marathons in a row, and it's been the same drill every year. Training schedule, the same. Running route, the same. The store I buy bananas from the day before the race, the same. The Patsy's Pizza I order the night before each race, the same. I like routine. And routine can be good, especially when it comes to working out. But routine can also be a rut. Most of us live our lives on autopilot. We do the same thing every day. Wake up, go to work, come home, have dinner, repeat. I found myself drifting in that direction. It was as if my cruise control settings had been set and I wasn't improving. I wanted to get off it. I wanted to shake things up in a big way. My Central Park West life and SEAL's nomadic, take-no-prisoners life merging, or should I say colliding, for a period of time, was what I needed. It was unexpected. It was unique. It was insane. Okay, I admit it. But research shows that stepping out of our routine in life is great for the body and spirit. The brain, too. Mix it up. Do the outrageous. Think out of the box. Life is short. Why not? As Seal says, this ain't a dress rehearsal, bitch. While this is a story about our month together... It's just as much a story about two people that had to step outside of their comfort zones, Seal 
and me. He was as uncomfortable with doormen, chefs, and drivers as I was with sleeping in a chair and intentionally waking up in the middle of the night to run in the worst possible conditions. His no-rhyme-or-reason approach to our workout schedule actually brought a lot of clarity into my life. Seal had something I wanted, but I just wasn't sure what it was, and I wanted to find out. Do you remember Mr. Miyagi from The Karate Kid? He had a very unorthodox approach to training. Daniel LaRusso, played by Ralph Macchio, wants to learn martial arts, but Mr. Miyagi starts him off with menial chores to help him. And Daniel unknowingly develops the defensive blocks through muscle memory, but what he eventually learns is a lot more than martial arts. That's kind of what I was looking for when I asked Seal to move in and train me. I wanted to train my body, but also my mind and spirit. The difference was I wasn't training for a protection or a trophy, and I had already gotten the girl. I just wanted to get better. I've always had an unorthodox approach to business and life in general. It served me well. I don't believe in resumes in the traditional sense. I believe in life resumes. Do more. Create memories. Only when looking back on my successes and failures am I able to connect the dots. I could have never predicted or planned to go from being a rapper on MTV in the 1990s to eventually owning and operating my own private jet company. My normal has always been abnormal. I don't know if I was thinking about my mortality or fretting over how many more peak years I had left or anything like that. I just felt that now was as good a time as any to shake things up. You know, break up that same routine. I believe the best ideas are the ones you don't spend too much time thinking through. My time with SEAL was no different, and I got a lot more than I bargained for. Most of my successes in life have come from learning how to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Like I said, I just want to get better. Every day, do something that makes you uncomfortable. Seal. Prologue. Seal moved into my house to train me in December 2010. That winter went on to be one of the snowiest on record. Airports closed. Trains were delayed. A nor'easter dropped more than 20 inches of snow on New York City in one day. The winds were so strong they pushed the falling snow into drifts that measured up to four feet. City bus drivers abandoned their vehicles in the middle of the streets. So did regular drivers. Plows couldn't remove the snow for days. I was sure my mission with SEAL would be compromised. But that was before I knew him. Day one, the arrival. I'm trained to disappear. Seal. New York City, 14 degrees, 0638. I pour oatmeal into a bowl, fill the pot with water, light the stove, and set the timer. I click play on the remote and position Laser, my 18-month-old son, so he can see his baby Einstein video. I peek into the guest room to make sure the bed is made. My son is giggling, which comforts me. I check on my wife, Sarah, who's still sleeping, and then recheck the guest room to make sure it's ship-shape, or whatever the heck they say in the Navy. I hear the timer go off. I cut up some bananas and pour honey on them. I look at the clock on the microwave, 6.38 a.m. ETA, 22 minutes. I'm filled with nervous energy. I sit with my son, feed him breakfast, and watch the rest of Baby Einstein. The bananas are still in my bowl. I'm not hungry. I go into the bathroom and look at myself in the mirror. I push my hair back with my hands. I grin at my reflection to check my teeth. 
They're clean. I go back into the living room. I do as many push-ups as I can. 22. I look at the clock. 6.44 a.m. What if he has trouble getting a cab? Does a guy like this even take a cab? Maybe he's going to run to my house. The plane might be delayed. He could have changed his mind. Maybe I should call. What am I talking about? The guy's probably parachuted into foreign countries. He has to know how to get to my house on time, right? But he never asked for my address, never inquired what to bring. He wouldn't give me his flight information and didn't request a car service. Nothing. In fact, the only thing the man said was, I arrive at 0700. That's military time for 7 a.m. I first saw Seal at a 24-hour relay race in San Diego. After several marathons, this was my first ultra. I was on a team of six ultra marathoners who would each take turns running 20-minute legs. The objective? Run more miles than every other team in 24 hours. There were teams registered from all over the country. You know, friends coming together to test themselves physically and mentally. Seal, however, didn't have a team. He didn't have friends. He was running the entire race himself. The event was low budget, really low budget. The entire course was set around a one-mile loop in an unlit parking lot near the San Diego Zoo. It was unsupported, meaning you bring your own supplies. Whatever you needed, you were responsible for. My team and I flew in the night before to get ready. When we got there, we walked the course and mapped out our strategy. Before we went to sleep, we laid out our race gear and supplies so we were ready to go when we woke up. Water, Gatorade, bananas, power bars, band-aids. We were ready. Before the race, we stretched in a small circle on the grass. I was nervous and excited, but I couldn't help notice the guy 10 feet away. To say he stood out would be an understatement. For starters, he was the only African-American in the race. Secondly, he weighed over 260 pounds, whereas most of the other runners weighed between 140 and 165 pounds. Third, whereas everyone else was talkative and friendly, this guy seemed pissed. I mean, he looked very angry. He just sat there all by himself in a folding chair with his arms crossed waiting for the race to start. No stretching, no prep, no fancy shoes, and no teammates. No smiling. He just sat quietly with a don't-fuck-with-me expression on his face. His supplies for the 24-hour race? One box of crackers and water. That's it. He laid them out next to his chair. The guy was a cross between a gladiator and the G.I. Joe action hero my son has, but life-sized. He looked indestructible, battle-tested, dangerous, alone, determined. Even the way he spit was scary. If he hit you with it, it likely would leave a scar. He was intimidating. Physically, the man looked like someone sprayed muscle paint all over his body. Ripped. Flawless. Once the race started, in between our individual legs of running, we stretched and stayed hydrated to avoid injury and applied plenty of Vaseline. As a friend of mine likes to say, brother, ultras are chafy. But as the race continued and I cheered on my teammates, I couldn't help but keep tabs on the guy who was running alone. Who was this guy? There was magnetism to his fury. Underneath his scowl, I sensed something I couldn't quite put my finger on. Maybe it was a sense of honor or integrity or purpose. Yeah, that's it. He ran with a sense of purpose that I couldn't quite comprehend. 
He ran as though lives depended on it, like he was running into a burning house to save someone, a kitten, or an old woman. With each stride he took, it seemed like he was creating many earthquakes beneath his feet. But at all times, his form was perfect. His eyes locked in a stare, a focus that was diamond-tipped precise. He just ran, checked his splits on his watch, and ran for 100 miles straight. When the 24-hour race was over, I was cooked. My thighs were so tight, I could barely walk a yard. As my teammates and I slowly gathered our sneakers, lawn chairs, and personal belongings, I noticed him again, this massive 200-plus-pound block of carbon steel, being helped to the parking lot by a woman, whom I would later find out was his wife, looking like he just survived the plane crash. I concluded two things. One, I'd never seen anyone like this. And two, I had to meet him. Back home, after some investigating and some Googling, I was able to ascertain a few pertinent things about him, including the fact that he was a Navy SEAL, a highly decorated Navy SEAL at that. Then I tracked down a contact number and I called him cold. He was on the West Coast. This is a habit I have. When I see or read about someone interesting, I call them up and basically ask them to be my friend. My wife says it reminds her of middle school when you hand someone a note and ask, do you want to be my friend? Check yes or no. Well, I guess I never outgrew that phase. Yeah, he answered. Is this SEAL? That depends on who's asking, he said. I hadn't experienced these kind of nerves since I called Sue my senior year in high school to ask her to the prom. I started talking about the race and babbling on until halfway through my rap, I realized that I sounded like someone I would have hung up on. In fact, I wasn't completely sure he hadn't hung up. There was dead silence coming from his end of the phone. This was way worse than the call to Sue. Hello, I asked. Yeah. Just give me 15 minutes to propose something to you in person, I said finally. I'm in New York City but can fly out tomorrow. Silence. Hello? Silence. Seal? Silence. Finally, you want to come out? It's on you, he said. 24 hours later, I was in California. We met in a local restaurant in San Diego. After some small talk, which consisted of me talking and him saying nothing in response, I asked him to move into my house to train me. He stared at me with cold, flat eyes. I couldn't tell if he thought I was nuts or if he was figuring out if I was worth his time. He was sizing me up. One minute passed, then another. Okay, I'll do it with one condition, he said, in a tone that was slightly motivational in a psychopathic drill sergeant way. You do everything I say, yes? And that means everything. Okay, I can wake you up at any time. I can push you to any extreme. Um, nothing is off limits. Nothing. Well, by the time we're done, you'll be able to do a thousand push-ups in one day. A thousand? This wasn't going to be anything like the prom, I thought. At exactly 7 a.m., there's a knock on my door. He has no luggage, no suitcases, no expression. In spite of the fact that it's December and it's freezing out, he's wearing no coat, no hat, no gloves. There's no greeting. He simply says, you ready? That's it? No warm-up pitch? No nice to see you again? No, it's cold out, huh? Maybe something nice and easy right down the middle. Instead, I get a Mariano Rivera cut fastball. I'm so glad you're here, I say. Anything you need, please feel free to help yourself. Make yourself at home. Our home is your home. <laughs> nah, bro, not at all. This is your home. 
I don't have a home. I laugh. Seal doesn't laugh. It was only an expression, I answer. Make yourself at home, that's an expression. I don't operate in expressions, dude. I operate in actions. That needs to be clear immediately, he says. Understand? Okay? Huh? Yes, sir? I'm trained to disappear. You won't ever even know when I'm here. Okay. All right, let's get into this shit. Meet me here in nine minutes. And don't bring your cow fuck expressions. Cow fuck? I change into my standard cold weather workout gear, which consists of two sweatshirts, two hats, and gloves. I walk back out to the front door where Seal is already standing, looking at his watch. It's 14 degrees out and nippy. He's wearing shorts, a t-shirt, and a knit hat. Nothing else. Man, I may need to borrow some gloves, says Seal. You may need gloves? Yeah, or some kind of mittens or some shit like that. That's it? Only gloves? That's it. It's 14 degrees outside, I say. To you it's 14 degrees because you're telling yourself it's 14 degrees. No, it really is. It's 14 degrees. Like that's the real actual temperature outside. It says so on my computer. Seal pauses for a minute like I may have disappointed him. On your computer, huh? He begins to laugh, but it's a haunting laugh, like the count on Sesame Street. The temperature is what you think it is, bro, not what your computer thinks it is. If you think it's 14 degrees outside, then it's 14 degrees. Personally, I'm looking at it like it's in the mid-50s. Rather than argue, after all, we're just getting to know each other, I say, got it. You ever spend time in freezing water, Jesse? Seal asks. I'm thinking to myself, like, on purpose? But I respond with a, no. Well, is it freezing? Or is your mind just saying it's freezing? Which is it? He laughs again. Control your mind, Jesse. Got it. I'm going to have to put that on the to-do list. Control mind. Exactly. Enjoy this shit. If you wanted to be 70 and sunny, it's 70 and sunny. Just run. The elements are in your mind. I don't ever check the temperature when I run. Who gives a fuck what the temperature on the computer says? The computer isn't out there running, is it? He's got me there. But instead of saying, got it again, I try to keep the banter going. Does that work the same in heat? I mean, if it's 95 degrees outside, can you make it snow in your mind? Nah, man. It's a one-way system, bro. Cold to hot only. When it's hot outside, it's just fucking hot. If one of my friends tried to give me the same logic, I'd laugh. But coming from Seal's mouth, I almost believe him. However, I can feel the draft coming from our windows, and I don't care what Seal says. It really is 14 degrees outside. Well then, what's the strategy in the heat? In extreme heat, it's a totally different mindset, bro. You gotta get medieval. Embrace it. Grind it out. Think about how others are suffering. Enjoy the pain. Yours or theirs, I ask. Seal levels me with his stare. Both, he says. Then Seal nods at me. The signal that it's go time. We head to Central Park and run six miles at a nine-minute, 20-second-per-mile pace. I think Seal wants to feel me out. Although I'm an experienced marathoner, I was never a fast runner. I can run at a seven-minute-mile pace, but I prefer not to. I like to take my time running. My pace is more the you-should-be-able-to-talk-to-a-friend-while-running pace. It's more enjoyable. I'm way more of an endurance guy than a sprint guy. I find that endurance running is more of a mental challenge than a physical challenge, and I'm pretty good at blocking out the pain and boredom of long runs. This pace suits me well. I think to myself, 
I can do this. An hour later. After a warm shower and quickly returning some work emails, I give Seal a quick tour of our apartment. We live at 15 Central Park West on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. The building has been written and blogged about as a famous New York City building and has also been featured for its amazing views, architecture, and resonance. Many of the world's top CEOs, athletes, and entertainers live in the building. I convinced Sarah two years ago we should move in because the building had a pool. We can swim every day, honey. Well, here we are two years later. We bought the apartment, but we have not been in the pool once. Although my wife and I don't consider ourselves to be fancy, the building sure is. In fact, when we first moved in, the elevator concierge, not the elevator operator, the elevator concierge, told me to get off the elevator because the elevators are only for residents. I guess I didn't look the part of resident in my ski hat and shorts. I start the tour by showing Seal how to use the remotes for the television. I figure that's something a guest who's staying with us for over a month will want to know, right? This is how you turn it on, I say, pointing to the power button. We won't be watching much TV, he says, interrupting me. Okay, then. Moving on, I say. I set the remote down and then lead him over to the kitchen. If we aren't going to be watching television, then we certainly will be eating, I assume. I pull out the first drawer. So this is where all the forks, spoons, and knives are, I say. I won't be using your utensils, he says. Huh? I close the drawer. Maybe I'll have more luck in the laundry room. As I'm about to show him how to use the washer and dryer, he interrupts me again and says, Yo, man, you can skip all this tour shit. Just tell me how to get to the gym. Okay, the tour is officially over, and we head to the gym. For the first time, I can see Seal's front teeth as a smile starts to form. He's ecstatic. I can see the change in his expression just from walking inside of the gym. It's almost like watching The Wizard of Oz for the first time when you see the screen go from black and white to color. It's a whole new world. He walks over to the pull-up bar, jumps up, grabs the bar, and hangs. He starts to swing and swing some more and swing until he finally jumps off. I guess he approves because his smile's grown. This is perfect. You ready, he asks. For what? Your pulls. You mean like right now? Give me 10, all the way down and all the way up. Let's see where your pull-up game is at. I jump up and grab the bar and pull my 200 pounds of body weight up until my chin is over the bar. One. I go down. When I get to number eight, I start kicking my legs around frantically to try to get some momentum. I need to get my chin over this damn bar, but I can't. I drop to the floor. Seal tells me to take a 45-second break and do it again. 45 seconds later, I jump back up and grab the bar. I've never been good at doing pull-ups. In fact, I hate doing them. Somehow I managed to squeak out six more before I drop back to the ground. This time I think for good. Seal tells me to take another 45 seconds and then do it again. Another 45 seconds go by, and this time I'm able to get three solid pull-ups in before I drop to the ground. Each time I'm dropping, my legs give out a little more. That's 17 pull-ups. I'm done. I'm literally maxed out. I don't think I've ever done 17 pull-ups so fast, or ever for that matter. I grab my left bicep with my right hand and my right bicep with my left hand and squeeze. It feels like there are nails in my biceps. 17. Cool. That's my max number. I didn't think I could even do that. Amazing. Let's head back upstairs. As I start to look up, Seal is staring at me with a blank expression. 
deadpan. We're going to stay here until you do 100. What? I can't do 100. That's impossible, I say. You better find a way, he says to me, like a father might tell his son to clean his bedroom. You got a shitty-ass attitude. I do one and drop to the floor. I walk around the gym trying to delay the inevitable. My arms sag at my sides and Seal watches me. I can't procrastinate any longer. I return to the pull-up bar. I do another one and drop to the ground. I take another lap around the gym and I'm back to the pull-up bar. I drop, lap, pull-up, drop, lap, pull-up, drop. 90 minutes later, I'm on 97. Training is definitely underway. Workout totals, 6 miles and 100 pull-ups. No Novocaine. I like to sit back and enjoy the pain. I earned it. Seal. I grew up on Long Island in Roslyn, New York, with two older sisters and a brother. I was the youngest by five years. As suburban as you can get, Roslyn has developments of houses that are all pretty much the same with connected backyards that were patrolled by an army of kids my age. My mom owned a cowbell. I could be six or seven houses away, and I'd hear my mom's bell calling me home. I was trained like a cow. It was slightly embarrassing. The rule was, do your homework and you can go outside. But when you hear the bell, you better come home, and you better be home in five minutes. My mom was the most unconditionally loving mom, but my mom was also a hard ass. Nobody messed with her. I've never heard her curse, but she has this look that she'd give you, her go-to move, silence. It got me every time. My mom was also something of a dichotomy when it came to traditional child health care. On one hand, she let me eat cheeseburgers, bacon, ice cream, and Oreo cookies, whatever I wanted, and all at once. But she was freaked out by x-ray machines, fluoride, and Novocaine. She didn't think there had been enough research and testing done on certain things in the 1970s, and she didn't want me to be the lab rat. I got my first x-ray only after they invented the big lead vest they put on you, and she thought fluoride was just the most toxic thing. Not having x-rays in Florida in my life was easy to take. What was hard was no Novocaine. My dentist's name was Henry Schmitzer, and his office was about a 45-minute drive from our house. I guess he was the only dentist my mom could find who would drill a kid's mouth without an anesthetic. Henry might have been Lawrence Olivier's inspiration for the character he played in Marathon Man. So while all my friends were getting gassed up, pain-free, and lollipop visits to their dentists around the corner, I'd be sitting in the back of the car for 45 minutes staring out the window, sweating, thinking, we're actually driving out of our way for this shit? That sound and smell like burning bone of the drill. The anticipation was grueling, to say the least. It was a full-on event for me. The walk from the parking lot to the office always sparked thoughts and temptations to just run away as fast as I could. But my mother would give me a sympathetic smile as she held the door for me to go inside. She really believed she was doing the best for me. Inside, Schmitzer, the motherfucker, would start drilling my mouth. I'm literally holding my mouth as I'm reading this. The taste of that fire, the sound, the excruciating pain, and my mouth would be sore forever. It was crazy. You'd think that that would have been motivation to brush better, but it always seemed like I had at least one cavity every checkup. My dad was basically the complete opposite from my mom, in a go-with-the-flow type of way. He owned a plumbing supply store in Mineola and worked six days a week, a half day on Saturday. Even with all the time he invested at work, 
he was a hands-on dad. He showed up for every game, every event, and made it a point to be home for family dinner every night. At home, he was like a mad scientist. He had a workshop in his basement, and that was his spot. He wasn't into watching sports or hanging out with friends. He liked to invent. When the movie Back to the Future came out and Doc created the flux capacitor, I was like, that's my dad. I remember one time in elementary school when I had to make a diorama. The assignment was simple. Take a shoebox and create a replica of your own house. Well, by the time my dad helped out, my diorama had running water and electricity. I kid you not. You could also push a button and the little garage door on the diorama would open. I definitely think I got my creativity from my dad. And as far as I know, he was pro-Novocaine. But unfortunately, he wasn't the one driving me to the dentist. The part of me that would grow up to hire a Navy SEAL, that came from my mom. Day two, nature's Gatorade. I'm the surpriseor, not the surprisee, SEAL. New York City to Boston, 20 degrees to 16 degrees, 0700. I had a hard time sleeping last night. It's a combination of nerves and excitement mixed in with the fact that my biceps are jacked up from the pull-ups. They're sore to the touch. I don't think they moved once from the 90-degree flex position they were stuck in all night. As far as nerves go, I'm unusually nervous right now. It's not the typical type of nerve someone might get from having to go on a job interview or something like that, but it's nervousness in the sense that I don't want to disappoint Seal by not being able to do the workouts. This anxiety started to build before he ever arrived, and the thought of not wanting to get hurt is playing like background music in my head. It's a little like the nerves I feel before a marathon. There's a level of uncertainty of what will and might happen. Plus, the way Seal expected me to do 100 pull-ups yesterday was borderline certifiable, and he refused to leave the gym until they were all done. It freaked me out. Anyway, before we went to bed last night, Seal told me to set my alarm clock for 06.30, 6.30 a.m., in preparation for a run at 0700, 7 a.m., sharp. Well, there was no alarm clock needed because at 6 a.m., I hear someone walking around the foyer of the apartment, not tiptoeing, but making what feels like intentional noise to wake me up. I hear an excessive loud fake coughing, the slamming of the front door, and music being turned up extra loud. What an asshole. I grab two sweatshirts, two hats, and gloves. Seal is in the same summer attire as yesterday with the addition of some old gloves I lent him. We head out. As we walk by the front desk, I can tell the doormen are curious as to who Seal is. I thought I overheard one of them asking the other if he was Jerry Rice, the football great. Nah, this guy's way bigger than Jerry Rice, the other said. We run the same loop of Central Park as we did yesterday at the same nine-minute mile pace. There's no talking. There's no joking. There's no communication. I'm not so sure this guy wants to be my friend. And I'm not so sure now I want to be his. My arms hurt like hell from the pull-ups, but I don't say anything. I just keep stride. I've run long distances in my life, but when I'm not training on a daily basis, a six-mile run's a pain in the ass. It's long and definitely can be boring. No matter how you slice it, six miles is going to take me 50 to 60 minutes. That's a long time to be running. Any runner will tell you that some days a run can fly by and be enjoyable. And sometimes that same exact run on the same exact path feels like torture and is excruciatingly slow. 
Today, the clock seems to be ticking particularly slowly. Maybe it's the awkwardness of running with a stranger. It's very odd running with someone you don't know and who doesn't speak. The silence is very uncomfortable. It's like running with someone who speaks a language you don't understand, except this someone is very intimidating and will be living with you for another 30 days. Whatever it is, this run feels twice as long as it did the last time I ran it. When we get home, I make a quick shake, shower, and head to work. Three hours later. I haven't told Seal that today I have to fly to Boston for a business meeting around noon. But I have good reason for the trip. I recently started a company called the 100 Mile Group. I'm fairly good at identifying trends and predicting the next big thing. The 100 Mile Group is set up to take advantage of that. If I find a product or service that I know customers will want and I have authentic passion for it, then our company will invest, market, or launch it. Our first product is a new brand called Zico Coconut Water. As a runner, I'm well aware of the amazing hydrating qualities of coconut water, and I'm convinced the category is going to take off. I'd also noticed that every four years or so, a new natural health drink would hit the market and explode off the shelves. Pomegranate juice had just stormed the castle. Everywhere you looked, there was an ad for the stuff. I believe coconut water was next. Initially, I looked into importing coconut water from overseas and having a go at it myself. After trips to Jamaica and Brazil, I quickly realized I'd be much better off partnering with an existing brand and helping them grow their business. I was introduced to Mark Rampola, the founder of Zico Coconut Water, that summer. Zico was a small company at the time with about $5 million in sales, but my spidey senses told me they were onto something. Plus, I really liked Mark. I ended up partnering with the company and simultaneously brokered a deal with Coca-Cola, where they came in as a minority partner. Coca-Cola had recently established a division called VEB, Venturing and Emerging Brands. This is the branch of Coke that looks for the next billion-dollar brand and partners with them during their early growth period. They were responsible for acquiring Honest Tea, Illy Coffee, and other hot brands. My friend Lance Collins had founded Fuse and just sold it to Coke. He introduced me to the president of the division, and after several trips to Atlanta, we formed a three-way partnership, Zico, the 100-mile group, and Coca-Cola. Coke retained an option to acquire the whole company based on certain sales triggers. Zico's starting to take off, so this is a big meeting for me. I eventually tell Seal we have to go to Boston for the meeting. I totally forgot to give him a heads up, but I'm sure he'll understand. It's business. This is some bullshit, Jesse. I'm going to do it, but this is some pure cow bullshit. No more motherfucking surprises, Jesse. I'm the surpriseor, not the surprisee. I'm not playing. No more fucking surprises. We can't deviate. He's livid. I promise we'll be back by 7 p.m. tonight to train, I say, hoping to smooth over his disappointment. He agrees, but in my mind I'm thinking, what real choice does he have? I have to work, right? It's noon. We go straight to the airport from my office. There's no need to stop by my apartment and pack because I'm positive we'll be back in time for our evening workout. I have an extra pair of shorts and a t-shirt under my desk at work, so I grab them, just in case. The fact that I'm going to be meeting with Boston Celtic and basketball legend Kevin Garnett does very little to impress Seal. This is my first time meeting Garnett, and I'm looking forward to it. I've been good friends with this sports agent for a while, and I'd heard Garnett was a fan of Zico, 
even though he's officially an endorser of Gatorade. And Garnett is a fitness freak. In the off-season, Garnett lives in Malibu. But Garnett does not technically have an off-season because as soon as the season ends, he gets right to training. He prides himself on working out early and often. I like my feet to be the first footprints in the sand, he said many times. I love the guy's intensity and focus on wellness. I think he'll be the perfect fit as an investor and endorser for Zico. Plus, it would be huge for us to lure him away from Gatorade, and I believe his contract with them is coming up for renewal. Needless to say, I'm excited for this meeting. On the jet, I buckle my seatbelt as tight as I can and point the air valve directly at me. Then I pull the shade down over the window. I've never been the greatest flyer, which is ironic because I started a private jet company. As part of my superstition, I go through a kind of pre-flight checklist every time I get on a plane. I say a prayer, put on Carol King, and click my heels three times. And this time, I'm glad I do. To say the takeoff is bumpy doesn't capture the experience. It's a nauseating roller coaster. The plane's being tossed around like a pinball from side to side. In between the free falls, I glance over at Seal. He's still in the same running shorts and t-shirt he ran in this AM, and he's reading Sports Illustrated. I'm not even sure Seal realizes we even took off yet as he casually flips the pages of his magazine. He's unfazed. 20 minutes into the flight, a beeping noise chimes, indicating a warning, and the buckle your seatbelt light illuminates. The pilot instructs the flight attendants to return to their seats and stop service as the turbulence is so severe. I'm flipped out and have convinced myself we're going down. Beads of sweat are pouring down my forehead and my palms are drenched. But Seal? He doesn't so much as flinch. He's just reading, casually flipping the pages and yawning. Finally, we're wheels down in Boston. I'm ecstatic we're on the ground in one piece. Seal couldn't give two shits. He turns to me and says, great flight. 1600. We walk into the conference room of the Boston Celtics practice facility, and there's Kevin Garnett, his agent, and one of his financial guys. Kevin's much taller than I anticipated, and he's super ripped. The guy looks way more muscular and intimidating in person. he just finished a three-hour practice and was showered up and ready to discuss business. We're led to a large room that overlooks the court where the team's executives sit when they watch practice. I'm feeling pretty good. I enjoy putting people and products that I believe in together, and I'm quite at ease in this kind of meeting. So going in, my confidence level's on high. Hey, Kevin, man, Jesse Itzler. I go to shake Garnett's hand, which is the size of a hamburger helper's hand, but I realize he's not looking at me. He's looking at Seal. And this is Seal, I say. Seal nods, then Garnett does. It's like a silent standoff. Two gunslingers in the Wild West evaluating each other. I hired a Navy SEAL to live with me for a month or so, I say to explain. You know, to train me. To shake some shit up in my life. Garnett's eyebrows arch, as if I'm the first person to bring a Navy SEAL to a business meeting with him. Is it okay if he joins us for the meeting? I hand Garnett a Zico coconut water, smile, and jump right into my pitch. If Mother Nature went into the sports drink business, Zico would be her Gatorade. How many miles do you run a day, Garnett asks SEAL finally breaking the silence that's been building between them. Depends, Seal says with a shrug. Do weights or resistance training? Yes and no, Seal says. Anaerobic threshold? Body composition? Maximum heart rate? Your VO2? 
Garnett fires the questions and Seal parries them back. It's not a gunfight. It's more like Garnett's in the quarterfinals at the U.S. Open in Flushing, Queens, and Seal's playing badminton at a cookout. Hours pass. Not once do we talk about Zico. I'm just sitting there. We talk about workouts, or rather, they talk about workouts. I can tell that Seal's digging Garnett. There's some kind of mutual warrior vibe going on that they're connecting with. I'm picking it up too, but I'm not on the same warrior vibe radio station as them. Weather starts to roll in. The meeting goes on and on and on. I, Garnett finally says, signaling the meeting's over. What about Zico, I'm wondering? Garnett and Seal turn and look at me like I've just magically reappeared. They give each other a bear hug and we say our goodbyes. Finally, Garnett turns to me. It's as simple as this, yo. Whatever you motherfuckers do, Garnett says, I want in. 20 I give Seal a high fist bump as we walk out of the building. The euphoria quickly turns into fear as we walk out into a full-fledged snow squall. This isn't good, I think to myself. This is what Seal might refer to as a surprise, but this one's on Mother Nature, not me. We don't even attempt to go to the airport, and I find us a hotel near the Boston Garden. It's getting late as we check into our rooms. I'm tired and need to rest. Maybe I'll rent a movie and order room service. Just as I lie down on the bed, I hear a knock. Let's go, the voice says through the door. Meet me in the lobby in ten minutes. But it's freezing and snowing. Ten minutes. But we already ran this morning. Ten minutes. But I don't have anything warm. Eight minutes later, I get off the elevator in the lobby. Seal is ready. He's waiting at the front desk. He looks at me like I'm late, when in actuality, I'm two minutes early. It's our second run of the day, and the temperature keeps dropping. I'm in shorts, a t-shirt, a hat, and the sweatshirt I wore to the meeting. That's it. It's 18 degrees outside, and we run along the Boston waterfront. It's bitter cold, windy, and it has a misty snow. I really don't want to be out here, but I have no choice. I'm freezing my ass off. I want to be in my hotel room, ordering room service and watching the snow from behind my window. Plus, all I really want to do is think about the next step with Zico and Garnett while it's fresh in my mind. I try to break down the Garnett meeting with Seal and discuss the win. That meeting was awesome, I say. No response. You think his financial guy dug it? No response. What did you think of his financial guy anyway? No response. About one minute later, Seal finally says, Motherfucker, it's KG's show. I'll leave it at that. I'm not sure exactly what body of water we're running next to this evening, but I assume it's the Charles River. I have nothing to base that off of other than the fact that that's the only river I know in Boston. Whether I'm right or wrong, I visualize the river filled with college kids rowing on a hot day. I'm not sure Seal is visualizing anything. He's just staring straight ahead as if he's anticipating an ambush. But no enemies appear. When we get back to the hotel, my fingertips are frozen. I go to Google Frostbite on my laptop, but I can't even work the keypad. We just logged six more miles. That's 12 for the day and 18 so far. I throw my wet clothes in the bathtub, lay my sweatshirt out on the heater in the room to dry, and call Sarah to check in. Whenever I'm on the road, it's tough being away from my wife and son, but a call always warms me up. It's 9.30 p.m. real time, and she's not picking up. It just keeps ringing. Sarah likes to go to bed early. It's been like that since the day I met her in 2006 at a poker tournament in Las Vegas. 
Sarah was a customer of mine at Marquee Jet, the private jet company I co-founded in 2001. Our partner, NetJets, was hosting a poker tournament, and we were allocated only 40 seats at the tables. We had 3,000-plus customers at that point, and picking 40 was very hard to do. Every sales rep got to submit a list of four or five clients they thought were worthy of being invited, and then my partner Kenny and I would choose one person from each region to invite. My Georgia sales rep called me up and said she had a young businesswoman who she thought should get a ticket. The rep then emailed me a photo of her. The picture was a headshot of a pretty blonde with an apple on her head. What? I was intrigued. She was a cutie. So I told the rep not to send any other applications my way and go ahead and invite her, the girl with the apple on her head. The night of the tournament, about 15 of us went out to dinner, and the woman with the apple on her head was in the group. Then, 30 minutes into the dinner, she said it was past her bedtime and was going back to her room. I looked at my phone. It was 9.30 p.m. Who goes to bed at 9.30 at night in Vegas? What an odd bird, I thought. Two years later, I was married to that odd bird. My call goes into voicemail and I leave a message. Since it's past 9 p.m., Sarah must be sound asleep, and it's time for me to call it a night, too. With all the weather delays, I assume the airport will be backed up, and I want to get there early in the morning. Workout totals, 12 miles and freezing rain. Day three, my nuts. You need to feel the pace, seal. Boston, 28 degrees, 0500. The hotel phone is ringing. What time is it? I didn't request a wake-up call. Obviously, it's sealed, so I roll over in bed and pick it up. It's go time is the first thing I hear. Yesterday, Seal told me he wanted me to run six miles in the morning and three miles at night for the first three days he's here to build my base. Three days to build a base? That sounds ridiculous. Doesn't it take months to build a base? Anyway, I wasn't expecting to be in Boston overnight, so I have no extra clothes to change into. Plus, my clothing from last night is still soaking wet and cold from the snow and sweat. Before we head down, I meet Seal in the hallway between our rooms to discuss a little issue I have. Seal, I have a problem, I say to him. I didn't bring any extra underwear. So what? I can't run without underwear. Nah, bro, you can't run without legs. It's on. So I throw on my freezing wet clothes from last night. I'm cold and miserable before I even head out. My underwear is so wet that I can't put it on, so I go commando style. We meet in the lobby. Today's pace is faster than last night's, like a minute per mile faster. And somebody forgot to give the sun a wake-up call because it's still pitch black out. We dart in and out of the headlights of incoming traffic like inmates fleeing the yard in a prison break. We zig, horns beep. We zag, horns blast. I'm just trying to keep pace. Apparently, Seal prefers to run on the street facing traffic and as close to the moving cars as possible. Like, why not run on the sidewalk? Why are we on the street? The answer is, I'm not really sure why. Maybe he likes the adrenaline rush. I don't. I prefer to run on a quiet street where there's no exhaust and cars aren't coming within an inch of killing me. Whatever the reason, he insists on running that way. There's a sidewalk two feet from us that we can easily jump on. It may even be four runners. It's clean, empty, safe, and appealing. Seal ignores it. We stay on the street, narrowly avoiding cars and jumping over potholes. 
It's driving me crazy. Why can't he go on the sidewalk? After 20 minutes or so, Silas only said two words to me, stay close. At about three miles into our six-mile run, it's time to turn around to run back to the hotel. So we do. The sun begins to peek through. It's 5.30 a.m. I'm getting better at dodging traffic, but I still don't like it. It's on the route home when I begin to realize something isn't quite right. It's my nuts. They're starting to rub against the fabric of my shorts because I'm running without underwear. It's not a pleasurable feeling. Without breaking stride, I put my right hand on my balls, pull my fingers out of my shorts, and look. Blood. Confirm. It's my nuts. My balls are bleeding from the friction. Jesus. Seal, my nuts are bleeding. Who gives a fuck about your tiny nuts, he says. We keep pace. About a mile later, I realize I don't recognize anything. The buildings, the trees, nothing on the way back to the hotel looks familiar. This is not the way we came. Sorry, man, nothing looks familiar. I assume it's impossible that you could get lost, I managed to ask in between gasps. Not with your training. He glares at me. Ranger school, bro. No chance. After 48 minutes of running, his watch beeps for the sixth time, indicating we've hit the six-mile mark, but no hotel in sight. I'm thinking three miles out, three miles back, run should be over, right? Come on, man. My nuts are fucking bloody. At 8.3 miles, we finally find the hotel. I'm pissed off about the extra mileage. Seal satisfied. It's like he thinks he got extra credit or something. The second we get inside, Seal pulls out his training log and jots down a recap of the workout. Date, time, pace, mileage, etc. He writes so small he has the details of his whole year of workouts on two pages. I walk bow-legged across the lobby. It hurts. I wonder if the concierge can help with bleeding nuts. Ranger school, bro. Three hours later. I call Seal's room and tell him we better get to the airport. Roger that, he says. It's 9 a.m. We're stuck for hours at Logan. Nothing is flying. I make some calls. I'm happy thinking over the way the Garnett meeting went down. I read some magazines. I walk around. I make some more calls. Seal just sits there, staring straight ahead. He doesn't move off the chair. He doesn't go to the bathroom. I'm not even sure he blinks. He's just staring. I look over in the direction of what he's staring at to identify it. I follow his eyes to a blank brick wall. There's nothing there. I look back at him to double-check I'm lining up his sight line correctly. And again, it takes me to the brick wall. He's just staring. Like the stone line in front of the New York Public Library. Seal is two gears, idle and full out. But his idle isn't like normal idle at all. It's more like the moment between ignition and blast-off. I get the feeling around him that things get hairy quickly. And yet, I also have a feeling of absolute safety around him. I don't mean my own personal safety, though there's that too. I mean like national defense safety. For three more hours, I pace, eat, shop, and read. Seal just stares. We finally board our flight. Still day three, that night. Thankfully, the flight is much smoother than the ride to Boston. I'm able to close my eyes for the 50 minutes to New York, and it feels like I'm in full REM cycle. I'm out cold. We land at LaGuardia and jump in a cab back to the city. It's a short 30-minute ride to the west side, 
It's almost 8 p.m. by the time we get back to the apartment. Seal throws a banana at me and says, fuel up. I've only eaten airport food all day and I'm starving. I'd love to order in Josie's, the local health food restaurant, but that's not on Seal's menu. His specials tonight are tossed bananas and running miles. Let's knock these three little miles out, he says. Six in the a.m. and three miles at night, he repeats. We need to build this foundation. Maybe I'm calculating wrong, but we did 8.3 miles this a.m. If we round up, we're done for the day. I'm not 100% sure why Seal agreed to come work with me. As eager as I was to shake up my life, I bet in some way he was equally curious to see how I lived, to learn, to get some ideas about business, travel, family, and life after the military. I'm not really sure. It's too early in our relationship, but I make a mental note to ask him down the road. Winter in New York City can be very cold, and tonight the big CNN video screen that's displayed across from my apartment says 17 degrees. Seal puts on the same outfit he's had on for the past five runs. I mean, the exact same outfit. How did all this shit dry? I go into my room and layer up in long sleeve running shirts. I also grab two hats and throw them on. It's a universally accepted fact that you lose a lot of warmth through your head. If you keep your head warm in the severe cold, you'll have won half the battle of keeping your body warm. I usually always prefer to run in shorts, regardless of the temperature. But tonight I choose to put on a thin thermal legging because it's so damn cold. During the ride down the 37 flights on the elevator, Steele doesn't even look at me. It's like he's infuriated with me. Actually, he looks like he's mad at something way bigger than just me. Is he mad at the world? Let's get the fuck out of here, he says as the elevator opens. Fuck it, let's do six, Seal says as we leave. I don't even question it because he looks so mad. We run six miles in Central Park. Usually, I run the loop of Central Park in a clockwise direction, but tonight, he wants to run it in the opposite direction. He tells me we hit way more hills going this way. Not sure I really get that. To me, it sounds like a word problem I had in eighth grade math, but there's no time to discuss. Off we go. Seal does not look at his watch once during the run, and when we finish, he hits the stop button on his GPS. I hear a beep indicating the run is done and logged. We did those in nines, he says. He then looks down at his watch, exactly 54 minutes. It's like he's a human GPS. Seal, how the fuck did you know we were running nines without checking your watch? Instincts, you need to feel the pace. This guy's like the Obi-Wan Kenobi of running. 20 minutes later. It's about 10 p.m. and I'm starting to think about sleep. I'm usually not hungry after I work out, and tonight's no different. I guzzle a glass of water and wash up. Sarah's reading People magazine in the living room. Ten minutes later. I walk to Seal's room to say goodnight and see if he needs anything. Our relationship is still in the infancy stages, and I want to make sure he feels welcome. I lightly knock on his door three times and then peek my head in. He's sitting upright in his bed like he knew I was going to come in. Hey, man, I say, you cool? You know what, Jesse, Seal says? No, I'm not cool. I'm sick of this shit. Seal pounds his fist on the bed. You're too pretty, man. Too cute. Fuck you. What? Go grab a chair. The most uncomfortable chair you can find. I have no idea what he's talking about. But I go and get a wooden chair with no armrests out of my home office and return to his room. 
this? That's perfect, Seal says. Sit down. I sit in the chair. Now go grab a fucking blanket, he says. Wait, what? He really doesn't think I'm going to sleep in a chair. You got to get out of your comfort zone, Jesse, he says. Enough of this comfy shit. Fuck this Park Avenue bullshit. He repeats himself under his breath. Fucking Park Avenue bullshit. But we live on Central Park West. So I grab a blanket and try to get comfortable sitting in a chair. Every time I try to stretch out to get into a more of a reclined bed position, I slide down off the chair. Then Sarah walks in. Hey, honey, um, what are you doing? Sweetie, Seal says I need to get out of my comfort zone. He wants me to sleep in this chair. It must be a mental thing. I'm trying to spin this as positively as I can. It's almost like I'm trying to convince myself that this is a good idea. Jess, you're a 42-year-old father. Please go and get into your bed. My wife knows what I signed up for, but she slightly rolls her eyes, a judgmental expression that's somewhat neutralized by her smile. Sarah also knows I'm going to make every attempt to complete any and all of Seal's challenges, but she didn't think I'd be told to sleep in a chair. The blanket isn't helping, and the chair squeaks every time I shift positions. My wife shakes her head, turns, and walks back to the bedroom to our comfy, bazillion thread count sheet bed. My wife likes nice sheets. It's midnight. Lights out. Workout totals. 14.3 miles, 8.3 miles in the morning, and 6 miles at night. Sarah's first sighting. I don't do shit for applauses. I don't do shit for fanfare. I do shit for me. Seal. The first time Sarah saw a seal was before he moved in with us, but after I flew to the West Coast to offer my invitation. I told my wife I wanted to run the Badwater Race. It's a grueling 135-mile ultramarathon through the Mojave Desert's Death Valley in 130-degree heat, and that's in the shade. Sarah thought that was the dumbest thing she ever heard and insisted I first go watch the race to see what it was all about before I entered it myself. And like a good husband, I agreed. And because of the extreme nature of the race and inherent danger, she decided that she ought to come too, you know, for a second opinion. I'd always wanted to complete the Badwater race. It's considered the toughest foot race on earth, and rightfully so. 135 miles, 130-degree heat, plus the last 13 miles of the race are a straight ascent up Mount Whitney. I also knew Seal was running it. I just felt like this was the race to do for my life resume. It was the ultimate physical and mental challenge, and I wanted to take the test. I guess I also wanted to be able to look at other runners in the face and say, I completed Badwater. Like I said earlier, I want to get better. So that summer, for our family vacation, we flew across the country in July to watch the race. Since there are no direct flights, or any flights for that matter, into Death Valley, we had to fly into Las Vegas, rent a car, and drive a few hours to the desert. The ride to Death Valley is long and boring, straight through the desert. Not a great way to spend your vacation if you're Sarah, but I was psyched to watch the race. We got there just after the final wave of runners started the race. We drove out about 20 miles past the start to cheer on the competitors. Any description I could offer here wouldn't do justice to just how hot it was. 
As we arrived, the thermometer in the car showed the outside temp to be 128 degrees. It was so hot that at first, Sarah wouldn't even get out of the car. We parked at the 30-mile mark and watched the racers pass with the air conditioner inside blasting. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever seen an ultramarathon before, but the competitors are an interesting breed of humans. As Sarah said, it's like they put 90 people from an insane asylum onto a Greyhound bus, drove them out to the desert, blew a whistle, and said, run for two days. She wasn't far off. Most of the runners looked like a cross between scrawny science teachers and confused goat herders. As we cheered on the runners, they enjoyed our support by thanking us and giving us high fives. Some even engaged in light conversation. Sarah could not believe the group. She anticipated super fit athletes, not folks who looked like mad scientists in running shorts. But then, over the horizon, she saw what she thought was a mirage coming towards us. It was like the music from Chariots of Fire started playing in Death Valley as he approached. The guy was a machine. He stared straight ahead like there was nothing in his path and ran. His muscles were like a locomotive train. As he passed us, Sarah jumped up and down and yelled, Go! 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 Although there wasn't another human within a mile of us or him, he didn't even react. No thank you, no smile, no anything. Holy shit, she exclaimed. What the hell was that? Several months later, that moved into our house. Day four, fitness test. I don't think about yesterday. I think about today and getting better. Seal. New York City, 25 degrees, 0530. I've been in and out of sleep all night but officially wake up in the chair at 5.30 a.m. I've never been more happy to be up at 5.30 a.m. in my life. My neck is killing me. I have an L-shaped back and my knees are locked. I think I got two hours of sleep max. Seal meets me in the den at 05.45. He looks like he's already showered, had coffee, and read the morning paper. Maybe he has. He doesn't say a word about the chair. Nothing. Now that we are three days into his stay and have built the foundation, Seal decides he wants to test where I'm at physically. We agreed last night to an 0600 start time for our fit test. Agreed means he told me when we're waking up. Before Seal got here, I had no idea how to convert military time into regular human time, the time the rest of the world operates on. But now I'm completely fluent in the conversion. So at 05.45, we head down to the gym for our test. Before we get started, Seal takes his shirt off. He looks at himself in the gym mirror. It's almost like he's doing it in slow motion, checking to see if he added more definition to his Hulk-like body overnight. I apologize and explain that he has to keep his clothing on in the building gym, that those are the rules, that other residents will be coming down soon. He acts like I'm taking a toy away from him and telling him to brush his teeth. Like it's my rule. Like I'm the stuffy one. That's the dumbest shit ever, he says. This is a gym. Gyms have mirrors. I know, but that's the rules. Well, whoever made that rule's an asshole. He reluctantly keeps his shirt on, and we walk over to the pull-up bar for what he's coined nickels and dimes. We do five pull-ups, nickels, and then ten push-ups, dimes, every minute on the minute. We start every time the second hand's on the 12. 
if we finish in 40 seconds, we then have 20 seconds of rest. We do this for 10 minutes, 50 pull-ups and 100 push-ups. However, by the time we get to four minutes, I have to drop my pull-up count to three. I can't keep up. I'm a runner, but this is a totally different skill set. I assume most 43-year-old men aren't doing eight pull-ups, let alone 50. Seal doesn't say anything. He just pulls out his tiny journal and scribbles in it. I'm already incredibly sore and struggling. Pull-ups are not my thing. Plus, I'm still sore from the pull-ups three days ago. Seal says, okay, now we get started. What? We head over to the treadmill. Seal hands me two 20-pound dumbbells and sets the controls. Incline, 8. Speed, 4.0. He pushes the start button. I do this for eight minutes. It's like a brisk walk up a moderate-sized hill carrying a couple of suitcases. Then, every minute thereafter, Seal increases the incline by one. By incline 10, it feels like I'm walking up a steep hill carrying two camp trucks. By 15, I'm climbing the side of a mountain holding two minivans. When I'm done, my shoulder blades feel like they're on fire. My thighs are jacked up. My lungs are so expanded, it feels like they're going to burst my ribcage. Seal pulls out his tiny journal and marks it as such. In fact, I tell him to jot it down in bold, miserable. We head over to the box jump. It's 24 inches high. He times me how long it takes me to do 50. One minute, 57 seconds. Seal pulls out his tiny journal and marks it as such. Then we go outside and run six miles. It takes me an hour. I'm miserable, miserable. Seal pulls out his tiny journal and marks it as such. What's amazing is that Seal not only does every single workout with me, but he also does his own personal workouts on top of this. It's like the workouts we're doing that are knocking me out are not nearly enough for him. My workouts are like his jumping jacks for a warm-up. We've only been together for a few days, and I never really see Seal lifting weights. But the guy is always doing push-ups. It's like push-ups are his hobby, or more like it's his job. Or better yet, it's his hobby and his job. Anytime I go into the kitchen, I see him doing push-ups in his room or in the hallway. He'll be in position, pushing up and down. And completely out of nowhere, the guy will drop and give himself 20. At work, in the lobby, in the restroom, anywhere and everywhere. It's not normal. Today, for example, when the doorman came to the apartment to drop off some packages that were delivered, Seal answered the door and welcomed him in. As the doorman was placing the packages by the wall, he tried to engage Seal in conversation. You good? The doorman asked. Rather than answer and continue a normal conversation, Seal drops to the floor and starts doing rapid-fire push-ups. Hey, man, just leave that shit by the wall. Appreciate it, he says, and goes up and down and up and down and up and down. Workout totals, 6 miles, 15-minute treadmill test, 50 box jumps, 36 pull-ups, and 100 push-ups. Day 5, Escape Vehicle. It doesn't have to be fun. It has to be effective. Seal. New York City, 20 degrees, 0800. I'm on the couch reading the New York Post. The door to the apartment opens. It's Seal. He's back from doing an errand. This is fucking amazing. Seal is holding a 50-pound camouflage backpack and four oars. What's that for? 
I set down the paper and sit up a little straighter on the couch. It's your escape vehicle out of Manhattan, he says. And this backpack is an inflatable raft that carries a maximum load of 450 pounds. Pull this cord and it inflates instantly, he shows me the cord. You, Sarah, and Laser can all fit in it comfortably and paddle to Jersey. Brilliant, I say. Man, this shit is so badass, he says. It's low to the water and impossible to see at night. It has an attachable motor. If you time your escape right, you can get out of Dodge undetected. Poof. This is the most animated I've seen Seal since he got here. But why would we want to escape, I ask? In case some 9-11 shit happens again. There's only one way out. The river. The city shuts down all bridges and tunnels and access points. How the fuck else do you plan to get out? What's the plan? Plan? I don't have a plan. Well, you do now. You're going to row, row, row your boat the fuck out of here. Makes sense to me. As Seal and I are admiring the 50-pound backpack and the four oars, Sarah walks in the front door. My wife looks down at the backpack and then up at us. She's a bit confused. Sweetie, Seal got us a backpack that turns into an inflatable raft in case we ever need to get out of the city, I say. An inflatable raft? We live on the 37th floor in an apartment in Manhattan. Yeah, Seal said the bridges and tunnels get shut down during an emergency. It's protocol. A raft is the only way out. We just bring it to the Hudson River and inflate it. Then we paddle to New Jersey. Okay, love. She sets the mail down on the kitchen counter. That's it? Just okay, love? Any thoughts? Well, just so I understand, I'm supposed to grab my son, strap a 50-pound backpack on my shoulders, carry four oars, walk a mile to the river, inflate this survival raft, and then paddle to New Jersey? In the middle of a national emergency? There's dead silence in the room. Then more dead silence. Sarah chimes in and says, I'm not even sure I could lift this thing. Nah, you'll be fine, Seal says as he grabs the backpack and puts it on Sarah's back. She falls straight over backward. I think to myself, she has a point. Finally, Seal interjects. I can tell he's about to lose it and he's been holding in his words, but now he can't hold them in any longer. Sarah, don't ever underestimate the power of adrenaline, he says. So we put the backpack behind the bar. Four hours later. Come on, we're going to do the 100 workout. Seal explains the routine and I realize that he needs help with his math. It's really the 500 workout. We jump on the elevator and head down to the gym. There are already three people working out when we get there. While the gym is fully operational and is loaded with equipment, it's rare that more than a handful of residents are ever there working out at the same time. There's a guy with blonde hair doing what looks like a serious core workout. Seal looks at the guy and then back at me. What the fuck is Billy Idol doing here, Seal asks. That's Sting, I whisper. He lives in the building. We do 100 dumbbell bench presses two times, no rest. And I start with 30-pound weights but end with 20-pounders. Total, 200. 100 lateral pull-downs two times, 75 pounds. Total, 200. 100 shoulder presses seated. Total, 100. Like I said, that's 500, not 100. Extra credit? Two times light tricep pull-downs and two times curls. It's time to leave. We make our way out of the gym. Well, that didn't look fun, Sting says.
7 p.m. It's Saturday night, and most of the people I know are watching college football. Not us, because apparently Seal does have a friend, someone he met in the gym yesterday. They must have become close because the guy lets Seal borrow his 50-pound weight vest. Seal hands it to me. Put it on. I grab it and put one arm in at a time. I throw the vest over my shoulders and strap it on. My immediate reaction is, this is heavy. Like, really heavy. It's like having a big suitcase on your back. We do 15 sets of 10 push-ups with 30 seconds of rest between sets. Total, 150. It takes me 22 minutes. It takes Seal, 15 minutes. This is no punk, Seal says, and it's not. It's so hard that even Seal can't go straight to 10 without dropping to his knees after his sixth set. Yet, all he keeps saying is, this is great. This is not great. This is brutally hard. I found out Seal once entered a race where you could either run for 24 or 48 hours. Shocker. Seal signed up for the 48-hour one. At around the 23-hour mark, he'd run approximately 130 miles, but he'd also torn his quad. He asked the race officials if they could just clock him out at 24 hours. When he was told they couldn't do that, he said, Roger that. Asked for a roll of tape and wrapped his quad. He walked, limped, on a torn quad for the last 24 hours to finish the race and completed the entire 48 hours. When you think you're done, you're only at 40% of what your body is capable of doing. That's just the limit that we put on ourselves. Workout totals. 500 workout, bench presses, lat pulldowns, shoulder presses, and 150 push-ups. Señoras de la Limiesa. I don't need new friends. I like to keep my shit lean and tight. Seal. We have two cleaning ladies who come to the apartment twice a week. They don't speak a lick of English, and I don't speak a lick of Spanish. So I have to use props and diagrams to communicate. If I want them to vacuum, I go get a magazine and show them a picture of a vacuum. If I want them to clean the windows, I show them a photo of Windex and point to the glass. I keep a stash of Us Weekly around just for communication purposes. I'm always pointing to stuff and showing them a picture of what I need them to do. It's kind of like a combination of American Sign Language and charades. It can get challenging. But when Seal came into their world, there was no way I could explain it to them. I mean, what do I do? Show them a picture of Russell Crowe and Gladiator or Stallone and Rambo? But as I've come to learn, some things don't need to be communicated. These women were immediately obsessed with him. I mean, Seal's a nice-looking man, have I mentioned that? And he walks around without a shirt a lot. A lot. In fact, I'm starting to notice that Sarah's friends are coming over lately for no reason. I guess they want to just look at Seal. Since he's moved in, the cleaning gals seem to be spending an extra hour or two cleaning. They also seem to be spending a lot of time in his room, despite the fact the guy's spotless. His room doesn't need cleaning, ever. Military corners. You could bounce a quarter off the bed after he makes it. All his gear is stowed. I mean, the bedroom looks like it's right out of a boot camp. But the ladies are always in there when Seal's around, talking to each other in Spanish and giggling. In the other direction, Seal doesn't even acknowledge them. He's not exactly rude to them. It's more like a silent assessment, and he doesn't trust them. Yesterday, he ordered something that was FedEx to the apartment, and one of the cleaning ladies accepted the package. He freaked out. 
Not to them, but to me. It's a breach of security, he said. Breach of security? The integrity of the delivery was compromised. He went on to lecture me about my naivete when it comes to insubordination of the people who work for me. The only thing he ever said about anyone was that they should be fired. Steele didn't think anyone who worked for the Itzlers cared enough or did their job like they should. He was really mad or suspicious of everyone he came into contact with except for Sarah, Laser, and me. According to Steele, if my driver, Smith, was a minute late, it was because he didn't study the routes correctly. If there was traffic, Smith should have anticipated the accident. And looking back on it now, I'm not sure Steele was wrong. He was taught that if you have a job to do, you do it with 120% effort. I've been operating under the assumption that if someone that works for me does something 80% of the way I would do it, that's enough. Steele is teaching me that we can all do so much more. Day six, that damn finger. It's really not that complicated, Seal. New York City, 29 degrees, 0400. It's 4 a.m. I hear some banging and mumbling in the living room. Banging, mumbling, and banging, mumbling. Although I'm half asleep, I decide to check it out. When I get to the living room, Seal is on the couch holding the remote control. Well, holding is really not an appropriate description. He's slamming the remote control against the armrest of the couch as if that may turn the TV on. This motherfucker, he mumbles, is too complicated, too many buttons. It's making me fucking nuts. Seal looks like he may implode. His eyebrows are arched, and he looks like he could attack anything. Right now, he's attacking the remote, but since I'm the closest human, I'm alarmed. So, I immediately grab the remote and hit power, then switch the command to cable one. I put on ESPN and hand seal the remote. Just use the channel and volume controls for now. No need to even shut it off. I'll shut off the TV in the morning. Seal's eyebrows contort back to normal as he watches some football highlights. I go back to bed. 0600. I hear my bedroom door slowly open. There's no nice way to put this, but it's a bit unnerving because my wife is in bed next to me and I can send someone else in the room with us. I feel a tap. I half open my eyes and imagine I see a long black finger on my shoulder. I roll over. My wife is sound asleep. Plus, the finger I'm imagining doesn't look anything like her finger. I ignore the finger. I must be dreaming. Ten seconds later, I feel another tap on my shoulder. I'm hoping it's my wife, but this finger does not belong to her. The finger keeps tapping me. In the other hand is a remote. I ignore it again. Twenty seconds later, I feel hot breath whispering into my ear in a monotone voice. I guess the loud, intentional noise in the hallway trick wasn't working for him. Get up, motherfucker, Seal says. I get up, fast. Sarah remains motionless and oblivious next to me. Seal tells me we'll run another six miles in Central Park this a.m., that this is our last primer, then we start. Start? I thought we started days ago. I go into the living room and shut the TV off. Central Park's where most of our training occurs. Park Drive is a 6.1-mile loop in the heart of Manhattan. Back in the 1970s, before they routed the race through the five boroughs, the New York City Marathon was held in Central Park. The marathoners ran around the loop four times plus. I've run the course hundreds of times since I moved to Manhattan, as it serves as a perfect training ground with its rolling hills, 
few cars at this time of the morning, which probably disappoints Seal, and other runners and bikers to interact with. It's chilly today with the wind, but only until we start running. Our breath comes out in puffs of white. That's all that comes out of Seal. He doesn't make a sound. He runs like a submarine, silent, deadly. The thought reminds me of a fart joke I heard in fifth grade. We do the first three miles at a 10-minute per mile pace, then the next two at an eight-minute pace, and the final mile is seven minutes. When we get home, my son is still asleep. So is my wife. She doesn't even know there was a finger tapping me in bed earlier. The past two days when we came home from our morning runs, I've been drenched in sweat, soaked. My routine's been simple. I shower, grab a bowl of fruit, grab some bananas, then go to work. I only eat fruit until noon. That's been my thing since I read Fit for Life by Harvey Diamond in 1992. For over 25 years, just fruit till noon. Harvey's another one of the interesting people that I cold called to be my friend. His story's fascinating. Harvey was exposed to Agent Orange, perhaps the most toxic molecule ever synthesized by man, during the Vietnam War. Agent Orange has been linked to various cancers, lymphomas, and multiple chronic diseases. As far as I know, Harvey's the only American soldier who was exposed to the deadly chemical and is still alive. He credits it to a philosophy and lifestyle called natural hygiene, and he lays out the roadmap in Fit for Life. I read the book three times, and it completely changed my life. So one day, I decided to call Harvey and introduce myself. No different than Seal. I tracked down his number, picked up the phone, and got him on the line. He checked the yes box to being my friend, and we've been great friends since. He's another character in my life that my wife tolerates. Every time we talk, he ends the call with, Fruit till noon, brother. One of the main underlying philosophies in his book is that we use more energy for digestion than all other bodily functions combined. That's why we're usually tired after a big meal. That said, the average American will eat 70 tons of food in their lifetime. Imagine how hard the body has to work to process and break down all that food. The more efficiently we can digest all this food and the less stress we put on the digestive process, the more energy we will have for everything else. According to Fit for Life, fruit is the perfect food because on top of being sweet and delicious, it's super easy to digest. In fact, it's the only food that bypasses the stomach and is digested in the small intestines. It unleashes all its nutrients and goodness without using much, if any, energy, which frees up your energy for other things. As long as you eat fruit on an empty stomach, you can reap amazing benefits. According to Diamond, you don't have to look beyond the animal kingdom to see evidence of this. The strongest animals in the world thrive on a fruit and plant-based diet. Silverback gorillas, for example, are 30 times as strong as man and three times our size. Their DNA is 99% similar to that of humans, and they are our closest living relatives next to chimps. How are they so strong? Oh yeah, their diet is made up mostly of fruits and leaves. The silverback gorilla doesn't eat turkey sandwiches, chips, and McDonald's. Makes sense to me. After reading the book in 1992, I decided to try the concept out for myself. I religiously stuck to a fruit-only diet until noon every day for 10 days. Afternoon, I generally kept it pretty clean. No fried foods, no dairy, no meats, but I didn't waver from the fruit only in the a.m. 
I had an enormous amount of energy during that span and very efficient digestion. I felt so good that the 10-day trial period turned into 20-plus years of following this routine. It doesn't matter if I'm running a marathon in the morning. I still stick to this program, fruit till noon. 1 p.m. 45 minutes after I get to the office this morning, Seal arrives. I'm back sitting in front of my computer when he gets there. I ordered in a salmon platter and some veggie dumplings from Josie's. I ate them like a wrestler right after his weigh-in. It's been about an hour since I had lunch. Zico's marketing team has presented some new packaging, and we're reviewing the options. Seal sits in a chair in my office, motionless. That is, until he jumps out of the chair unprompted. Burpee test, motherfucker, he barks. I'm sorry, what? Burpee test, motherfucker. Why do I have to keep repeating myself? I just didn't know what you meant. Dude, you know what a fucking burpee is, right? He's not really asking, but telling me. Yeah, I know what a burpee is. And you know what a motherfucking test is, right? Yes, I know what a test is. Well then, motherfucker, this is a burpee test. Seal tells me he wants to time how long it takes me to do 100 burpees. It's a fitness test, he says, and make sure to emphasize these are burpees with push-ups. He explains that anything under 10 minutes is solid. Under 11 minutes is acceptable. And he finds over 13 minutes is unacceptable. In fact, if you don't go under 13 minutes, we're doing them again, he says. Well, I'm not really good at burpees, and I find doing one set of 15 to be a friggin' pain. Seal takes off his watch and presses the start button. Wait, I have to change into something. Clock's already started, bitch. I immediately drop to the floor in a plank position, do a push-up, kick my knees to my chest, and jump up into a jumping jack. One. I get to ten in 55 seconds. I'm on pace. Problem is, I'm already starting to sweat, and I'm in my work clothes. I'm in my work clothes because I'm at work. Plus, I need to look presentable for my meetings today. I don't want to get them all sweaty. So I use, or waste, however you want to look at it, the next 10 precious seconds taking my shirt off and then my shoes and socks. And finally, my pants. I'm now in my boxers in my office. 11, 12, 13, I keep going. The clock is ticking. And I'm at 50 at 5 minutes and 30 seconds. I'm slowing down, but I'm still on pace for acceptable. I can feel sweat on my face and rolling down the center of my back. The door opens but I only see the back of her head before the blonde hair quickly exits. It's Jennifer Kish, my right-hand person at the office. She's gone before I can explain. I want to yell, burpee test, motherfucker, but the door's already closed behind her. I wonder what she's thinking. I keep going. When I get to 60, I start breaking down the remaining 40 burpees into sets of 10. 10 burpees and then a 10 to 15 second rest. 11 minutes, 45 seconds. Done. I grab an old t-shirt I happen to have laying around and I wipe myself off. I'm soaked. And my thighs feel like they're broken. I throw the soaking wet t-shirt into the garbage can by my desk and put my work clothes on. Soon enough, I'm back at my computer looking at the color options on the packaging. My legs tremble and shake under my desk. Work resumes and a slight smile comes over my face as I think, burpee test, bitch. I work for nine hours straight. 2200. I walk home from work at 10 p.m. with Seal. 
It's been a long day. We've been working on Zico all day with the design people, and I'm wiped out. While we were able to be additive with the new packaging, a big part of our role is generating sizzle for the brand. Every day we ask ourselves, how do we generate buzz and excitement around our products? But generating the buzz today took a lot out of me. I just want to turn on the television. Maybe watch the fourth quarter of the Nick game and veg out. I lie down on the couch and look for the remote. Seal's been with me all day at the office, and he's seen how intense it's been. The only real time I was alone today was when I went to the bathroom. It might have been the best five minutes of my day. I'm beat, so I'm not going to say anything about working out if he doesn't. Plus, we've already run six miles and done 100 burpees. I grab the remote and flip on the television. Steele doesn't watch much TV. I feel like he just watches me watch TV. It's very uncomfortable, and it makes me not want to even watch TV. You a Nick fan, he asks. All my life, I say. You ever go to the games? I do, I say. I've had season tickets for years. I even wrote their theme song back in the day. A song? Rap song, theme song, sort of like an anthem, I say. Then sing a little, go New York, go New York, go. You ever hear of it? That's it? That's what? That's the whole song? No, that's only the chorus. There's a whole verse and then you repeat the chorus, you know? Doesn't seem that complicated. I'm not sure if it's complicated or if it's simple, but I do know that it worked, I respond. I was a 23-year-old recording artist signed to a small independent record label called Delicious Vinyl when I wrote Go New York Go in 1993. I somehow convinced the Knicks brass they needed a new theme song and that we could get Spike Lee and other celebs in a video around the song if we did it correctly. They gave me a shot. Go New York Go became the Knicks anthem and the number one most requested song on New York radio during the 1993-1994 NBA playoffs. The lyrics were licensed by Budweiser, Foot Locker, and other major brands. I felt like I had finally arrived. I was big time. Well, not really big time. The Knicks paid me $4,000 to write the song. After I paid the studio, engineer, producer, and musicians, I think I netted about $300, and a net worth of $300 isn't really big time. But to me it was. Any success I ever had in my life usually occurred when I was not chasing the money, but was doing things out of passion. And as far as music, I was never in it for the money. But it's not like I just woke up one day and said I want to write and record a hip-hop theme song for the New York Knicks. It started much earlier than that. After graduation from American University, my plan A was to get a record deal and to be on MTV. That's it. There was no plan B. There was no financial goal. I just wanted to be on MTV. Getting a record deal is one of the hardest things you can ever do. The odds of even getting a meeting with the right person are very low. And the odds of getting signed? <laughs> Those are virtually astronomical. If you don't have a powerful lawyer or know someone, then the astronomical odds become ridiculously astronomical. I didn't have either. In 1988, a show on MTV called Yo! MTV Raps debuted. The program was like the Jackie Robinson of rap TV. It broke all sorts of barriers and injected rap into mainstream culture. Still, by 1990, you could count the number of white hip-hop artists who were receiving any kind of acceptance in the larger community on one of Ice Cube's hands. The Beastie Boys were at the top of the list along with Third Base. 
Maybe it was naivete or pure determination, probably both. But despite the enormous odds facing me, I knew what I was going to do. I was going to be on Yo! MTV Raps. A few weeks after Pomp and Circumstance played at my graduation ceremony, I got a phone call from a fraternity brother who had moved to L.A. to be a production assistant on a movie called The Bonfire of the Vanities. As he got settled in California, he invited me out to L.A. to check out the movie set and the girls. I'd never been to Cali, so I hopped on a plane and headed west. At the time, there was a hot new independent label called Delicious Vinyl located off Sunset Boulevard. Delicious was an ultra-hip recording outfit with two of the hottest artists on pop radio, Tone Loke and Young MC. Loke's song Wild Thing was the number one selling single in the country, and Young's Bust a Move was blowing up the charts. If I could write my own script, this would be the perfect label for me. Fun, irreverent, successful, different. I had to meet the owners. The guy who was the head of Delicious Vinyl was named Mike Ross. In the music business, creating and distributing a song usually works like this. There's the artist who's signed by a label. Once that deal's done, either the artist has a particular producer they always work with to create and record the songs, Michael Jackson, for example, was always produced by Quincy Jones, or the label hires a producer to work with the artist. That is, of course, unless the artist does it all himself. Mike Ross was one of the rare label owners who also produced the music his label released. Along with his partner, Matt Dyke, Ross was one of the most dynamic rap producers in the business. I had read that Mike was a big fan of a Brooklyn-born rapper named Dana Dane. A big fan. As it turned out, Dana Dane recorded at Herbie Lovebug Azor's studio, the same studio I recorded at. And one night while I was at the studio, I saw an advanced copy of Dana's album lying on the mix board. I decided to borrow it while nobody was looking? Couldn't hurt. It was his second album and highly anticipated in the music community. I brought the cassette with me to L.A. Nobody outside of Dana's inner clique had even heard it yet. After only two days in L.A., I decided to cold call Mike Ross at Delicious Vinyl. Why not, I thought. If I was going to take a shot, I might as well take one from outside the arc. I literally got his office number out of the phone book and called the main line. I didn't have a game plan other than try to get a meeting with Mike. Delicious vinyl, may I help you, the receptionist said. Mike Ross, please. Sure, please hold. 45 seconds later. This is Dina, Mike Ross's assistant. Can I help you? Mike, please. Mike's not in. Who's calling? Jesse. Jesse who? Jesse. I'm a friend of Dana Dane's. Dana wanted me to drop off his new cassette for Mike while I'm in town. I'm leaving tomorrow. He said it's urgent. Mike knows about it. Please hold. I covered the receiver with my hand and whispered to my friend John, I'm on hold. Maybe it was my thick Long Island accent disconnecting with her Cali vibe, or maybe it was the universe wanting me to get in the door, but 30 seconds later, she comes back. So you're Dana Dane? Obviously, I don't look like Dana. He's African-American and I'm white. He has a gold front tooth and I don't, etc. I guess I could have cleared up the misunderstanding right then and there, but when your foot is half in the door, you don't pull it out. So without pausing, I say, yes, I'm Dana. Okay, hold on. One minute later. Dana, Mike's excited to meet you. 
Can you come in today around 2 p.m.? Yes, ma'am. I'll be there. Game on, motherfucker. At precisely 2 o'clock, I show up at the Delicious Vinyl offices. I'm 21 years old. I walk up the stairs to the second floor, where the buzzer to announce yourself is located. I push the button for entry. A very sexy receptionist voice chimes in through the speaker box. Who is it? Oh, it's Dana Dane, here to see Mike Ross, please, I respond. Ten seconds later, buzz, I'm in. Mike Ross's assistant leads me to his office and sits me down right on the chair across from Mike's big-ass executive desk. Mike will be back in five minutes, Dana, she tells me, right before she offers me some water. She closes the door behind her, and there I am, just me, sitting in Mike's big, cool, unlit office. There are gold records hanging on the walls, different album covers, photos, really cool graffiti, a patchouli candle is burning on his desk. The office is amazing. I start to read the credits on Tone Loke's platinum album hanging on the wall and check out some of the awards on Mike's desk. Then the door opens, and Mike Ross appears. He's baffled. Who are you, he said. What's up, Mike? I'm Jesse. I work with Dana. He's uh, running a little late. Late? Yeah, he's maybe like 20 minutes behind. How do you know Dana? I never met Dana. I record with him at the same studio. My producer's part of his production crew called Idolmakers, and I did a few songs for him too. You sing? No, I actually rap. You rap? With Dana? I figured I would continue to confuse him as it has worked thus far. Yeah, well, not with him directly, but I'm part of a group signed to Virgin. But Dana thinks I should do a solo thing. Virgin? Do you have any songs with you? Yeah, I do. Can I pop this cassette in while we wait? Sure. I handed Mike a copy of my three-song demo, and College Girls comes on first. Anywhere I go, a fly girl will please me. East to west, college girls are easy. He listens for 30 seconds and stops the tape. This is fucking amazing. Man, thanks, brother. I think it's a hit. Who's your lawyer? Excuse me? Who's your lawyer? He asks again. And just like that, just like that, after two years of getting doors slammed in my face, he hit me with the four magic words every artist shopping a demo wants to hear. Who is your lawyer? In fact, he asked me twice. Since I didn't have a lawyer and I didn't even know any lawyers, I told him, oh, my dad is. Your dad's an entertainment lawyer? At the time, my dad owned the plumbing supply company, but it was the first answer that popped in my head. I'm a get-your-foot-in-the-door-figured-out-later guy. So I responded with a firm, yes. Yep, my dad does all my stuff. I'm going to have my attorney contact your dad. I want to buy this song for Loke. That's incredible. If Loke did this song... Then I paused. Loke? I realized that this song was my ticket to a deal. Sure, I could have sold it to Tone Loke. Wild Thing had sold over 3 million units at the time, but this was the lead song on my demo. So I responded, actually, I really think this song is a big hit. I got to keep this one for me. It's going on my album. That makes sense. Well, would you be willing to write for Loke then? And that was the official start of my music career. Mike gave me the instrumentals for four songs he wanted me to write for Tone Loke and sent me back to my friend's apartment. Two hours later, I called him on his Nokia with lyrics for all of the songs. 
He was at a Dodgers game and could barely hear me over the din of the stadium, but he heard enough to meet me back at his office when the game was over. There, I not only signed a deal to write songs for Tone Loke, but he signed me on the spot for my own album. Dana later became a great friend and we still laugh about it. Thanks, Dana. Maybe the best part of my music career was the fact that I didn't sell that many records. As my wife likes to say, failure is just life's way of nudging you and letting you know you're off course. Yes, I was on MTV and got to tour the country, but the hockey stick curve sales trajectory wasn't there. So I decided to call an Audible and look for other opportunities in music. Writing theme songs for sports teams seemed like a great niche. I love music, love sports, and nobody else was doing it. The result was Go New York Go. I started a niche, sports music. There must be an echo in here because I keep hearing Seal say, doesn't seem that complicated. Seal's a lot of things, but he's not a music critic. Rather than debate this, out of my mouth comes, you're right, it's really not that complicated. Pretty simple, actually. Yeah, it's simple, he says. I start flipping the channels. I don't even find the Knicks game on the tube before Seal suggests we take the conversation outside and get in another workout. It's 10.45 p.m. The upside is this is the first time he's actually asking questions about me. Not that I want him to, but it makes it easier to get to know someone when there's a back and forth. As my wife likes to remind me, when I talk to you, please play tennis with me and hit the ball back. It's called communication, and it's important to a marriage. And although I'm not looking to get married to Seal, my wife has a valid point. Our workout is basically the same routine as the morning, a loop around Central Park, except tonight comes with a bonus. Every half mile, we do 25 push-ups. The other difference is that Seal wants the pace to escalate, meaning every mile has to be slightly faster than the previous mile. We start out at a nine minute per mile pace and at four minutes and 30 seconds into the run, we drop and do 25 push-ups. Then we increase to an eight minute and 50 second per mile pace and four minutes and 25 seconds into the run, we drop and do 25 push-ups. This continues all the way down to an eight minute and 10 second per mile pace for the last mile. Every time we drop to do the push-ups, blood rushes to my head and I get slightly faint. I'm breathing so hard when we do the push-ups, plus it's friggin' brick cold outside, that I'm slightly hyperventilating. Seal is knocking out the push-ups like a program robot. Up, down, up, down, up, down. I'm at around nine by the time he's done with his 25 and already standing to start running again. Every time. Workout totals, 12 miles, 6 miles escalation pace, 300 push-ups, and 100 burpees. Day 7. Mix up your runs. If it doesn't suck, we don't do it. Seal. New York City to Atlanta, 36 degrees to 75 degrees, 0530. Your runs are too predictable, Seal says as he stares at me stone-faced. Predictable? Yeah, motherfucker, predictable. It's like your legs know what's coming next. It's making shit too comfy. Your body's used to your bullshit jogging routine. Gear up and meet me in five. We're doing intervals. I throw on my gear and grab a brand new pair of New Balance running shoes. I've been wearing New Balance for 20 years. They're the only things I run in. Once the bottoms get fairly worn out, but not all the way worn out, I replace them with a new pair. 
I read that having the proper cushion on your sneakers minimizes the impact on your legs when running and therefore reduces the chance of injury. I don't know if that is true or if that was created by a sneaker company, but I bought it hook, line, and sneaker. Regardless, New Balance are part of my routine. Five minutes later, we're on our way to Central Park for a seven-mile run. We do the first mile at a 10-minute-per-mile pace to warm up. Then every quarter mile after that, we run as fast as we can. After sprinting a quarter mile, we slow down to a 10-minute-per-mile pace again. Seal pushes me so hard on the quarter miles, I can feel my pulse pounding in my neck. I can literally take my pulse by just counting the thumps exploding through my neck. At the end of the run, I'm gasping for air. But it's not my heart or lungs I'm worried about. Man, my legs are really messed up. It feels like a knife is in my calf, I complain. Like I can cramp any second. I grab my leg and walk stiff-legged, keeping my legs totally straight like Herman Munster from the Munsters. Perfect, Seal says. There's only one rule in training. If it doesn't suck, we don't do it. I probably should have broken in my new sneakers because I feel a blister forming on my right big toe. It hurts, but that pain is trumped by the pain in my calf. The blister is more like the middle child at the dinner table. It's not even part of the conversation. It's like I don't even pay it any mind, but I know it's there. It's like seals made blisters that previously would have been big deals almost seem insignificant. As a reward for my pain, I get to do 275 push-ups when we get home. To make matters worse, Seal tells me we're going to do them wet. Wet? Wet. What does wet mean in push-up land? He tells me that we don't change out of our wet, sweaty-ass clothing. We do the push-ups wet. Why are we doing wet push-ups? Because that's the way I ordered them up today. That's why. I don't give a fuck how you give them to me, but I want all 275. This guy's out of his mind. I drop down and do my first set of 10. My body heat is dropping fast as I cool off from the run. I'm starting to get very cold, like shivering cold. Every time my shirt touches my skin, it feels like a wet ice pack. I look at Seal and he's warm, lukewarm. He's just going down, up, down, up, down, up, 50, down, up, down, up, 60. Who is this motherfucker and where'd he come from? I don't know much about Seal's childhood, but I do know that he always wanted to be in the Special Forces. The other day, while we were sitting around, he mentioned that he used to play Rambo as a kid. Not the way I would play Rambo with a Toys R Us Rambo doll, but like real Rambo. When Seal was 15 or 16, he would go out into the deep woods alone around 11 p.m. and pretend he was picking off the enemy. He said he would stay out there for hours at a time training. I found the story to be very interesting and scary. I don't know when it dawned on me, but at some point during the story, I realized I had a Navy SEAL living in my house now, every second of the day. This guy's using my toilet, he's in my fridge, he's answering my door, he's sleeping in the room next to my kids. He's everywhere. I mean, I knew I had a Navy SEAL living with me in theory because I invited him, but in practice, it was slightly disconcerting. In fact, I'm starting to realize I know very little about SEAL. Actually, I don't really know anything about him. It's sort of like inviting your taxi driver home to live with you and your family and having him drive you everywhere, but you know nothing about the taxi driver. So now I'm wondering, what if I say something he doesn't like politically? What if I say something that pisses him off? 
What if I accidentally offend him and he gets even angrier than he already is? I mean, I did a full background check before I hired my first assistant, and she came from a nice family I already knew. Seal's trained to eliminate the enemy if ordered, and he's now living with me, and I've done nothing. Luckily, I keep those thoughts in my head. I know I'm being a little crazy, and there's probably nothing to worry about. I mean, really, but honestly, what the fuck was I thinking? I don't even like strangers being in my house for a couple of minutes. I hate it when the cable guy comes. And yet now, I have a trained hunting machine in my mitts. And not only in my mitts, but in my wife's and son's mitts. He's right in the middle of our mitts. I wish there was someone I could talk to about this. I'd tell my wife, but I can't, because I'll scare her. And then she'd be like, you have to get rid of him. But I know there's no way I can get rid of him. How can you get rid of someone like him? Oh, excuse me, Mr. Seal, this isn't working out, so can you get your gear and beat it? Right. So instead, I do the exact opposite, and I say stuff to my wife like, you know, Seal's the nicest guy, or it's really amazing how someone who looks so indestructible and scary can be so cool. I have to oversell him, but I think Sarah's starting to see through my ruse. Thank God, Seal is the perfect house guest. He's quiet clean, and well-mannered. And thank God he and Sarah are getting along so well. Seven hours later. We show up at Teterboro Airport in New Jersey at 1.30 p.m. for our flight to Atlanta, where Spanx, my wife's company, is headquartered. Today we're flying on a marquee jet Citation 10. I love the Citation 10 because it's super fast, but also quite roomy. It can knock off significant travel time on a flight like this. In the late 1990s, my partner at the time, Kenny Dichter, and I were guests on a private plane. From the minute we stepped on board, we were in love with the convenience of flying private. Comfort and ease at its very best. When we got home from the trip, we never wanted to go back on a commercial plane again. We assumed if we wanted to fly this way, there must be a heck of a lot of others who would want to as well. There has to be a market for this, we thought. At the time, there were only three ways to fly private. One was to buy your own plane, which was impossible unless you were Mark Cuban or the Sultan of Brunei. Two, buy a fraction of a jet, which comes with a very expensive five-year commitment. Or three, charter a plane, a process that has a lot of moving parts and inconsistencies. None of those options was very appealing to us, nor would they be appealing to any potential clients if we tried to start a company, which we'd begun to think about. We wanted to create something more realistic for a much larger demographic, people who wanted to fly privately a few times a year. So we came up with this idea. What if you could buy 25 hours a year of private flight time? It would be almost like a Starbucks card or a prepaid gift card to fly. At the time, NetJets was the 800-pound gorilla of fractional jet ownership. Warren Buffett owned the company. The CEO was a guy named Rich Santulli, and the president was a guy named Jim Jacobs. When we got the idea for Marquee Jet, we knew the first call we should make was to Jacobs. A couple of years before, during the time I was still in music and connected to a lot of artists, I got in a call from a friend who wanted a favor. I don't really remember why. Maybe he was doing a business deal, or maybe he just wanted to do something nice for someone— but he asked me if I could get tickets to a Christina Aguilera concert in Connecticut for a friend's daughter. My friend knew that I had a relationship with Christina's manager. 
So I called up the manager, and not only did I get the guy and his daughter great seats, but I worked out having his daughter on stage as a backup singer if she wanted to. They would shut her mic off. I mean, for a teenager, this was a life-altering moment. The next day, the guy who went to the concert with his daughter called me up and said, I don't know who you are, but I want to let you know that I owe you in a big way. If there's anything I can ever do, that guy was Jim Jacobs. So now it's a year later, and there is something Jim Jacobs can do for me. I call him. I think it took him five minutes just to figure out who I was. Who's this again, Jim asked? Uh, Jesse, Christina Aguilera, not only backstage, but on stage, I said. Jeannie in a bottle, Itzler. You said if I ever need anything to call you? It was the same shit as when I got my record deal. I confused him, just throwing words at him. It was Harry Truman who said, if you can't convince them, confuse them. It's a tactic I still use instinctively. It buys time. Oh, yeah, he said. Can I steal 30 minutes of your time, I said. We set up a meeting with Jim Jacobs and Rich Santulli a week later. Kenny and I drove to their Woodbury, New Jersey headquarters with our PowerPoint deck and presentation ready to start our new private jet timeshare company. We weren't exactly sure at the time what the company was, but we knew we had a great idea. We walked into the meeting, and Jim and Rich were already seated in their conference room. They were suited up, and I mean Italy suited up. About 20 minutes into the meeting, Rich Santulli said, No way am I letting two 29-year-olds use my fleet of 500 planes. Good to meet you guys. Then he threw us out of his office. I guess we need a new idea, I said to Kenny after we walked out of there. And that's when my phone rang. It was Jim. When I started apologizing to him for wasting his time, he cut me off. That was amazing. Great meeting, he said. Great meeting? Yeah. Rich doesn't give 20 minutes to anyone. I think it went great. The idea is brilliant. I think there's something here. Why don't you tweak your presentation a little bit and come back? Let me see if I can get you another meeting. By this time, I knew a lot of athletes and entertainers, and Kenny knew a lot of Wall Street guys we both felt would be interested in buying 25 hours of private jet time if it was available. We realized we needed a different pitch. We needed to show Santulli and Jacobs, not tell them. So we put together our own focus group. A week later, we were back in Santulli's office with Carl Banks from the New York Giants, the guys from Run DMC, a top sports agent for NBA players, and a successful Wall Street guy who ran his own firm and wanted to use jets occasionally for entertaining. One by one, our focus group participants explained to Rich how they would never buy a NetJets fraction, but they would spend $100,000 to $200,000 on a jet card every year. They discussed how they needed the flexibility of being able to choose their flights year by year. And they talked about why they or their clients would buy a card. And how if things went well, they would eventually graduate into the fractional program NetJets already offered. Although Santuli didn't take the bait right away, we could tell he was nibbling. It would take three or four more meetings to set the hook. But eventually, Santuli told us, if we were willing to put up our own money to try this idea we were calling Marquee Jet, then he'd give us a shot at it. We did, and it worked. Big time. Sarah and Seal don't really say much to each other on the plane. It's only been seven days since he moved in, and they haven't had much quality time with each other. But there's a mutual respect and friendship forming. Sarah acts 100% normal around Seal, 
as if it's not strange at all having a Navy SEAL shadowing me 24-7 all of a sudden. But her disposition being normal is not abnormal to me, as sometimes my wife's in her own world. I mean, she's brilliant, but also has her blonde moments. I like to say she's 50% Lucille Ball and 50% Einstein. For example, she built a highly successful global brand with just $5,000 of savings, but asked me what day of the week it is often and means it. That said, as long as she gets seven hours of sleep and has her Starbucks in hand when the sun comes up, life is good. My wife's name is Sarah Blakely, and she's the founder and inventor of Spanx. If you're a woman, you probably know what Spanx are. If you're a guy, Sarah's like the Michael Jordan of women's underwear. When I first started dating her, I didn't get it. But now, after witnessing the love for her brand firsthand, I totally do. Women go crazy for her products. Strangers are always hugging Sarah and flashing her their undergarments in public. It's wild. What I love most about Sarah's story is that, growing up, she always wanted to be a lawyer, but she failed the LSATs. Twice. So instead of heading to law school after college, she decided to go to Disney World to try out to be goofy. Naturally. When she arrived, she was too short for the job, minimum height is 5'8 and Sarah is 5'6, so they asked her to be a chipmunk instead. After a short stint at Disney, Sarah accepted a job with an office supply company called Danka and sold fax machines door-to-door for seven years. One night before heading out for a party, she didn't like the way her own butt looked in white pants. She took a pair of scissors and cut off the feet of her pantyhose to avoid panty lines and have a smoother look under her clothes. Voila, her invention was born. Over the course of the next two years, Sarah worked on developing her new idea after work, at night, and on the weekends. She took $5,000 she had set aside in savings to start the company. Since she had never taken a business course in her life, she operated on instinct and guts. Instead of using her entire budget on legal fees to patent her product, Sarah bought a book on patents and wrote her own patent. She used bold colors on her packaging to make her products pop off the shelves. She spent 12 hours a day in department stores promoting her products. It worked. The name Spanx came to Sarah while sitting in traffic in Atlanta. She knew that Kodak and Coca-Cola were two of the most recognized brands in the world and that both names shared a strong K sound. She figured it must be good luck. She changed the KS to an X in the last minute because she had read that made-up words are easier to trademark than real words. Sarah trademarked the company online for $150 at www.uspto.com. Today, Spanx has over 150 products, hundreds of employees, and is sold worldwide. Our newly seal-infused family touches down in Atlanta, and we start to gather our things. Needless to say, we spend a lot of time in Atlanta because Spanx is headquartered here. But I'm not ready to give up on New York just yet. The amount of time we're spending here is also increasing, so we're renovating a new house. It's exactly two miles from our current house in Atlanta. Sarah wants to check on the progress of construction. Seal tells me we'll run there and back as we pull into the driveway. Sarah teases she will drive there and she will drive back. We quickly change and head out on our run to the house to meet Sarah. It's a nice leisurely run along shaded streets lined with beautiful homes and huge trees. We're not really pounding it, and I'm thinking about how pleasant everything it is today. Then, 
Just about a mile into our run, I hear something. It sounds like the crack of a huge thunderbolt. I can't pinpoint where the sound is coming from or what it is, but it sounds dangerous and close. In that instant, I turn and look at Seal. But his arms are stretched out and he's heading toward me. He looks like an eagle. There's a woman who happens to be walking her dog on the sidewalk about five feet away. Now, Seal has both of us in his wingspan and is practically lifting us off the ground as he pushes us. It's then I see a huge branch fall 25 feet from a tree directly above us. It hits the ground with a massive thud and explodes. The thing is about 18 inches in diameter and bursts into small pieces when it hits the cement. It would have killed us. Let's go. Keep pace, Seal says and continues on. The entire rest of the run, I'm in complete awe. It was almost as if he knew the branch would fall. How did he identify what was going on so quickly, and how did he know where the branch was coming from? This was not the type of shit you learn in a manual. When we get to the new house, I'm still half in shock. How was your run, Sarah asks. I look at Seal, expecting him to say something about the branch. Instead, he says, good, your husband's improving. Good? He doesn't mention the branch? It was like branches falling and almost hitting him in the head is a regular thing. No biggie. Not even worth a mention. 2045. Sarah's watching Oprah repeats, and I'm in my go-to-sleep clothes. Seal appears in my room to check up on me. How your legs feel, he asks. Terrible. They're sore and tight. Cool. Put your shorts and sneakers on. No, I say. Oh, yes, indeed. It's our third run of the day. I've previously done some two-a-days while training for long races or to try to get in fast shape, but three-a-days is new territory, especially at this intensity, and especially at my age, and really especially at 8.45 p.m. at night. One and a half miles into our six-mile run, Seal talks for the first time. You okay? No, I don't feel well, I say as I keep pace. Fuck yeah, he celebrates. Now you're seeing what it's like to train, Jesse. I hope you enjoy this shit. He begins to laugh, which soon becomes an all-out cackle. You look like a pile of split fuck, he says. When we return, Sarah's still watching Oprah. It's like we never even left. Workout totals, 17 miles and 275 push-ups in the morning. Day 8. No peeing allowed. This isn't piss time, it's run time. Seal. Atlanta to New York City, 34 degrees to 18 degrees, 0800. After a super early flight from Atlanta, we land back in Teterboro. The flight time to Teterboro is only about one hour and 40 minutes. Since we live relatively close to the airport in Atlanta, the door-to-door travel time is close to two hours. Not a bad commute. 30 minutes later. Steele and I put on our gear to run six miles outside. Maybe it's from the flight, or maybe I'm just not drinking enough, but I feel a little dehydrated before the run. This is confirmed by the fact my urine is almost brown. So before heading out, I drink two full glasses of water, then we're off. About one mile into the run, I have to pee so bad it hurts. If I could cross my legs, I would. I asked Seal if we can pull over. Seal, man, I gotta pee. Bad. Now? In the middle of the fucking run? On my time? Why don't you plan your piss before the run? What the fuck do you think you're doing pissing now when this is run time? This isn't piss time. Seal is genuinely mad. 
I offended him by having to urinate on our run. So, after his 30-second rant on the subject, I decide that I no longer have to piss anymore. I hold it in. For the next five miles of the run, all I'm thinking about is not peeing. When we complete the run, I ask Seal politely if I can urinate. It's your time now. Do whatever the fuck you want. One hour later. We're at the breakfast table, one big happy family. Sarah feeds laser applesauce, I'm reading the sports section of the New York Post devouring some more bananas, and the morning TV show is on in the background. Seal slides a box of fancy granola off to the side. Seal isn't big on rations from Whole Foods. He shakes his head when Sarah offers him a bowlful. I noticed yesterday I haven't seen Seal eating at all. I mean, as in nothing since he's been here. That's seven days and three meals a day, and I haven't seen him eat a single bite. But it's Sarah who asks, Seal, are you on a diet? Nah, I just like to go to sleep hungry, so I wake up hungry. Life's all about staying out of your comfort zone. And what's the reasoning behind that? My wife is very inquisitive, but not in a pushy way. She loves to learn and hear every detail when she's curious about something. And I can say with confidence that she likes to talk. Her favorite thing is having a long meal and talking about the meaning of life. Seal is polite, but you couldn't build a dinner party around him. He looks like he's going to pull a muscle trying to converse. After about 20 questions from Sarah, ranging from his upbringing to what should she make for dinner tonight, I decide to cut Seal a break and change the topic by making a suggestion. So what do you guys think about heading up to Connecticut to the lake house for the Christmas holiday? Sounds good, Seal says. I want to check your security up there anyway. Security, Sarah says? We don't need security. It's a private community. A private community? So is the White House, he answers. The house is on Candlewood Lake in Danbury, Connecticut. Candlewood is the largest lake in Connecticut, and it's a great vacation spot. We mostly go up there as a summer retreat, but we also like to do a trip around Christmas as well. The house is in a gated community of 100 homes. Lawns are perfectly manicured. Houses are superbly well-kept. And if there's one piece of litter on the streets, it'd be considered dirty. Needless to say, crime is not an issue. Who checked it last, Seal asks. My wife looks at me and shrugs. That's it, Seal says, tossing his cloth napkin on the table. I'm going to take a look. Seal has a mission. He finds a clipboard I didn't even know we own and grabs a pen. I have a few meetings in the office, so I can't go along. I call Smith, my driver, and ask if he minds taking Seal up to Connecticut for the night. We're scheduled to have a plumber come to the lake house the next day, so it's perfect. What time, Smith asks. Seal is standing there with a clipboard looking at me. Uh, I think he's ready to go now, I say. Tell him I'll be there in three minutes, Smith says. I met Smith through Jam Master J of Run DMC. I knew Jay from the mid-1990s. After I wrote Go New York Go for the Knicks, I co-founded a company called Alphabet City. Alphabet City was a vehicle for me to sell more theme songs to teams. I was at a trade show and I saw Jay across the way from our booth. I decided to go over and introduce myself. Jay was my Ringo star, Not the front guy of the band, but the guy that held it all together. He was the guy I looked up to in the music business. We hit it off from minute one. A month after meeting, Jay called me up. He'd been working out of an office at Def Jam Records and wanted to relocate. We had created one big war room at Alphabet City, 
and I told him he could have a desk next to mine. At the time, he had just started JMJ Records and was producing a number of artists, including Onyx of Slam fame. Jam Master Jay had one secretary slash manager and two interns who also worked out of our office. One of the interns was a young rapper from Queens named Kaysan, and the other was a rapper slash boxer from Queens named Curtis. I loved Kaysan's music and signed them to my own private label. I didn't see the same star power in Curtis, but he helped me with a bunch of sports songs. Well, shortly after interning for us, Curtis Jackson, calling himself 50 Cent, went on his own and signed with Eminem. 50 Cent became one of the top-selling artists of the decade. Big miss on my part. Smith was Jay's friend, and that's how I got to know him. Smith was always at Jay's office and ultimately ended up working for Jay. Smith isn't a tough-looking guy, but you can tell he's tough. He's someone you'd let win an argument because you're afraid he'd fight you. But his exterior bellies his interior. He's a gentle soul at heart. One of the first things you learn about Smith is that he's one of those guys who's always just missed. If Smith bought a Mega Millions lottery ticket today, his numbers would come in tomorrow. He's always one inch away from greatness. Smith was like the fourth member of Run DMC no one knew about. In the early 1980s, the group wanted him to be the original DJ, but he was dating a girl in Texas and didn't want to commit to the group. So instead of the meteoric fame his friends enjoyed, he ended up doing sound checks and whatever else the group needed. Plus, he broke up with the girl. To find out how long Smith has been just missing, you have to go all the way back to his days in junior high. His full name is Darnell Smith, which apparently didn't single him out because there was another Darnell Smith in his class. On the playground one day in eighth grade, the two Darnell Smiths decided to play rock, paper, scissors to see who would be called Darnell and who would be called Smith. And Smith just barely missed with the throw of a rock only trumped by paper. He's been known as Smith ever since. Through Jay, Smith became a close friend. After a while, our friendship felt like any of the friendships I had with the guys I grew up with, except Smith was much tougher than the guys I grew up with. After Jay was murdered by an unknown assailant in his music studio in Queens in 2002, Smith needed a job. I ran into him a couple of months after the funeral and asked him if he had a driver's license. He held up a Metro card. Does this count, he said? He was only kidding. He had a license, so I asked him if he wanted to drive for me. What would it entail, he asked. Mostly, it entails driving for me. He's been working for me for 10 years now, but he's more than just an employee. He's part of my family. He's someone I can trust and count on. Smith drives Seal up to the house in Connecticut. They're both going to spend the night and meet with the plumber the next morning. The plumber's going to give me an estimate on replacing some damaged tile in the steam room. I call them before I go to bed just to make sure everything's okay. All cool, says Smith. But apparently, it doesn't stay all cool. In the middle of the night, Smith decides he's hungry and tiptoes downstairs to the kitchen because he doesn't want to wake Seal, who's in one of the bedrooms. Smith doesn't even want to turn on the light, so he makes his way from the bottom of the staircase to the kitchen using his cell phone for light until he manages to find the handle of the refrigerator, which he pulls open to give more light. He walks over to the counter and grabs a bag of cookies. What Smith didn't know was that we have a motion detector we turn on when we're not using the house. It goes on automatically at night. Maybe this scored some points with Seal when he expected the house security. 
So when Smith pops the first cookie into his mouth, the alarm is triggered and sends off this ear-splitting sound. Now, Smith knows there's no intruder in the house because he's triggered the alarm. But Smith also knows that Seal doesn't know what Smith knows. Smith might have a bit of intruder experience in his repertoire, but he has absolutely none when it comes to dealing with a pissed-off Navy SEAL who might think he's an intruder. Smith drops to the ground and crawls underneath the kitchen table and begins to scream, SEAL! SEAL! It's me! It's Smith! It's me, Smith! When the alarm company notified me, I called SEAL. He told me he found Smith trembling underneath the kitchen table, kneeling in a pool of spilled milk, cookie crumbs all over his face. The next day, SEAL drives back to New York and sits me down in our conference room with a report of his inspection. He looks even more serious than when he's about to tell me what workout or run we're going to do. He's prepared. Man, this is fucked up. You guys are fucked up there. I'm trying not to laugh. We're on a beautiful, tranquil lake. Even the deer feel safe up there. The northeast windows are warped. The perimeter is exposed. Too many entry points. Too much glass. I try to take a look at his report. This is a fucking disaster zone, he says. For real? Man, I couldn't live in this place. No fucking way. I can't even comprehend how you and Sarah live there. This may be the most animated I've ever even seen, Seal. Wow. Well, what do you suggest we do? We need to swap out all the doors immediately. Lock down all the non-primary windows and bulletproof the glass. Bulletproof the glass? Yup, bulletproof the glass. Is that really necessary? It's a lake house in the middle of nowhere. Critical. I'm going to contact my boy and price that sucker out. That evening, Steele is waiting inside the doorway when I get home. He's holding a file in his right hand. His muscles are tense. His expression is so stern it's like his face is cut from rock. He doesn't say hello. He gets right into it. We have two options as I see it, he says in a deadly whisper. Okay. We can replace all the lower and mid-level windows for $450,000 or we can say fuck it and do the whole house for $785,000, which personally, I think is a no-brainer. $785,000? Yup, but man, look, Rambo can be standing outside with an M16 and you can stick your middle finger up at him and say, fuck you, Rambo, and he won't be able to get in. This is military-grade shit. It works. Unless Rambo brings a bazooka, you can sleep knowing your shit's on lockdown. Sarah comes home, and I sit her down to discuss our options. Sweetie, Seal gave me a quote on the security system for the lake house. Great, honey, she says as Laser runs into her arms. He suggests we replace all our windows with bulletproof glass. Okay, love, she smiles, combing her fingers through our son's hair. It's $785,000. My wife says nothing. Thoughts? I ask with a manufactured smile. Well, let me ask you this, sweetie. When's the last time you saw someone walking around Candlewood Lake with an M16? She is a point. Love, can you just ask Seal to put fire extinguishers in all the rooms and teach me how to set the alarm, Sarah smiles? Workout totals, six miles. Google me, motherfucker. I don't like motherfucking freeloaders. You better work hard for your shit or we aren't going to get along very well. Seal. Next day. I get a call from the plumber who went in to check the steam room tiles at the Connecticut Lake House. 
the conversation went something like this. Hello, Mr. Ritzler? Yes. Please tell that man I did not Google you and that I would have quoted you the same price if you lived in the South Bronx. Excuse me? I don't want any trouble, but I do want you to know I've contacted my lawyer. What? I'll take 30% off. I don't even know what you're talking about. Okay, 40%. Damn it. Do you mind if I make a living? I have a family too. Uh, was all I could manage before he hung up. It turns out Seal had taken exception to the price the plumber quoted for the work and accused the man of going on the internet, determining our net worth and the location of our primary residence at 15 Central Park West, and then trying to gouge us based on that information. The way Seal expressed his displeasure at the plumber was to pound his fist on the tile until it began to crack while yelling, You Googled them! You Googled them! Well, Google me, motherfucker! I don't want any trouble, the plumber said on the phone. Please, I beg you. Day 9. Oxygen Deprivation. Train for the Unexpected. Seal. New York City, 23 degrees, 0600. It's only been a little over a week, nine days to be exact, but it feels like Seal's been living with me for 15 years. It's not like we're exchanging friendship bracelets, though I do feel I understand them a bit better. He's still spending a lot of time in his room at night, but he feels a little bit more integrated into our daily lives. Today I woke up sore, or maybe stiff is a more accurate description. I've never been one for stretching out, and I can honestly say I've never formally stretched in all my years of running. Not pre-run, not post-run. It's not that I'm against it, it's just not my thing. But today, I'm going to need to figure something out. I'm in this stiff-like lock mode and my body can't function normally. I reach for the beeping alarm clock and my arm can't move from the 90-degree angle. It's stuck in an imaginary sling. To get up, I have to clasp my hands under my legs and hurl them both out of bed. I basically have to generate enough momentum to swing my legs over the side of the bed and onto the floor. They're that stiff. Help! As I get to an upright position, I bend down and try to touch my hands to the floor. I barely get past my knees. It makes me realize that Seal does not do any stretching either. When we do our workouts, we just start. There's no pregame before the runs and there's no cooldowns after. Eventually, I make it out of my bedroom and see Seal in the living room writing something down in his tiny workout log. Seal, are we going to do any stretching during this whole ordeal, I ask? First, his eyebrows arch. Then instantly, his expression turns to a scowl. Seal takes two steps closer to me and gets in real close. I can feel and hear his nostrils breathing. I think I insulted his expertise. What do you want, a fucking leotard? Man, we start, and then, motherfucker, we finish. That's what we do up here, he says. Okay, then. So at 0600 today, we head out to Central Park for another run. No stretching, no preparation. My warm-up is putting on my warm clothing. It takes me a solid three miles to get going, but surprisingly, once we find our pace and break a sweat, my legs really loosen up. In fact, I go from feeling like a stick figure to someone performing in Cirque du Soleil. Okay, maybe that's a bit of an exaggeration, but I feel good. Real good. Odd. I mention it to Seal as we run, and he just replies, Jesse, I really don't give a fuck. As we come close to the end of the run, Seal finds a tree with a long branch hanging straight out. We stop. Seal jumps up and knocks out 25 pull-ups. No kipping. 
no using his legs for momentum, just 25 perfect all-American pull-ups. He instructs me to do 10. Even if you have to stop, do all 10. I'm soaking wet and sweat after our six-mile run. I do six nonstop pull-ups and then drop to the ground. Back up for the last four. We return home. I make a hot bath in my bathroom. As the warm water fills the tub, I dump an entire box of Epsom salts into the water and mix it around with my hand. I have no idea if this product works, but it's been said to help muscle pain. The box says to add two scoops for every so-and-so gallon of water, but I'm so stiff again now that there will be no measuring. I pour the entire box in. I strip down and climb in slowly to get used to the heat. I grab a magazine, kick my feet up on top of the tub, and relax. It feels good to be working out so hard, but I'm also starting to feel and see hints of my body breaking down. It's much harder to get out of bed in the morning, although I do appreciate my bed more, especially when I see that wooden chair. But I know I can do this. Four hours later. I have a meeting in my conference room. We have an idea for a new business we're calling Sheets, and we're going through some early-stage strategy. Sheets are small, dissolvable strips that you place on your tongue, think Listerine strip, that are loaded with caffeine, B12, and other vitamins and nutrients. The hope is that this product could one day compete with, or even replace, 5-hour energy or other on-the-go energy products. The product has unique benefits in its fast delivery system of caffeine and its portable packaging. Seal is in the meeting. Well, Seal is sitting in the meeting, but I wouldn't say he's active. He's listening, but I can tell something is bothering him. He's looking at me like he's pissed off. When the group decides to take a 10-minute break to check emails, Seal asks if he can chat with me for a second. 30 seconds later, we're alone in my office. This morning was incomplete. I got shortchanged, he says. Excuse me? We ran. We did push-ups. We did pull-ups, but we didn't get our sit-ups in. It was an incomplete session. But I did everything you asked me to do, I say. Well, now I'm telling you that our shit was incomplete and is fucking me up. So we're going to do them now. Now? I'm in the middle of a big meeting. No, you're not. You're in the middle of a break. Seal tells me to sit my ass on the floor, and then he steps on my feet. Lie all the way down, he says. Then he tells me to sit up and touch my knees. I do that a hundred times. After about 35, I have to lie flat on the floor after every five sit-ups to get my energy and strength through the next five. When we are done, I'm sweating profusely. At that exact moment, Kish comes into my office and tells me we're resuming the meeting. Seal and I head back to the conference room. Everyone staring at me as sweat pours off my forehead like a faucet that's been left on. Seal looks at the group and can clearly sense the tension. Jesse had some unfinished work, Seal says. He's ready now. The meeting resumes. 1800, 6 p.m., dinner. 2000, 8 p.m., shower. 2200, 10 p.m. I hear a noise coming from Seal's room like he's landing a helicopter in there. I knock gently on the door. Nothing. I knock a little louder. Nothing. I'm pounding on the door. What? Seal yells. He opens the door and there's a camp tent on the floor. Not folded or packed away, but set up like he's going to build a campfire and roast marshmallows in the middle of my Manhattan apartment. The tent is hooked up to some type of generator with a hose. The generator's pumping full tilt. It's loud. 
Uh, what you doing? I casually ask. Huh? What are you doing? Getting ready for bed, he says. Uh, okay, what's that? What? I point to the tent. That's a tent. Oh, it's a tent, I say. Yup. I know it's a fucking tent, but why? Because I'm going to sleep in it tonight. You're going to sleep in a tent in a bedroom on Central Park West? Yeah. Can I ask why? Oxygen deprivation. Huh? This tent deprives you of oxygen. Seal zips himself in and says, I'm training too, dude. Kill the lights. I later learn it's called an altitude simulation tent. And when the generator is hooked up, it sucks the O2 out of the tent and helps the body produce more red blood cells. It makes your cardio system work like you're sleeping on top of Mount Everest. I'd have to bet I'm the only guy on the Upper West Side of New York City with an inflatable raft, an oxygen deprivation tank, a tent, and a seal in his apartment. I suck in the cold New York air coming into my apartment off Central Park. It feels great. As I fall asleep, I think about the lack of oxygen in Seal's tent and again think to myself, I'm such a pussy. Workout totals, 6 miles, 10 pull-ups, 100 sit-ups. Day 10, the honor code. If you want to be pushed to your limits, you have to train to your limits. Seal. New York City, 21 degrees, 0500. Sarah is sound asleep. My son, Laser, is sound asleep. Most of the continental United States is asleep. Seal is not asleep. Seal is in the den. Seal is dressed. Same t-shirt, same shorts. He looks like he's been up for hours, fresh, unfazed, wide awake and giddy. Me? <laughs> I look like I just got off the red eye, tired, worn, and pissed that I'm up. Seal looks like he has nothing else to do but this. Me? I have a ton of shit on my mind with Zico and making sure Coke is happy with our work to date. I'm concerned about the new Sheets product. I'm preoccupied. He is not occupied. You ready? Seal says. Go fuck yourself, I reply. It's 5 o'clock a.m. It's way too early. I hate this. There's generally a moment in every endeavor I undertake, be it business, love, or fitness, when I say to myself, what the hell was I thinking? I'm just now experiencing that moment. Sleeping in a chair, bleeding nuts, and almost getting sued by a plumber was not what I was expecting. Sure, I pictured grueling workouts, sweat pouring off my face, and challenging my limits when I hired SEAL, but all this? I know my friends think I'm insane right now, but they've seen me do some crazy stuff before. But this has to be at the top of the list. My whole path has been non-traditional. Anytime when you live a little outside of the norm, people look at you, A, with some admiration, and B, like you're crazy. I never cared about that. I still don't. I have a complete stranger living in my apartment. I'm getting up super early and running every day when it's freezing. I think some people wish they could do it, but they never would. The will to keep doing this and the will to put myself through this is what people think is crazy. And I'm paying for this, literally and metaphorically. Maybe I am crazy. I know it's normal to have second thoughts about some of my decisions, but what about third, fourth, and fifth thoughts? It's pitch dark and 21 degrees out, for God's sake. Maybe I'll just wrap it up, I think. Pay him for the month and wish him happy trails. Then I remember the one condition I agreed to when I hired him. Do anything he asks. Seal built his career around honor, 
At a minimum, I have to honor my commitment to him. I go change into my workout clothes. 0515. This is our push-up routine. Do one push-up, then stand up and wait 15 seconds. Then go down and do two push-ups and wait 15 seconds. And so on until we get up to 10 push-ups. And then we start taking 30-second breaks. For push-ups 16, 17, and 18, Steele allows us to take 45 seconds between sets. What a guy. I do sets of push-ups 1 to 18 for a total of 171, followed by 30 pull-ups, no time limit, as long as it takes to knock out 30 even if I drop from the bar. Then we go and run quarter-mile intervals. We run the quarter-miles at a fast pace. Then we walk one minute. We repeat this for two miles. Quarter-mile sprint, one-minute walk. Seal says he wants to get me up to 100 miles of running a week. What? Even when I trained for marathons, my highest weekly mileage per week was 40 miles. 100 miles of running a week sounds like that could be dangerous. That feels like shin splint territory. Meanwhile, I'm so sore from all the push-ups, I can't even wash my hair. Seal doesn't care, nor is he very concerned. If you want to be pushed to your limits, you have to train to your limits. If you get hurt, you'll recover. What the fuck is the problem? Three hours later. Seal calls me into his room for a sidebar. He tells me he has to go away for three days. I guess he really is the surpriseor. He's doing a 75-mile race and traveling for business. I don't ask any questions. Sometimes at night, he makes calls, but I have no idea to whom or for what. I occasionally hear him talking on the phone in his room behind a closed door in a low whisper. It's not like I'm spying on him or anything, but I have to walk by his room to get to Laser's room. I've never overheard anything he said on the phone, but it does make me wonder. Keep up the program while I'm gone, he says. Do six-mile runs in the morning and three at night, and don't forget to hit the push-ups. Make sure you get 200 in every day. I'm going off the grid. Do this shit on the honor code. Roger that. I can't help but speculate where Seal's going. Yes, he runs races, Yes, he does Iron Man, so he might be doing something like that. But he also could be going on a secret mission. Who knows? My mind is racing with ideas. Workout totals. Two-mile interval run, 171 push-ups, 30 pull-ups. Date night? I'm not into sit-down dinners and fancy shit like that. I'm into fueling up and being on my way. Seal. With Seal gone for three days, Sarah plans a lovely dinner for just the two of us. I mean, I have some input too, but Sarah wants to cook, and she's terrific. It's to be a time for us to catch up on any topic we see fit. Nothing is off limits, and share some quality alone time, as my wife calls it. I'm all in. I'd taken for granted the sacrifice Sarah had made. She agreed to let someone who's basically a stranger live with us. And although she grew fond of Seal, we had zero alone time. At 3 o'clock p.m., she calls me at work to tell me she's leaving for Whole Foods with a list of items for our date. She's making homemade veggie burgers, pasta, a salad, steamed spinach, and baked potatoes, my favorites. 6.30 sharp. Be home at 6.30 sharp, she says. Sarah has a tendency to repeat words and sentences if they are really important. So, I leave my office at 6 p.m. My apartment is only a 20-minute walk from my office. I make it with six minutes to spare. I peek into the kitchen. Flour, boiling water, veggies, game on. 
This looks great, honey. Can I help? Please set the table and get water for us both, she says with a smile. Dinner will be ready in four minutes. Sarah pauses for a moment. Four minutes. In the dining room, I grab forks, spoons, knives, and two plates. I place the silverware on the side of the plates in no special order. I can't find napkins, and I don't want to bother Sarah. There's a powder room right off the dining room. I unroll about three feet of toilet paper, tear it in two, and fold each section. Now we have napkins. I pull out another three feet in case we need extra. I put two of the napkins under the silverware and the rest in the middle of the table. Table is set, I yell. Great, she responds. Come and get it. I walk into the kitchen with both of our plates. This looks fantastic, I say, admiring the wonderful meal my wife has cooked. I kiss her on the forehead. Please, honey, you first, I say, handing her a plate. Sarah carefully constructs her meal with salad, a veggie burger, and some steamed spinach. Her plate looks like it's from a photo spread in Bon Appetit magazine. Honey, I'll meet you in the dining room, she says as she heads out of the kitchen. I'm so excited, she adds. As she leaves, I start filling up my plate, nibbling away during the process. One scoop of veggies on the plate, one scoop directly into my mouth. I'm eager to sit down and eat, but food for me is fuel. I inhale. I don't eat. I think sitting through dinner is an inefficient use of time. I like to stand when I eat. Why not take in the calories fast and be on our way? With that mentality baked in my DNA, I start ingesting the food on my plate as I walk into the dining room. First a fingerful, then a handful, then a full-on attack. I'm starving from all the working out. I get to the dinner table. Sweetie, where's your food? Sarah asks. I look down at my empty plate. Did you eat all your food already? I shake my head no. I can't say no because my mouth is filled with veggie burger. Now I don't know what to do. I'm done. To me, we had a great date, no? So I sit and watch my wife eat. There's not a lot of no-limit discussion at the table. In fact, it's pretty quiet. The thought that I might have put a slight damper on our date creeps into my consciousness. After Sarah finishes eating, she wipes her mouth with the toilet paper napkins. Sweetie, she says, holding the flatware between her thumb and index finger, this is a fork. A F-O-R-K fork. A fork is an eating utensil. It's used to get food off of your plate and bring it into your mouth without getting it all over you. A fork is what adults use to eat. She places the fork on the table and then holds her hand up and wiggles her fingers. And these are called fingers. Fingers are used to hold the fork. They are not used to scoop up pasta, squeeze it into a ball, and eat it like an apple. Repeat after me. Fingers, fingers, I say, are not, she says, are not, I repeat, used, used, to pick up food, to pick up food. Great date. Three years earlier, first date. I imagine I'm a hard guy to have a relationship with. Seal. The first time I met Sarah, I overheard her saying she was hosting a charity event to raise money for college scholarships for underprivileged women in Africa. When I got back to New York, I looked up the charity. It was called the Sarah Blakely Foundation, and the event was called the Give-A-Damn Party. The money raised was to help women in Africa attend university. 
I bought a table of 10 on the condition it was right next to the host's table. Then I called Sarah and commented on how amazing it was we were both so passionate about sending underprivileged African women to school. What a coincidence. The night of the event, my table was indeed right next to Sarah's, but I couldn't convince anyone other than one of my friends from high school to fly down to Atlanta with me. There were going to be only two of us at a table for 10. So the day of the event, I called Sarah's office and they filled the table with people I didn't know. I didn't care. I was there for one reason, with all due respect to the underprivileged African women. As it turned out, I didn't get a whole lot of Sarah's time that night. As the host, she didn't have a lot of time to give. But she knew I came, of course, and that was the whole point. I must admit, while Sarah intrigued me before the party, I was more interested by the time the night ended. She was even more beautiful than the first time I saw her, and she performed her duties as host with an elegant self-assuredness that was incredibly attractive. She'd organized quite a night. Sir Richard Branson was there, Jewel and Collective Soul performed, but to be honest, I paid very little attention to what was going on around me. I couldn't take my eyes off Sarah. Not too long after the charity dinner, I found out, and I really don't remember how I did, that Sarah had broken up with her boyfriend. I immediately emailed and invited her to go with me to the Final Four basketball championship, which was being held in Atlanta that year. She didn't know anything about basketball, but you really don't have to know anything about basketball to have fun at the NCAA men's finals, and she did. Two weeks later, she came up to New York for business, and I asked her out on our first official date. I told her I made reservations at a day spa and a sushi place for dinner. Terrific, she said. Now, describing where we were going as a day spa was stretching it a bit. Illegal Russian bath was perhaps a more apt representation. I love hot saunas, and this place had a sauna so hot They made us wear felt hats so we didn't burn the roots of our hair. Sarah showed up having just had her hair done that afternoon, thinking she was going to get a pedicure and a foot massage. Instead, she was led into a changing room where a Russian woman with calves the size of fire hydrants gave her a paper bottom to wear, just the bottom. Sarah came out with her arms wrapped around her boobs to cover them up. Remember, this is our first real date. The sauna was set at 185 degrees. Ivan, the Russian therapist, then comes in and performs a Plaza treatment on us where he beats us both with wet oak leaves to generate more body heat and takes our body temperature to unbearable highs. Then, when he feels we can't take any more heat, he takes us to a room where he pours glacially cold water all over us. Then back to 185 degrees. It was so romantic. Then we went to dinner. As I look across the dinner table in a fancy New York sushi restaurant, Sarah's hair is still soaking wet and she has some mascara running down her face. The poor woman looks like she's been boiled. However, she never once complains and we have a great time. Sarah and Jesse, game on. Days 11 and 12, not counting the days I was on my own. Enjoy the pain. I earned it. Now I'm going to enjoy it. Seal. New York City, 38 degrees, 0800. I was on my own for the past two days while Seal disappeared, and I honestly stuck with the program, Honor Code. I did six-mile runs in the morning and three-mile runs at night, and 200 push-ups in the middle like an Oreo cookie. It was actually a bit lonely doing the workouts on my own. Not that I missed the guy, but maybe a little. Today is no different. I did a six-mile run this morning. 
at 11 o'clock a.m., my cell phone rings, and it's Seal. He tells me he's on his way back to New York City and that he just completed the 75-mile race. How was it? Hard, he says. Really? 75 miles was hard? It had a climb, he says. The terrain was tough. I know Seal well enough by now to know that if he says a race was hard, had a climb, and the terrain was tough, then it was tough. And I broke all the metatarsals in both feet. Huh? Check that. Tough times 20. But I finished strong, he says. He finished? What are you going to do, I ask. What do you mean? You can get them looked at? Get what looked at? Your feet. Why would I get them looked at? Because they're broken. Come on, man. The doctor will only tell me they're busted up. But I already know they're busted up. Why would I waste my fucking time driving to the doctor and then pay a man to tell me my feet are fucked up when I already know that? I gotta go. Call you back. Here's a point, I guess. One hour later. I'm in my home office when I get an email Seal sends while he's in the car on the way to the airport. From Seal to Jesse Itzler. Subject. On my way. Training will go on. The guy breaks every bone in both his feet but can still run? Training will go on? 11 o'clock p.m. The front door of the apartment swings open. It's Seal. He has a key, but since he's been living with us, we hardly ever lock the door during the day. What's the purpose? Today is no different, and he opens the door. As he makes his way in, Seal is walking like he's stepping on broken glass. He's limping and in obvious pain. He's not wearing any shoes, and his toes are really messed up. Seal is missing the toenail on his right big toe, and he's a few blisters that look like his toes swallowed giant red grapes. Ouch. Man, that looks bad. You gotta do something for it, I say. Nah, I'm just gonna sit on the couch and enjoy the pain, he says. I earned it. Now I'm gonna enjoy it. He starts to laugh to himself. At first, I thought that maybe he wanted to impress me and create this crazy persona, like overplay some of the stuff for effect. But now, as I look at his battered feet, I realize that there's no overplaying this kind of thing. There is no effect. He really means it. He really wants to enjoy the pain. Next day. I'm at my office getting caught up on work when I get a call from Mark Rampola, the CEO of Zico. He gets right into it. A lot of people in the Zico office are reading your blog about Seal, he says. Awesome, I say. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, they can't believe you're doing this. You're nuts. You must be getting in great shape and you must be exhausted. Yes, and definitely yes. Well, anyway, we want to know if Seal would endorse Zico. You know, use it at races and talk about the product, etc. He asks as his words hang in the air like a puff of white smoke. I feel like telling Rampola that Seal doesn't really talk, but I say, great idea. I'll ask. Call you back, I say. I hang up and tell Seal about the conversation. You're blogging about this? Yeah, at first I just sent it to a few friends who love to work out, but now it's catching on. And it's kind of spread a little bit, just a little bit, I say. Okay, cool, but I don't want any part of that shit. None. Any interest in endorsing Zico? I race for me. I don't race for products, Jesse. I race for me. We leave it at that. Dinner, 1730. I hear the Rocky theme playing in Seal's bedroom. 
it plays once, and then I hear it again, then again, and again. Then the song repeats approximately 30 times. What the fuck is he doing in there? I choose not to knock on the door, but can tell there's something serious going on in that room. I can almost feel heat coming out of the door. I'm curious. Finally, after the 31st time of the song repeating, Seal walks out. He's soaking wet and leaving puddles of sweat all over the floor. You okay, I ask? 2,500 push-ups, motherfucker. Yeah, I'm okay. Sarah walks into the room as she too is curious. However, I can tell her curiosity suddenly changes to concern. Something's bothering her. Really bothering her. I can see it on her face. She's trying to tell me what's on her mind without talking. She's sending me some kind of husband-wife telepathy through her eyebrows and expression, but I'm not getting the message clearly. I wonder if I get points for at least knowing she's trying to send me some liminal Morse code. Then her eyes slowly shift from my eyes to the floor. They go there in slow motion, taking my eyes with them. It is there that I see a puddle of sweat growing larger by the second on our silk oriental rug. It's the same rug that's been passed down from generation to generation and was given to Sarah by her grandmother. With every passing second, the puddle spreads out like it's raining all in one spot, dead smack in the middle of the family rug. As Seal sits on our couch, sweat pours off his nose and lands on the rug in a steady flow. I immediately go to the bathroom and get two towels, one for Seal and one to place on the rug. I'm in trouble. Sarah calls me into our bedroom. Don't ever let that happen again, Sarah says to me. I'm dead serious. She says it in a tone that's way scarier than anything Seal has said or done to me to date. It even rivals my mother's silent treatment. Never, she repeats. 30 minutes later. It's 8.30 p.m. and we're on our first workout of the day. Well, at least I am. We do a series of push-ups sets 1 to 18 for a total of 171. Then we head downstairs to the gym. Residents have 24-7 access. It's pitch dark when we get down there, but I immediately flip on the gym lights. I never ran on a treadmill until I met Seal. I'm an old-fashioned, lace-on-the-kicks-and-run-out-of-the-front-door kind of runner. Seal thinks the treadmill is a good training tool because it's controlled. Yeah, like Chinese water torture. He has me walk for five minutes at a 12.5 incline at a 15-minute-per-mile pace. Then he reduces me to a 3.0 incline, but makes me do a quarter of a mile at a 9-minute and 30-second pace, a quarter of a mile at a 6-minute and 50-second pace, a quarter of a mile at a 9-minute, 20-second pace, a quarter of a mile at a 6-minute, 40-second pace, a quarter of a mile at a 9-minute, 20-second pace, a quarter of a mile at a 6-minute, 30-second pace, a quarter of a mile at a 9-minute pace, and a quarter of a mile at a 6-minute and 20-second pace. Approximately three hours later, 11.30 p.m. Seal tells me it's time for some sit-ups. It's like we're cramming for a test, trying to get our daily double workout in before midnight. He always makes sure I have proper form, as in all the way up, and all the way down, as fast as you can do them, or they don't count. 44 unassisted. Unassisted means no help with lots of yelling. One minute rest. 44 unassisted. One minute rest. 44 unassisted. One minute rest. Total, 132. Push-ups. 15 times at 7 sets on the minute. 105 total. Rest for 1 minute and 30 seconds. 
12 times at 9 sets on the 50-second mark, 108 total. Rest, 1 minute, 30 seconds. 10 times at 10 sets on the 45-second mark, 100 total. Total, 313. I'm wiped out. But I'm so wired from endorphins, I can't fall asleep. Never in my life have I worked out late at night. I'm used to knocking it out first thing in the morning. Steele comes in and tells me to set my alarm for 0730. We are starting at 0800 sharp tomorrow, so I set my alarm for 0745. I want those extra 15 minutes of sleep. It dawns on me that Steele doesn't have an alarm clock, yet he never oversleeps. He's always up when I get up. In fact, now that I think about it, I've never actually seen him asleep. I've never seen him yawn, never even seen him stretch or even seen him close his eyes for any length of time. This dude's a robot. Workout totals. Five-minute walk on a steep incline. Eight miles, two miles of which were intervals. 132 sit-ups, 484 push-ups. Day 13, Sick Fuck Friday. Every day is a challenge, otherwise it's not a regular day. Seal. New York City, 21 degrees, 0800. It's been less than eight hours since I did my 484 push-ups, five hours since I fell asleep. When I get up, Seal is already up. I mean, wide awake up. He tells me he's been outside surveying our running route, checking the terrain, feeling it out. The terrain? It's not a regular day in Central Park, he says. No? Nope. Nobody's smiling. There's only a few stragglers out running. One guy's walking a dog. Saw one delivery guy. Okay. Nah, man, it's not okay, he says. Only the loonies are out there today, bro. Only the demented. It's sick fuck Friday. I'm not sure what he means. I walk out the front door as Seal limps. We set out to run five miles at an eight-minute-per-mile pace, but Seal wants the run to be mostly hills. He settles on running the small back part of Central Park by 110th Street. So we run uptown, and when we get there, we do the small loop up the 110th Street hill. The hill's only about a quarter of a mile up, but it's steep. To hold an eight-minute-per-mile pace is very challenging. As we ascend, my shoulders kill from the 484 push-ups yesterday. I mean, they are killing me. My arms dangle from my sides as I run to ease the sharp pain in my shoulders. They're not sore. I'm beyond being sore. I'm trying any technique to ease the pain. Nothing works. At the end of our run, I bend over, huffing and puffing. My arms hang like they're dead. I need to give them a day off. How your shoulders feeling, bitch, he asks. I don't even respond. Tonight, more push-ups. I'm going to test your shoulders, Seal says, limping past me. Be ready. 1 p.m. I decided to work from home today, so Seal is in his room chilling out, and I'm in my room making calls. I can't lift anything, even my cell phone, because my shoulders hurt so much. And I'm not exaggerating. Steele walks into my room. I'm going down to the gym to get a quick workout in. Okay, I respond. Two hours later. Steele returns to the apartment holding his hands up to show me his palms. They look like he fell off his bike and braced his fall with his hands. They're battered. What happened? I knocked out my pull-ups. How many you get? I did five pull-ups on the minute for two hours. You just did 600 pull-ups just now? Just like that? 
Roger that. So go fuck your bullshit shoulders, he says. Whatever you got going on, someone else has more pain. You got to learn how to fight through it, no matter what it is. Think about someone else and take a suck shit pill. I think he means suck it up pill, but I don't question him. Suck shit pill sounds good to me. 2200. Seal has been in his room the entire afternoon and evening. I have no idea what he's doing, but he has not come out once and looked for me. Is he mad? I didn't dare to bother him. I mean, who wants to wake up a sleeping giant? As the night creeps in, I realize I'm exhausted. Plus, I need to let my shoulders recover. I crawl into bed with my clothes on and fall asleep at 10 p.m. I'm zonked out. At 12.30 a.m., my alarm goes off. Now, I know I didn't set my alarm. I know my wife didn't set my alarm. And I'm damn sure Laser didn't set the alarm. Trick or treat, Seal says. He's sitting in my room on a chair four feet from my bed in his running gear. I think he's eating a banana. I rub my eyes to make sure I'm not dreaming, and sadly, I'm not. I'm more freaked out than the first time I saw Silence of the Lambs. The only way this could be worse is if he told me to put the lotion in the basket. He walks over to the side of the bed, bends down so his mouth is basically inside my right ear, and starts quietly whispering the lyrics to the Ghetto Boys' hit song, At night I can't sleep, I toss and I turn. I pretend I'm sleeping, but he repeats that line over and over, louder and louder, until I finally get up. We head outside. It's the middle of the night. Well, (laughs) actually, it's the start of the middle of the night. Actually, it's one hour past midnight. It's about 20 degrees, but feels like minus 5 degrees with the wind. We do a three-mile run around the lower loop of Central Park, 40 jumping jacks, and then 10 push-ups, and repeat. We do 20 sets of the jacks and push-ups in 15 minutes. That's 800 jumping jacks and 200 push-ups in 15 minutes. There was not a living thing stirring in Central Park while we trained. Not a civilian, not a police officer, not even a squirrel. I'm bruised and battered. The only way I could feel worse is if Seal made me carry him home. I don't want to give him any ideas. I just want to be warm. Who trains at 1 o'clock a.m. outside in the middle of winter? When we get inside, I take off all my clothing and throw on some dry boxer shorts and an old short-sleeved tee. Then I grab my winter jacket from the foyer closet and put it on. I was so damn cold from the run, my jacket's the only thing that's appealing to me. I zipper it up to my chin and climb into bed. I know I'm at 15 Central Park West, but it feels like I'm on a mission in Serbia in the winter. I look at Sarah. She's in the fetal position in the middle of the bed, spooning with her pillow. I throw the hood of the jacket over my head and pull it up until it covers my eyes. Lights out. Workout totals, 8 miles, 800 jumping jacks, 200 push-ups. Lady in the Honda. Everyone is a potential threat. Seal. Seal and I head up to my lake house in Connecticut. I need to make sure the pipes didn't freeze and take care of some mods and ends. After we check everything off the list, we get ready to head back to New York. I ask Seal if he'd mind doing the driving so I can get some work done. Roger that. How you driving skills? I'm well trained. We start driving back to the city. Seal, apparently, is a defensive driver. I note that he even uses the turn signal to pull out of the driveway. I nod left to confirm which way to the interstate. I grab my phone to check emails and then give him a nod when we need to take a right at the fork. I snatch a pen from the glove compartment to take a few notes. 
Eventually, we get on the main road. Seal points his index finger at the first car we pass. Then he does it again to the next car. Like his hand is off the wheel pointing. Again, he does it. Plus, he's talking to himself in a low, melodic voice, mumbling. He mumbles and points. The pointing thing, is that some kind of... Yeah, it's a driving technique. You need to point at the target, every target, Seal says, pointing at an 18-wheeler. But these are just commuters, guys coming home from work. That's what they are to you. To me, they're targets. I check out the next car we pass. It's a mom with two kids in the back watching videos. Seal points at her. You have no idea what the lady in that Honda can do, he says. You have no clue what a reaction time is. You have no inkling to what that lady is thinking. Honestly, you don't know shit. We sit in silence for a minute. Man, you want to drive, Seal asks, sensing my discomfort. No, no, not at all. I've just never seen a technique like that where you point at every approaching car. You're too trusting, man. It just takes one pissed off mom. Bam, it happens that fast. A fucking nanosecond. You reach for your phone and kabow, you're blasted. You need to think prevention and stop singing that Elton John shit, Jesse. Elton John? I have no idea what he's talking about. All cylinders, baby, he says. This is no joke. This shit is like a video game behind this wheel. You can get gobbled up real quick. You need to have your shit tight on the roads out here. Day 14. Fireman's carry. If you can't do the basics, you can't do shit. Seal. New York City. 22 degrees. 0945. Seal has about 10 pills in his hand, and he throws them all back in his mouth in one great handful. He then takes a swig of water and opens his mouth. Ah, he says, and they're all gone. I'm not sure what Seal is taking. Vitamins? Medicine? Anti-radiation tablets in the event of an attack? Who knows? All I know is he's taking horse-sized pills in large quantities at odd hours. Let's stay inside for 45 minutes, Seal says. Why? You'll see, (laughs) Seal chuckles. We take the elevator down to the basement where there's a hallway that's about 30 yards long. Seal says we're going to do fireman carries. It's a basic military workout, he says. I have to throw Seal over my shoulder and run 30 yards in the hallway of the basement, drop Seal, do 35 reps, four count, of flutter kicks, flip to my knees, and do 20 push-ups. Then we switch and he carries me. We're going to repeat this 14 times. By the 12th time, I'm messed up, like really screwed up. This is up there with the worst I've ever felt in my life. Carrying Seal was brutal, but being carried by him was way worse. Imagine all the blood rushing to your head from being carried upside down, plus Seal's shoulders digging into my torso. During one of the reps, the elevator opens and a resident steps out of the elevator into our hallway. I recognize her, but I don't know her name. I've seen her on TV and I think she's a real estate mogul or something, but at this hour, who cares? I realize the people in my building must think I'm crazy. They must be wondering what's going on. This is a building with fancy handbags with poodles living in those bags. We do not fit in. They must want to know why Rambo is living in their building. Anyway, she can sense the insanity, and she looks at both of us, scared and curious. She walks unusually fast towards the gym. It's almost like when you see someone on the street and they suddenly realize they aren't where they want to be and quickly change pace. This looks a bit intense, she says as she walks by me and into the gym. 
a little intense, I'm thinking. How about crazy intense? 3 p.m. I walk into my office and Seal's sitting by my desk on the phone. He rocks back and forth in my comfy swivel chair. It's Garnett, Seal says to me. Yeah, man, be cool, he says as he hangs up the phone. Apparently, Seal and Garnett have stayed in touch. I have no clue how either of them got each other's contact info, nor do I know what those guys are possibly talking about, but it makes me smile that they're connected. Seal gets up, and I sit at my desk and power up my computer. No need for that now, he says. What do you mean? We're going to check on your burpee progress. Same drill. Come on, man. I got shit to do today. So do I. Take your shit off and get started. I strip down on my boxers. One, two, three, 99, 100. 10 minutes and 27 seconds. I feel myself smile. 2218. I get home late from the Knicks game. I walk the 20 blocks to the garden directly from work. Today I had multiple meetings, multiple conference calls, and had to put out multiple fires at work. Plus, the fireman workout killed me this morning. Then the burpees, and then the walk to the garden. I'm somewhere between the front door and comatose when I hear, let's run eight. Come on, man, it's over. Let's just do it early tomorrow. Okay, if that's what you want, Seal says, look at me like I'm a pussy. When Seal wanted to become a Seal, he weighed 290 pounds. You can't be 290 pounds and be a Seal, he was told. So he lost 105 pounds in less than two months. I know it sounds impossible, but he lived on fresh fruit and water and worked out like a madman, naturally. In SEAL training, you're subjected to something called Hell Week. Over a five-and-a-half-day period, he was allowed only two hours of sleep. His class had just finished exercising in freezing water when their instructor ordered them back in. A SEAL in training standing next to him stared vacantly. There was no expression in his classmates' eyes. They were hollow. SEAL called it the look. The classmate turned and walked away. He quit. Seal looks at me now like I have the look. I man up. We get our shit on. It's 22 degrees outside. I'm mad as hell that I'm doing this. When we walk out the front door, I turn to Seal and say, fuck you. Let's go, he says. 11 o'clock p.m. We start running to the Hudson River. Before he pushes the button on his watch to start the run, I plead to only do four miles. He says eight. Miraculously, we settle on six. We start. I can honestly say there's not one single person other than us running at 11.25 p.m. on the West Side Highway. Not one. As we run, I notice my shoulders are in extreme pain from this morning's workout. I run with my arms dangling by my sides. That lasts for a half a mile because this type of running style kills your thighs. Try running fast for a half mile with your arms like this if you don't believe me. Now I have a choice. Severe shoulder pain or running like an asshole with my arms dangling. I opt for the running like an asshole look partly because there's not a soul on the street to see me. During the 53-minute run, Seal and I don't say one single sentence to each other. Not a peep. It's like Night of the Living Dead. He only says two words the entire run. Turn around at the halfway mark. Three miles back in silence. It's midnight when we finish. Tomorrow starts at 0600, he says as we walk into my building. Get some sleep. Workout totals. Six miles, 100 burpees, and 14 fireman carries. Day 15. It's all about the push-ups. If you're going to do them, do them right. Seal.
New York City to Atlanta, 28 degrees to 49 degrees, 0600. I walk into the kitchen and Steele has a look on his face that I've never seen. It's a cross between furious and confused. It's scary. He's having a heated debate with himself. Let's add some extra mileage today, Seal says. Nah, let's knock out a slow eight, he says back to himself. Nah, fuck that. Let's knock out a slow six and then do two FWAC. When he says it, it sounds like Aflac from the commercial with the duck, but it's not. It's A-F-A-W-C, as fast as we can. Yeah, motherfucker, we're going to do six miles and then do two AFWAC. It's about 28 degrees outside today. However, today I decide to dress more like Seal does and only wear shorts and two t-shirts, but double up on the hat and the gloves. Without the extra layers, I'm feeling light, and we fly on the run. The first six miles are in an eight-minute and six-second pace. Then Seal takes the pace to seven minutes and 29 seconds for the last two miles. As soon as we hit the six-mile mark, he says to me, sub-730, and speeds up. He doesn't even look at his watch. He just programs his pace like someone would program a car to a certain speed on cruise control. When we get home, I peel two bananas and dip them in honey. I one-bite them, and I'm done in about 10 seconds. I grab a Zico and hit the shower. We just flew through that run, and I'm feeling great. Not just about the run, but how much I'm improving. How I've been able to hang in there. The funny thing is, Seal has not complimented me once, which is fine. It's not like I need his validation, but it would be encouraging. That said, I'm genuinely proud of myself. It's like this experience is a personal test of will. It's the ultimate, can I make it? And so far, I think I'm winning. I note it as such. Five hours later. We head to LaGuardia for a Delta flight to Atlanta. Sarah wants to check in at Spank's headquarters tomorrow, and we decided yesterday that we would all go. Although we have access to Marquee Jet, we often fly Delta. Seal doesn't seem to mind either way, and he's totally indifferent about where we train, just as long as there are no fucking surprises. I give him at least 24 hours heads up before any travel now. I'm looking forward to the flight as it represents two to three hours where I can just read and listen to music. Seal just sits and stares on a commercial flight. I can't even guess what he's thinking about. Truthfully, I don't even want to know. So I'm usually not factored into the equation. I get comfortable in my seat and wonder what I should start to read first. But today's flight's different. Seal wants to talk. So tell me your shit, Seal says. My shit? Yeah, your shit. Okay, I say, reclining my seat back as far as it can go. What story do you want to hear? A, the big red chicken. B, don't let them boo you. C, Larry the Coconut Guy, or D, 1-800-PLAYMATE. Who the fuck wants to hear about a big red chicken? Well, it's not really a chicken, I say. Keep your fucking chicken stories to yourself, he says. I go with D, motherfucker, D. Well, I moved from L.A. back to New York in the summer of 1992, after I realized there would be no second album, I say. I came up with an idea to start my own record label so I could sign my own artists. I partnered up with my friend Spit, and we called it Riot Records. To be honest, that sounds a lot more impressive than it was. First of all, I didn't have enough money to rent an apartment, so I was sleeping on friends' couches. Second, the first deal I made didn't exactly go according to plan. The artist we lined up was a woman named Crystal, who was confirmed to be a centerfold in an upcoming magazine issue. Mike Russ had suggested her to me. Maybe I should have known better since he turned her down. When I first talked to Crystal on the phone, I asked her to sing Happy Birthday to me as a kind of audition. 
The sound that came out of the phone was like someone with bronchitis trying to sing Old MacDonald Had a Farm while being strangled. But that centerfold thing. So I agreed to do it. Again, get the foot in the door, figure it out later. Crystal already had some good marketing ideas in place. She'd worked out a deal with a magazine to publicize a contest where if you bought the record, you were given the chance to win a date with her. This promotion was going as an insert in the magazine that would be distributed to hundreds of thousands of people. I thought the idea guaranteed strong sales just to pimply-faced teenage boys alone. One weekend, we took Crystal out to the Hamptons summer share house where we were staying. She definitely didn't get the memo because she walked around the whole time topless. I'm not even sure she packed a top. Now, she's like a 15 out of a possible 10. None of my college friends had ever been exposed to anything like her. She was like the hot chick they invented in the movie Weird Science. All the pent-up sexual energy in the house made me think this was going to be a great idea. My friend Spitz's parents had a place in the mountains, and I moved all of my recording equipment into their house. The idea was we would block off a solid week and record her album with her at the house. One night after recording, we joined Spitz's parents for dinner in their dining room. Everything went along just fine, the usual small talk and niceties, and then Spitz's father brings up the Miss America pageant that was on TV the night before. They asked some tough questions of the finalists, he said. One was who they thought the most influential woman in the last century was. That's easy, Spitz's mom said. Eleanor Roosevelt. Crystal didn't say a word. She was the perfect guest, albeit one with 38-inch, perfectly shaped breasts that stretched the limits of the white Nirvana t-shirt she wore, but was quiet at dinner. Then, right on the heels of the name Eleanor Roosevelt coming out of Spitzmom's mouth, she decides to weigh in. Eleanor Roosevelt? I would not say she was that influential, she said. Why is that? Spitzmom asked. Well, all she did was fuck a president, Crystal responded. I thought Spit was going to choke on the Eli's baguette he was chomping on. Miss Spit? She looked like someone had just taken a crap on the dinner table in front of her. But Mr. Spit, God bless him, sort of cocked his head and let his glance drop ever so slightly down on Kurt Cobain's face. She's got a point, he said. We eventually made Crystal's record. While she waited for the magazine to come out, she decided to make some extra money dancing at a famous Manhattan strip club. One night, she bumps, literally, into Baba Bowie from the Howard Stern Show, who falls headfirst for her. Between dances, he tells her he wants her to come on Howard's show. She gives him my number. When he calls me, he tells me there's only one condition. She has to come on the show completely naked. From the second she gets off the elevator, she has to be nude. After consulting with Crystal, we book the appearance. I figured I'd milk this appearance for everything I could, so I got a 1-800 number that had the ability to take 300 orders a minute. We charged $9.99 for the CD, which we'd split. Crystal would promote the record on the Stern Show, give out the 800 number, and I was going to sit back and watch the orders roll in. Booyah! The day Crystal went on the show, I was home listening on the radio. Spit took Crystal to the studio. When Howard saw her walking naked, he went crazy. He said he'd never seen anyone so hot, ever. It couldn't have gone any better. Howard's fully engaged, really funny. The interview even goes past the allotted time. By the time they played her song, I'd already started counting the money in my head. Then Howard asked her to tell her listeners how they can order the record. 
We must have rehearsed what she was going to say the night before 20,000 times. 20,000 times. I did everything but tattoo the 800 number on her, well, her palm. But from the radio, all I heard was the disturbing sound of nothing. Howard Stern. Is there a number they can call, Crystal? 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 Silence. I was screaming the number at the radio. Finally, Crystal begins to speak, but my relief quickly turns into utter disbelief. To a national audience on the highest rated show on radio, she gives out not the 800 number that we practice, but my personal home phone number to call and order her record, which started to ring immediately. Oh my God, I thought. Although I tried, any attempt to keep up with the demand was futile. In the few calls I did answer, the comments ranged from junior high stupid to sexual offender stuff. I just stopped answering. My phone rang without pause for three solid hours. Then, just when it seemed to slow down, the show aired on the West Coast. The onslaught happened all over again. We didn't sell a single CD. I had to change my phone number, and we ended up not even releasing her album. Seal has a hint of a smile on his face. I think he likes the story. All the profit I made from my own album, which was about $50,000, I lost in a matter of months with Riot Records, I say. Poof, Seal says. Are you still friends with Crystal? 1800. We land and head to baggage claim in Atlanta. A friend of mine, Lisa, comes over and says hello. She didn't realize we were on the same flight. Neither did I. I do a quick introduction to her with Seal. I know who you are, she says. That's so, Seal says. I read Jesse's blog, Lisa says, and she gives us a coy smile. Seal isn't smiling. He just looks at me and gives me a silent grunt and then looks back at Lisa. She extends her hand and he shakes it. I know who you are too. You were sitting in 14C, Seal says. The guy next to you is dark skin and reading Reader's Digest. I'm aware. Lisa looks at me with a holy shit, what the fuck face. 2200. After we get settled in the house in Atlanta, Seal summons me to the living room. Seal believes push-ups are the single best exercise for strength. He also believes proper form is the key. You get more out of 10 push-ups the right way than 30 done improperly. Proper form. Back straight, ass up slightly, neck straight, don't drop your neck. Go down and break 90 degrees with your elbows and make sure your chest hits the floor. Go all the way up until arm is fully extended. We begin doing our 1 to 18 push-ups and then 18 to 1. So our first set has one push-up with a 15-second rest. Then we do two push-ups with a 15-second rest, all the way to 18 and then back down to 1. In case you're counting, that's 342 total. So Seal has me do eight more for good luck. That's 350 push-ups. We finish around midnight. Workout totals. Eight miles, two AFWAC, and 350 push-ups. Perfect position. I'm on alert. High alert. Even when you don't think I'm on alert, I'm on alert. Even right now, I'm on alert. Seal. Sarah and I have plans tonight for dinner. Friends of ours own a popular restaurant in Atlanta called 10 Degrees South, and we have a 7 p.m. reservation. The restaurant has a South African safari motif in cuisine. It's refined, no paper napkins, no bare feet, but it's not pretentious. We ask Seal if he wants to join us. 
Roger that. We drive to the restaurant. I'm in jeans and a button-down. Sarah wears a dress. Seal is in a black T-shirt. He takes the seat on the far side of the table so his back is against the wall. From there, he can see the entire landscape of the restaurant and notifies us that he has the exit staked out. I'm in perfect position, he says. Our table's fairly close to the kitchen door, which is heavy. It makes a small boom every time it closes, which makes Seal clench and bounce up. Yo, you okay, man? I whisper. That jumping thing. Yeah, I'm cool. Just them loud noises, man, Seal says. The door? Yeah, the door. It's freaking me out. It is? It sounds like a fucking explosion or something. It's loud. It's unpredictable, he says. Should I have them leave the door open? Nah, I'll block out the sound. You can do that? Of course. You could explode the fucking Goodyear blimp in here, and if you're zoned in, you can block that shit out. Sarah and I look at each other, but don't say anything. A waiter comes over and hands us menus. He points to the specials on the board and takes our drink order. I've never seen Seal drink anything other than water in a restaurant. At home, he likes to drink special military-grade shakes that you can't get online. It's a combination of protein and carbs and comes in chocolate and vanilla. That's his meal. You order it through a special website. Seal glares at the waiter as he takes our order. Seal, what's up? He whispers, man, this motherfucker right here, I don't trust that dude. Our waiter? Yeah, well, whatever he says he is, he says. I'm pretty sure he's just our waiter. Nah, I've seen this movie before, man. I don't trust that motherfucker at all. Well, what makes you feel like that? Well, for one, his whole pretty boy act, his smile, his gear, his walk, his silly ass laugh, the grin, that bullshit attire. I think that's his waiter outfit. Fuck that, Seal whispers. Guy's a threat. Wow, I, I don't see that at all. Really? Seal's eyes go wide. You don't? Man, he knows what time the cash comes in and out. He knows when this place opens and when it closes down. He has ties to all the delivery guys. You trust the fucking delivery guys here, Jesse? I haven't given it a lot of thought. Oh, you haven't, huh? Seal's now livid. You see who brings the shit into this place? The delivery guys. They know all the patterns, man. Just keep your eyes on that dude. That's all I'm saying, Jesse. Keep your eyes on that dude. I look over at our waiter. Come to think of it, he does look a little sneaky. Everyone in this place is capable of something. Remember that, Jesse. Everyone. Our waiter returns with our food. I keep one eye on him as he sets down the butterfly prawns. Sarah is now looking at our waiter like she doesn't trust him now either. Day 16. Stay light. You can get through any workout because everything ends. Seal. Atlanta, 55 degrees. 0700. As Sarah heads out to the Spanx headquarters, Seal and I head out for a run in Atlanta. The route is simple. Three miles down Peachtree Road, turn around and come home. It's a beautiful day in Atlanta, 55 degrees and sunny, and it's warming up fast as the sun starts to climb. Seal takes his shirt off and we take off. Peachtree is a main road in Atlanta. There are like 10 different peach trees and I'm not sure which one is which, but this is the main one. I'm still not familiar with the streets here, so no matter where I have to go, I just take this version of Peachtree. I know eventually it will get me where I need to go. 
It's almost rush hour here and the street is starting to get crowded. Cars are backed up at red lights and traffic is slow moving. The sidewalk we're running on is roughly two feet from the oncoming traffic. If I look into the window of the cars we pass on the run, I can see the blemishes on the faces of the drivers. We are that close. I can feel the eyes of the drivers in traffic looking at us. It's making me uncomfortable and also making me run faster. Seal? Well, he couldn't give two shits. He is so locked in on the run, I don't think he notices one single car. But he has to. He has to know that he stands out like a sore thumb, right? He's a V-shaped mountain of African-American muscle running up Peachtree. Everyone's looking at him. When Sarah gets to Spanx, she hears rumblings throughout the office about the specimen running down Peachtree. Sarah's office has about 200 women, half of whom just passed Seal on their morning commute to work. So you can imagine how quickly word spread throughout the office. Buckhead, where Spanx is headquartered, has a pretty typical cast of characters. Men wear suits and basically all have the same haircut, drive the same three cars, Mercedes, Range Rover, or BMW. So seeing Seal wearing only short, flimsy running shorts, looking like every inch of his body was meticulously carved out of stone, seemed a little out of place to say the least, and caused quite a stir. My phone rings. It's Sarah. She says in a whisper, Honey, everyone here is talking about Seal, wondering who he is and where he came from. What do I do? Do I mention this specimen is living with us? 1430. After a late morning flight, we arrive back in New York City and head home. Seal greets the FedEx guy at the door. It appears Christmas has come early for him, or maybe for me. He ordered me my very own 50-pound metal-plated weight vest for push-ups and to increase the level of difficulty of my runs. You gotta love Seal. I didn't even know my runs needed a higher degree of difficulty. It's on, motherfuckers, he yells, jumping up and down as he opens the package. It's on. I don't think I've seen Seal this excited ever. He takes the vest from the box and puts it on. It fits perfectly. The thing looks like a suicide bomber's vest. If he walked into a bank wearing it, people would dive under their desks and give him the combination to the vault without him even asking for it. Today, we test it out, Seal grins. We have one vest and have to share it, so I go first. We do a three-mile run with the extra 50 pounds strapped onto my body. The vest is uneven, so the weight shifts from one shoulder to the other. It's brutal and makes it hard as hell to run. It's so painful, the three miles take 33 minutes. Each step is torture. Seal asks for the vest. We switch off, and I'm free. He's so happy, you'd think he's putting on the master's green jacket. We run three more miles. It takes him, slash us, 22 minutes and 30 seconds. Total run, 55 minutes, 30 seconds. I come home and fall asleep on the couch. I literally can't move. 60 minutes later. Grab the vest, Seal says. You're joking, I say. Actually, I'm not, he says. Grab the vest, fucker. I clutch the vest. I can, I say. I need to watch laser. Sarah has a work function tonight, so my parenting duties are doubled. Bring him, Seal says. All three of us are training today. But he's 18 months old, I say, and it's only 20 degrees outside. Bring him, Seal says firmly. 
I bundle up laser and we start running. I'm wearing the vest. It weighs as much as a safe. Seal pushes my son in the stroller next to us. I go two and a half miles wearing the vest. It takes 31 minutes. I've been on a thousand runs in my day. I've run 18 New York City marathons in a row. I've done ultra marathons of 100 miles. This is one of the most brutal runs of my life, no question. I pull over every 100 yards and drop to my knees and adjust the vest. I try to shift the weight to save my shoulders. The heft kills me. I shift again. It doesn't help. People in the park are starting to stare. They want to know what the fuck is wrong with me. They also want to know what the fuck two grown men in weight vests are doing pushing a baby stroller in 20 degrees. I wish I knew. I wish I knew. At this point, I'm out of options. The shifting provides no temporary relief anymore. I'm done. What the hell are we doing? This is ridiculous. Can't you see this is killing me? Relax, Jesse. You need to know that everything ends. Just do this shit and it will end. We switch. Seal puts on the vest. We run another two and a half miles. Fast. 8 o'clock p.m. I'm starving. I feel like I need at least 10,000 calories. Maybe that's because I burned 10,000 calories today. Seal, I'm ordering some food. What do you want? I'm good. Come on, you gotta be starving. Nah, man, I'm good. I'm staying light. I order in dinner for three and start to eat, and I'm still hungry as I'm shoveling food in as fast as I can. Seal grabs a banana and some almonds on his way to his room. See you in the a.m., he says. With a mouthful of food, I try to enunciate, see ya, and food flies out of my mouth as I do. A few minutes later, Sarah calls to check in. She asks to talk to Laser, who babbles, mama, into the phone. I pull the phone away, and I'm so grateful Laser hasn't learned the words, help me. All's good here, honey. We've got it under control. Workout totals? 17 miles, 5.5 miles in 50-pound vest. Day 17. Suicide Bombers. If a motherfucker looks crazy, usually the motherfucker is crazy. Seal. New York City, 18 degrees, 0500. Sting is not in the gym when we walk in, but Bob Costas is. He's on the treadmill watching the news on the tiny screen. I see Costas a lot in the gym and love chatting sports in between sets. Seal starts setting up the gym like a wedding planner would set up a reception. He lays out the bench press in one section, then grabs the curling bar and moves it to another section. After a quick assessment, he spreads out a rubber mat for sit-ups in another location. Before you know it, we have a variety of circuits perfectly laid out. He tells me the routine and we start. Dumbbell bench press. 15 reps at 35 pounds, 12 reps at 40 pounds, 10 reps at 45 pounds, 8 reps at 50 pounds, and then 6 reps at 55 pounds. Then we do seated rows, 15, 12, 10, 8, 6, medium weight, 51 reps. Then we do military press, 4 sets of 10, medium weight, 40 reps. Then. We do tricep pull-downs, 15, 12, 10, light weight, 37 reps. Curls, 15, 12, 10, 25-pound dumbbells, 37 reps. 
sit-ups, 50, one-minute rest. Then 50 flutter kicks, 50 four-count flutter kicks. Basically, do a flutter kick for four seconds, that equals one. Costas is now ignoring the television and is focused on us. I fly through the workouts with zero talking. The workouts are starting to have a definite precision to them, meaning Seal is really focused on my form, and I'm finally getting comfortable with my technique. I think Costas has noticed the improvement, at least he has in my head. I grab my towel and we leave the gym. Seal pats me on the back and says, nice work. My first real compliment. 0650. I have to be at work at 7 a.m. for a breakfast meeting. Well, the guy I'm meeting will have breakfast. I'll be having fruit. And Seal makes me wear the weight vest to the office today. He wears the one he borrowed from the guy at the gym. Mine's under my jacket. Seal just wears his vest over his T-shirt. We walk around Columbus Circle over toward my office on Park Avenue. It's not a bad walk, but today we stand out. I think we look like suicide bombers from a J.J. Abrams movie. Shoulder to shoulder, black guy, white guy, down Park Avenue, looking like we're going to go blow some shit up just for the sake of blowing some shit up. We're walking with some purpose down the street. We'll do this from now on, Seal says. I'm a bit freaked out. Not because of the weight of the vest, because I'm thinking, we're going to get stopped by the police. September 11 is still on people's mind, and we don't look at all sane. I'm worried that we're going to get asked to freeze and instructed to put our hands up and someone I know will see me. We keep walking. We walk to work every day when we're in New York and something curious happens during these walks. Most of the time I spend with Seal is either working out, getting ready to work out, recovering from working out, or talking about working out. Little of it is enjoyable. It isn't all misery, although much of it is, but there isn't a whole lot of human interaction. However... During the walks to work, things change a little, just a little. Today, he asked me what I do with my money, meaning do I invest it in real estate, stocks? He'd saved some money from being in the military and is curious as to what to do with it. I thought that was very human of him. Rather than go into detail about my portfolio, I give him a quote that my wife says about money. Money is fun to make, fun to spend, and fun to give away. That sums it all up. He loves it. He looks at me like Sarah had written the Gettysburg Address, and I was reciting it. Fuck yeah, Sarah, he says. So I give him more. Sarah also likes to think of money as a big magnifying glass. If you're a good person before you had money, then money makes you an even better person. If you were a charitable person before you had money, then money makes you even more charitable. But if you were an asshole before you had money, well then, money makes you an even bigger asshole. That's some fucking real poetic shit right there, Seal says. Sarah doesn't play. We keep pace. As the small talk disseminates, it becomes obvious to me that Seal is very suspicious of some of the pedestrians on the street. Out of nowhere, he says, cross the street. And then, I don't like the way things are looking on 51st today. I'm like, really? One day on the walk to work, Seal made us go all the way over to the West Side Highway down to 57th Street, and then back up around to my office. This added an extra 20 minutes to the walk. Let's stay away from Trump Tower today, he said. Trump been in the news too much lately. We also talked some sports on our walks, and he put up with 10,000 questions I asked him every day. I'd ask him 10,000, and he'd ask me none. 
He couldn't relate to my business accomplishments, and there's nothing I could do physically that would impress him because he's already done it longer, faster, and harder. So there was really nothing he could ask me. When Seal asks about money, it seems a little strange. I can tell it's purely out of curiosity. It's not like he's angling for anything. He just doesn't understand how I live the way I live. Can you imagine what it would be like if we switched places for a week? Like one of those Disney movies where we somehow magically switch bodies? I don't think either one of us could function right away, but I'm sure by the end of the second act, we would both learn valuable lessons from each other. Steele would laugh at how simple his life was and how complicated mine was. I would have a call list for the day, a schedule, my bag, appointments, calendars and such, and he would literally grab his military card and $50, and that was all he needed for the day. That was his whole existence. He didn't have a car, a house, or anything to tie him down. If I fly someplace for a weekend, I always have to check my bag. He showed up at my house with a backpack. For 30-plus days, one backpack. We have a closet full of shit we never use, millions of pictures we took that we never look at, stacks of files that collect dust. He's a master at keeping it simple. And I have to say, his simplicity, he looks attractive to me. I sort of want what he has, but I still want what I have. Seal has me thinking a lot about my own life as well as his. Mine seems ultra-calculating these days. It gets really complicated. You get pulled in a lot of directions. I know it sounds cliche, but the journey really is more important than the destination. Once you get where you're going, most of the magic drains out. I could really see myself as a minimalist, just taking life wherever it leads me. I like my walks with Seal in the morning. 2 o'clock p.m. I throw two Morningstar veggie burgers in the microwave and cut up some raw carrots as a side for lunch. Seal is in his room on the phone. I'm not sure who he's talking to, but he's being intentionally quiet. Before he can hang up, I have already inhaled both the veggie burgers. I throw two more into the microwave. You're done, Seal says. Time. We head down to the gym and start our second workout of the day with an interval run on the treadmill. I grab a towel and leave it on the handrail of the treadmill because I know I'm going to need it. Walk five minutes at a 12-incline, 3.5 speed. Two minutes and 30 seconds at 6.2 speed. Two minutes and 30 seconds at 8.7 speed. 2 minutes and 30 seconds at 6.3 speed. 2 minutes and 30 seconds at 8.8 speed. I grab the towel and wipe off my forehead. I'm starting to drip. My sweat's landing on the treadmill, making each stride super slippery. I'm convinced I'm going to fly off like George Jetson did when I start sprinting. 2 minutes and 30 seconds at 6.4 speed. 2 minutes and 30 seconds at 8.9 speed. 2 minutes and 30 seconds at 6.5 speed. 2 minutes and 30 seconds at 9.0 speed. 5 minutes walk slash cool down. 1 to 30 push-ups. Time, 41 minutes. Halfway through the run, I start to feel like my morning stars may come up. I'm cramping a bit, but figure I can run through it. As the cramp moves from the side of my stomach to the center, I think it may be gas. I push. It is gas. I push a bit harder and a loud <laughs> blast out of my ass. 
It's like a thundercloud has burst out of me. Seal looks at me and says, in the same exact pitch as my fart. I keep running, but start laughing hysterically on the treadmill. Seal is standing there, just staring at my pace on the electronic dashboard of the machine. No smile, no laugh. 90 minutes later, around 3 p.m. I want to pick up some gifts at Barney's, a fancy department store on Madison Avenue, for Sarah and Laser as the holidays are coming up soon. Seal comes with me because Seal comes everywhere with me. Seal suggests we run there, but I tell him I don't want to be sweating while we're shopping. Well, we can run home then, he says. But we'll have all the shopping bags and stuff, I say. Fuck it, let's run there, he says. So we run cross town to Barney's. Since I know we're going to be holiday shopping on the Upper East Side of New York, I want to look somewhat respectable. So I'm running in the nicest running outfit I have. I'm holding my credit card in my hand and a $20 bill in case we need to cab it back. By the time we get into the store, I've got a nice sweat going. Seal looks like he took a cab there. He's unblemished. I say to Seal, let's make this fast. Let's just go to the jewelry section. My wife certainly doesn't need anything, but she definitely needs to see the effort. If there's one thing I've learned about marriage, it's not the gift that counts, it's the effort. That's kind of like Seal, I guess. As we look at the jewelry in the glass case, I ask Seal what he likes. Man, this shit doesn't make any sense to me. Who would want a gold snake on the wrist for a few weeks' salary? He has another point. I mean, you work 120 hours and you go buy a bracelet? Shit's crazy to me. And another point. I pick up a few items, effort, and ask the sales clerk to wrap them and throw the gifts in a bag. I have the $20 in my hand, but obviously, we run home. Straight cross town with the Barney's bag hanging from one arm. Bonus miles. Again, crazy. Two grown men running through Manhattan holding a Barney's bag. Workout totals, three miles, 25 minutes of intervals on treadmill, 465 push-ups, 50 sit-ups, 50 flutter kicks, and seal circuit. Dumbbell bench presses, seated rows, military press, Try pull-downs, curls. Day 18. The difference five minutes can make. Don't get too comfortable, ever. Seal. New York City, 21 degrees, 0700. Miracle of miracles. We take the morning off. Hey, Laser, I say to him in his high chair. What do you think if Daddy stays home from work this morning to play? Laser's smile lights up the room. First, we start with the action figures, and then we get into some serious block building. I haven't thought about anything other than how to build a higher tower in hours. Should we knock it down? I ask Laser. And before the grin on his face is fully formed, the tower of blocks comes crashing down. Let's build it again, I say. 11.45. Seal walks in. He reminds me that it's almost noon and I have a 12.30 p.m. meeting today with the Zico sales team. I kiss my son on the forehead with a big smooch and head out the door with Seal. I've got on a winter coat and my Knicks knit hat. Seal has a t-shirt and jeans on. His shoulders are angled up into his neck as we walk to work and his hands are in his pockets. He must be cold. This is unusual for him. I've never seen his body look like this before. 
We're on a direct walking path to my office today, which is also unusual. Sarah convinced Seal the weighted vests were a bad idea, so we look like civilians today. I guess Seal doesn't think there are any imminent issues en route. Or maybe he feels the urge to change our pattern so we're less likely to be detected. Whatever the case, it's a normal person's commute, a direct shot. As we hit the corner of 57th and Broadway, we wait for the walk sign. You ever worry about all these meetings you take? Like, what if the direction isn't going the way you want it to go? Never let them boo you, I say. One of Seal's eyebrows arches. No matter what, you can never let them boo you. You have to control the situation. His shoulders immediately drop down into a normal position, and he asks, what do you mean? Can I tell you a story, I ask? The walk sign illuminates. Sure, just as long as it's not about a big red chicken, he says. Okay, well, after my video debuted on Yo! MTV Raps, I went on tour to support my CD. My first single, Shake It Like a White Girl, was starting to get national radio play. While I was on the road, I got a call from Mike Ross. A promoter had reached out and asked if I would perform at the Increase the Peace charity benefit in Atlanta. Apparently, the promoter was getting African-American artists and Caucasian artists to come together and play one big benefit show. Some of the biggest acts were confirmed. I guess some Vanilla Ice was booked that day because they called me as the Caucasian representative. The show was at the Georgia Dome in downtown Atlanta, and they bust in about 25,000 kids from all over Atlanta to attend. I'd known the crowd was going to be tough, but they were worse than I'd anticipated. The kids were unruly. There were fights in the stands. They were throwing shit at the stage. They had to keep putting the house lights on to control the audience. And they booed everyone. I mean, everyone. It was insane. Shortly before I was supposed to go on stage, LL Cool J was on. They had to move up his star time because he had another gig later that night and he had to fly out. The fans in Atlanta, they booed LL. I was like, if this crowd is booing LL, I'm in big trouble. Real big trouble. They're booing LL and I'm supposed to go up and sing my song, Shake It Like a White Girl? I couldn't figure out how I was going to get out of this thing. I did not want to go on. I was physically sick. When the MC of the event introduced me, it was even worse. Ladies and gentlemen, all the way from Los Angeles, California, give it up for my main man, Jesse James. Silence. Radio silence. I could see the whites of the eyes of the fans in the first row. They were pissed. I don't know at what, but they were pissed. Before the crowd could even get the B in boo out of their mouth, I came up with a crazy idea. My label had given me some free T-shirts to give away. I grabbed the cordless mic from the sound man backstage, but also grabbed a pile of a hundred or so T-shirts and took them out with me on stage. Atlanta, Georgia, do you want some free shit? I yelled to the crowd. Yeah, they screamed back. Y'all want some t-shirts in the back section? Yeah, to my left. Yeah. I kept throwing out t-shirts until they were all gone. Then, before anyone could even react, I said, Good night, Atlanta. Love you guys and enjoy the show. Color Me Bad is on next. And then I walked off the stage. Didn't sing a word, but I didn't get booed either. Remember when you told me to control my mind the first day you moved in with me? 
Well, I'm telling you in business, control the situation. Yo, Jesse, man, motherfucking Jesse, you see? That's what I'm talking about, motherfucker. That's what I'm talking about, Seal says as we get to the entrance of my office building. 1300. When we get up to my office, I ask Seal if I can have some privacy for a moment. Usually, he sits on the couch and watches me type emails during the day, but this afternoon, I want to be alone. I want to just sit in my chair and think. So, Seal pulls up a chair and places it right in front of my office and closes the door. He sits in front of it like he's guarding the royal palace in London. If anyone has to ask me a question about Zico, well, they'll have to get past Seal first. The fact that we took the morning off makes me feel like I'm on a week's vacation. I recline on my chair and start to think about all that's happened with Seal. I'm reliving the past days in my mind when I'm out. Like saliva drooling out of the side of my mouth, asleep. Three hours later, Seal comes in and wakes me up. Let's get out of here, he says. 7 o'clock p.m. As Seal and I walk into my building's gym that evening, my 24-year-old nephew, Yoni, is leaving. He uses the building gym often, and I run into him like this from time to time. It's always nice to see him. Typically, it's a slap of the hand, a hug, and a quick catch-up. How's laser and how's work? Yoni's in amazing shape. When he moved to New York from Florida 18 months ago, he weighed 240 pounds. I don't know if it was the New York women or what, but something clicked in his brain and he decided to get in shape. He's now about 170 pounds and ripped. He's run several marathons and is a workout junkie. Come on, Yoni, join us, Seal says. We're doing push-ups. I wish. I already ran this morning and swam just now, but thanks. Seal whispers something in my nephew's ear. No idea what he says, but the expression on Yoni's face goes from happy-go-lucky to furrowed and pasty. Whatever Seal said, it manipulated my nephew. He decides to join us. This is what we're going to do, Seal says. 12 push-ups every 45 seconds for 22 minutes. Then 15 pull-ups, 2-minute rest. Then 20 push-ups, 3 pull-ups, 5 sets. Then 100 flutter kicks. I should have left 5 minutes earlier, Yoni whispers. After working out, we all grab a quick bite at the restaurant in our building. It's a bit fancy, but we grab a table in the back and order some light appetizers. The conversation is centered on Yoni and how far he's come with his training. It escalates. Seal somehow convinces Yoni that he should quit his bullshit job running social media for a big hotel chain and join the Navy. And my cockamamie nephew is bought into it. It escalates even further. Now, Seal is convincing him he can pass the Navy SEAL training and become a SEAL. He's going over the requirements and the basic fit test. It escalates even further. Fuck this. Let's start this shit right now. These two knuckleheads decide to head out for a run. I go upstairs, and about 90 minutes later, Seal returns to the apartment. Where's Yoni? Not sure. He fell back about 100 meters at mile four. 90 minutes later, Yoni walks into the apartment. He looks like a pile of split fuck. He has vomit on his fleece and he's super pale. He looks dehydrated. I think I'm more of a social media guy, he says. Workout totals, 364 push-ups, 30 pull-ups, 100 flutter kicks. 
Day 19. My shoulders. You can always keep going. Seal. New York City, 28 degrees, 0700. We head out to the loop around Central Park. I really want to stay in bed and watch the beginning of the Today Show with Sarah, but I'm in a great rhythm with Seal and don't want to let up. Plus, there's only about a week or so left of his time with me. Today's goal sounds simple. 6.1 miles at sub-8-minute mile pace with no mile over 8 minutes. Before I'm halfway through the run, though, my shoulders feel like I'm giving the rapper Fat Joe a piggyback ride. The pain is ridiculous. That's what thousands of push-ups in 10 days will do. I literally, no BS, can't swing my arms as I run because my shoulders hurt so badly. So I run the last three or so miles with my arms flailing. I look like the scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz. The slowest mile in the first five is seven minutes and 45 seconds. The last one is eight minutes and eight seconds. Seal looks at me like I left him on the battlefield. Four hours later. I have a meeting with the brass of a major hotel chain. I'm not really sure what the meeting is about, but my friend Kirk Posmator set it up because he thought I could help the chain. Kirk owns a company called Access Luxury and Lifestyle, and he's the king of connecting dots. If Kirk says it's worth a meeting and exploring, then it's worth a meeting and exploring. I ask Seal to join. There's no need to change, mostly because Seal has nothing to change into. Rather, we throw on our ridiculous-looking weight vests, Seal is again insisting on us wearing them, and we head to the meeting from the apartment. When we arrive, we're greeted by Kirk and four other guys in suits, and they look a lot smarter than me. I'm definitely not prepared for the meeting. In fact, I'm a bit nervous. Nice vest, Kirk says. Oh, this old thing, I laugh. I just threw it on. They're so confused. I immediately introduce Seal and explain that he's living with me for a month and tailing my every move. Wait, like a Navy SEAL SEAL, the Brooks brother guy asks? What kind of training, the Prada suit dude asks? Like lives in your house? The sweater vest pipes in before I can answer any of the questions. All these guys want to do is talk about our workouts and why I hired SEAL. These guys are looking at me like I just invented the internet. They're blown away. It's like when a stock on the New York Stock Exchange is halted and no business can be conducted. They're obsessed with our dynamic. They keep asking questions. Two hours pass, and it's a question-and-answer frenzy. At the end of the meeting, they say to me, if you have any ideas for us, let us know. We want to do something with you. It's like Seal's a secret weapon. He's the best closer. I'm slowly realizing how appealing Seal is to others. Men in suits are fascinated by a guy like Seal. His work ethic, his workouts, his history. So, indirectly, they're becoming more interested in me. 1900. Tonight is my company's holiday party. And of course, Seal's invited. I'm not sure if he wants to go, but he's coming. He deserves to be here. I mean, his mere presence practically signed Kevin Garnett for us. We all have a lot to celebrate. It's been a great year. The party's a low-key dinner and all 12 employees attend. I'm worried a bit about how Seal will interact in a social setting. I mean, there's a good chance he'll sit there and not say a word. He can be like a sphinx. When he comes to work with me every day, he never talks to anyone, ever. Never logs onto a computer, never reads a paper. He just sits there until it's time to go. 
It's like having a piece of artwork in my office. I know he's trained to go off the grid, but it's wild. Not only to me, but to everyone I work with. Seal once told me that when he came back from a mission, when everyone would sit around and smoke and decompress, he'd go running. After a 24-hour mission, he would work out. Well, as it turns out, I don't have to worry about Seal interacting with anyone tonight because he's on a food mission. I realize Seal's eating habits are more complicated than I originally thought. For two weeks, he hardly ate at all except for his military-grade shakes. But at dinner this evening, he eats like a wood chipper. Steak, fish, fruits, vegetables, you name it. It goes down the hatch. Everything except dessert. Why would I want to waste the calories, he says. My employees seem a little looser than they usually are during the workday. Maybe it's the cocktails. They're all obsessed with Seal. They ask him a million questions and get one-word answers back. They're intimidated and intrigued. It's like everyone wants to sit next to him, but nobody wants to sit next to him. Most of the people at the party have been following the blog, so they know what to ask, but are afraid to ask it. Um, excuse me, do you mind telling me what you think has been the hardest workout so far? Um, sorry to bother you, but can you explain what 1 to 18 is? If you don't mind, uh, would you tell me the Boston story? My employees are asking questions like we're in a conference room with a new potential client pitching us a product. It keeps going, and he keeps eating. When all is said and done, Seal's food intake constitutes 75% of the dinner bill for the night. Amazing. On another note, we're serving sake at the party. I like sake. I do a shot, then another, and another, all the way to eight, well, maybe nine. It's on. First drinks in 18 days. Best I've felt in 18 days. Seal's totally cool with it. He's letting me do my thing and enjoying his whole pass as well. The euphoria doesn't last. When we get home, I definitely need to sleep. I was up at 6 a.m., worked out, had an 11-hour workday followed by the party and all the alcohol. I'm toast. I can't wait to go to bed. My body and brain are both in agreement. The day should be over, but my gut tells me it isn't. It's sort of like when you're in third grade and look out at the one inch of snow that fell overnight. You hope school will be canceled, but you know better. So regardless of what my brain and body are rooting for, I make my way to my bedroom to get my shorts and sneakers. Seal smiles. You know we got to do it, right? Yes. I'm buzzed. And doing push-ups when you're buzzed is a whole different kind of thing. I actually think it may be easier at first. The first ones are funny. It's like you don't really know you're doing them. With all the alcohol and the up-and-down push-up movement mixing to form a more intense buzz. But as you move on, that buzz turns to a I'm fucked feeling. I fight through the fuck feeling and we do 10 push-ups on the minute for 20 minutes. That's another 200 down. It's easy to write 200 on paper, but it's another thing to do them. I have no idea how many push-ups the average 40-plus man can do, but I'm guessing around 20 at one shot. Doing 200 is a big number. It's not easy. I get into my bed and throw Sports Center on. I'm fucked up. Workout totals. Six miles. Sub-eight-minute mile pace. And 200 push-ups. Day 20. 
Start when the second hand hits. If you're hungry, run faster. You'll be home quicker. Seal. New York City, 32 degrees, 0600. I get out of bed and head into the kitchen. It's pitch dark outside and cloudy. It looks brutally cold, but the thermometer says 32 degrees. I look out of my window onto Columbus Circle, and there's nobody outside. It looks like an old, barren movie set. Seal is already in the kitchen, sitting on a stool at our island, just sitting. We're going to focus on the basics this morning, push-ups and sit-ups. It all starts with the basics, Seal says. It's true. My time with Seal has convinced me the days of the fancy gym memberships are numbered. Things like CrossFit and street workouts are going to prevail in the future. All you really need to do is get your push-ups and sit-up routine consistent, and you can see amazing results. I have another philosophy. You can be fit without being healthy, but you can't be healthy without being fit. Meaning, you can be in great shape on the outside, but if you don't eat great and don't take care of your insides, you aren't necessarily healthy. History shows us there were plenty of athletes who were in great shape but suddenly died of a heart attack. Balance is key. I also believe being in really good shape takes a combination of many components. For starters, you have to be strong, but you also have to be explosive, flexible, capable of running stop-and-go sprints and running long distances. You need the full package. So, back to basics. I do 10 push-ups followed by as many sit-ups as I can until the second hand on the clock hits 12 again. Then I start the push-ups and sit-ups again. We repeat that for 30 minutes nonstop. By the end of the workout, my core muscles, chest, and triceps are cooked. Plus, my heart rate is up in the mid-150s. The full package. 1300. My friend Brian Freed comes over to hang out for a few hours. I've known Freed for a long time, and he's part of my Wonderful Wednesday group. Six friends who run together every Wednesday, hence the name. He's also a professional cyclist and in great shape. I think Seal is in his room, but I told him I had a friend coming over, so I assume he'll come out and say hi. This beats your first apartment, Brian says, getting comfortable on my couch. It does, I say, but there was some charm to that place. When did you live there? 93? Yeah. It was on 60th between 1st and York. This was long before they renovated the 59th Street Bridge area. It was actually the mecca of transvestite prostitution. Every night, coming home from the bars was an adventure. The first week living there, I didn't even make eye contact. It only took a week or two for all the prostitutes to know that Spit, my roommate, and I weren't looking for dates. Well, I should say, we weren't looking for those kind of dates. In no time, we coexisted, but the crib wasn't exactly the Ritz-Carlton. We had to walk up 162 steps to get to our 150-square-foot apartment. The kitchen and bathroom were one room. There was no bedroom. I slept in a loft space with a six-foot ceiling. I couldn't sit up in bed and had to walk up these little steps to get to my mattress. I'd roll just to get into bed. And looking back, I had absolutely the best time living there. It was like sleeping on a ship. I paid $350 and Spit paid $417 a month. We lived there for two years. My office then was the apartment living room. I'd bought a television and it came in a huge cardboard box. So I flipped the box upside down and that was my desk. It took up half the apartment. 
I write all the phone numbers, dates, appointments on the box. The only rule in the apartment was you couldn't drink on my desk. That box was my whole life. I had it forever. It was so organized. I knew where everyone's phone number was. I knew every appointment. I loved living as a struggling artist. My mindset was a creative eat-what-you-kill. I was enjoying the fact that I was even in this position. I worked all day hitting the phone or studio if I had a job, and then at night, I was hitting the bars. Just as Brian and I are getting situated on the couch, laughing and talking, Seal walks in the room to shake Brian's hand. I think Seal wants to show off his work on me to date as he says, let's knock out a quick five-minute round of push-ups. Freed and I agree. Seal pulls out his watch and we begin. We do 10 push-ups on the 30-second dial. By the time we're three minutes into it, Freed is down to seven. I keep pace. Five minutes pass and we're done. I'm able to do them all. Freed is cooked. Seal is proud of his student. 2100. Seal pulls me off the couch where I'm comfortably watching ESPN. Let's do a cool down, are his exact words. To Seal, a cool down is an eight mile run. To me, a cool down is the last thing I want to do. I put on all my shit and give Sarah a kiss. Although we've been doing this for weeks, she can tell I'm tired and have already had multiple workouts today. She can tell I'm pissed. Honey, this is really ridiculous. You're overdoing it. We run through Central Park, into Harlem, up around the 125th Street, and start to head back. There are three specific highlights from the run. One, three miles into the run, I ask Seal if he has $2, the only words we have said to each other, all run. He says, for what? I respond, I haven't eaten all day. I need an energy bar or a banana. He says, we have five miles left. If you're hungry, run faster. You'll be home quicker. Two, Seal hears a dog nearby in the woods while we're running. I didn't hear a thing, but apparently Seal has extrasensory hearing. Seal says under his breath to himself to the invisible dog, try me, motherfucker. I mean it. Try me. Let me be perfectly honest. He said it in a way where it sounded like he wanted the dog to attack him. The dog was smart. We never saw him. Three, there are millions of people in New York City, literally millions. Yet tonight, we only saw one other person running in all of Central Park. We're home at 10.25 p.m. At the doorstep to our building, Seal says to me, it's not what you do, it's when and how you do it. It's all about the conditions. Remember that. Ten minutes later. We have to hustle because we need to get to the airport and go down to Atlanta for a lightning-quick trip. Sarah has a meeting in the morning and has asked us to keep her company. I want to stay in New York City and work, but Seal reminds me, you're not in control here, bro. And he's right. If my wife wants to roll to Atlanta, we roll to Atlanta. So we fly out at midnight. The plan is to go there and fly back in just 24 hours. Workout totals. Eight miles, 400 push-ups, and 550 sit-ups. White van. I can sit still for hours. Waiting. Seal. The next morning, I see Seal sitting absolutely still on the windowsill of our Atlanta house. The sun is still coming up. He's staring out at something. Maybe he's watching the sunrise, but I doubt it. He's dead silent. He doesn't even acknowledge me when I enter the kitchen. His eyes are locked onto the empty street outside. 
staring. I open the refrigerator and pour some juice into a glass. I intentionally make it noisy. No acknowledgement. Zero. He doesn't flinch. Staring. Everything cool? Not really, Seal says, staring. He pauses for a moment. He might see something. This shit is starting to get to me, like it's making me uncomfortable. Real uncomfortable. What? You telling me you haven't noticed, Seal asks, still staring. No, what? That white van, he says. I look outside. There's nothing. The street's empty, but it looks like it's going to be a nice day. Man, this van keeps driving by. It's like they're toying with me, bro, like they're clowning me, Seal says. I look back out the kitchen window. I still don't see anything. Where? No, not now. Usually around 0200 when I'm on lookout, he says. Lookout? Yeah, lookout. Last time I was here at night, I was sitting outside monitoring, and the van creeped up. They were looking at the house. Fucking creepers. Seal continues to stare out the window. Not once does he look at me. I didn't get a read on the plate, he says, but I'm on to them. Seal ponders his thought. By the way, you need to install an infrared camera at the west side of the driveway adjacent to the mailbox. Immediately. It needs to be angled toward oncoming traffic. We can plan around it to make it blend in with the bush. I got a guy that can install ASAP. That way, we can't miss him. We've been breached, dude. Don't ignore this. Breached? You've seen the van, right? Actually, I haven't seen any cars in front of the house. Seal turns to me with a blank, cold, motionless face. He's pissed. Really pissed. It's a van, bro. It's not a car. It's a fucking van. The kind that looks like it's going to do some shit it ain't supposed to be doing. Seal stares back out the window again at nothing. Does the van think I'm some kind of fuckwad? I don't think I'm supposed to answer that question. I'm going to camp out on this motherfucker, he says. Camp out? Fuck yeah. I'm going to camp out and wait for his ass. Seal pounds his fist against the wall. At night? Not at night. Every night, he says. I'll be out there on a lawn chair every night till that joker pulls up again. Then I'm going to blast a high beam light directly into his eyes and storm the vehicle. I'm going to corner this fucker. I'm done playing defense. Seal pauses in thought, then says, The thing is, he probably has no idea I'm even playing defense right now. He probably thinking to himself, Ho-hum, the Itzlers are asleep. But no ho-hum, the Itzlers are not asleep. The goblins are awake at the Itzlers' house, bro, he cackles. The goblins are wide awake and still staring. Day 21, one rep at a time. I don't like to talk to strangers. Actually, I don't like to talk, period. Seal. New York City, 19 degrees, 0900. We're back in the city and we head out to do a modified loop in the park. Seal tells me we're going to run 10 miles today in reverse order, meaning four miles this morning and six miles at night. Usually we do a longer run in the morning and a cool down at night. Today, we do the first four miles at an eight-minute-per-mile pace. Four-mile runs are becoming easy breezy. I spend countless hours with Seal running by now, and we haven't spoken a word pounding the pavement for days. Complete radio silence when we run. Nothing ever said. Hey, Seal, what do you think about when you run? Finishing. And he does. It's like he's able to block out all the clutter in his head and the world, for that matter, and just focus on the task at hand. Say what you want, 
but the dude has mastered the art of being present. There's something really cool about that. As for me, I have a million things running through my brain. Sarah, laser, work, meetings, Zico and Coke, training, the pipes freezing, blah, blah, blah. It's like there's a six-lane express highway running through my brain and traffic's coming both ways. It's very hard for me to get my thoughts, worries, and ideas out of my mind. It's a bit overwhelming and stressful. However, with Seal Around, I'm learning how to be more present. It's primarily because I have to. If I don't, there's no way I'll be able to finish the tasks at hand. I just go one step at a time, one rep at a time, and when I'm done, I worry about the next step or rep. I'm finding that there's some crossover to my life as well. Now, I finish the first thing on my list with 100% focus and then attack the next. Thanks, Seal. 2030. After a light meal of plain pasta with nothing on it, sliced carrots, cucumbers, and a glass of water, it's time for the second half of our reverse run. I would prefer to wait about an hour for my food to digest, but Seal doesn't want to lose an hour of his life. So we go. As we ride the elevator down to the lobby of my building, I explain that I feel bloated. I like to run on an empty stomach and have a very hard time running with anything in me. That goes for races of any distance, including marathons. Pre-marathons, all I ever eat are bananas. So I ask Seal how he approaches nutrition during his long races. I need calories when I'm running that long. I've trained myself to be able to eat while I'm running. I can take in 600 to 1,000 calories an hour, no problem, but it takes getting used to. I hear the same thing from other ultramarathon runners. They become capable of eating large amounts of food during their races. Dean Karnazes, a legendary runner who put ultramarathoning on the map, is famous for eating pizza during some of his longer runs. He actually orders and has the delivery guy meet him on the course so he can get the pizza and eat it during the race. All that's good, but none of it's working for me as we start to run. I can feel the sustenance in my stomach bouncing. I'm belching every couple of strides. It's like the pasta, carrots, and cucumbers have set up a picket line in my belly and are protesting against one more step. We're not even at mile one yet, and I feel heavy and sick. Seal? Couldn't give three shits and keeps pace. In fact, I think he senses my discomfort and speeds the pace up a bit to make me feel even worse. At around mile four, I somehow figure out that if I breathe exclusively through my diaphragm, it feels a little better. I incorporate an unorthodox breathing style for the last two miles and make it home. It takes about an hour for my stomach to settle down, but the run is in the books. Another 10-mile day. Book it. Workout totals, 10 miles at 8-minute-per-mile pace. Days 22 and 23, night training. Be ready for anything at any time, SEAL. New York City to Connecticut, 11 degrees to 9 degrees, 1,400. It's the Christmas holiday. New York City is lit up and beautiful. If you've never been to New York during this time, it's really special. The streets are quiet and all the stores are shut down as people prepare to spend the day with loved ones celebrating. Our family, which now includes Seal, decides to head back up to Connecticut. I love the holidays, especially with all the winter elements. There's something in the air that just makes me feel festive. Regardless of religion or beliefs, 
For the most part, everyone's in the spirit of giving, even Seal. Steele and I head out for a quick six-mile run in the mountains. It's a maintenance run at an 8 minutes and 30 second clip, meaning we're not getting better during this run, but we're not getting worse either. We're maintaining our shit, he tells me. When we get back home, I shower up and change. I meet Sarah in the family room. As she and I exchange some Hanukkah and Christmas gifts, Seal comes into the room holding something in his hands. He's protecting it like a fullback with a football near the goal line. Your boy's got an inner toughness, Seal says. I wanted to capture that in a gift. And he hands a present to Laser. I'm wondering, is it a toy truck? Blocks? Soccer ball? Nope. It's a miniature camouflage outfit complete with hat. Real army fatigues. A unique gift for a two-year-old. Sarah then gives Seal a present from us. She really wanted to. And right after he opens it, she asks him to try it on. He politely declines. Seal isn't big into receiving gifts. Most humans like gifts. Seal looks at gifts like they're clutter. She asks again, and he respectfully says, later. By the third time, my wife is no longer asking. She's insisting. Even Seal doesn't dare mess with her. Seal goes into the bedroom to change, but now he doesn't want to come out. But after a minute or two, he reluctantly appears. Out walks Seal in a very nice, casual dress shirt your standard light blue button-down. It looks nice on him. But judging from Seal's expression, you'd think he's wearing a straitjacket. I hand Sarah the gifts that I got her the other day at Barney's. She can tell by the size of the box that it's jewelry. She opens it up and puts the necklace around her neck. I love it, sweetie, but what I really love is that you went out of your way for me. Love you. A for effort. 1900. It's frigid and snowy. The family's feeling good. We're all together. A typical late December in the Itzler household might be a fire in the fireplace, some blankets, and a movie once Laser goes to bed. I'd usually vote for something with a little bit of edge to it, but Sarah would lobby, and win, for a romantic comedy. It's bedtime, Sarah says to Laser. He's on the floor playing with Seal. They've got action heroes and matchbox cars and are saving the world. Somehow, Seal has created a realistic village made up of blocks and tanks attacking from all directions. Seal's barking orders like it's a real-life raid. He's taking it way too seriously. But Laser? He's actually interested and looks like he's enjoying himself, which alarms me. 0200. It's 2 a.m. and snowing like crazy. The door to my bedroom is locked, and I'm sleeping when I hear what sounds like someone trying to pick the lock of my door. The door handle's making noises like it's being pulled and tugged from the other side of the door. Then the sound I hear is like when a dog is scratching to get into the room while the handle's being pulled and tugged some more. I get out of my bed to check. I put my ear to the door to hear what's going on, but now I don't hear anything. Silence. So I bend down and get on all fours to look under the door crack to see if I see anything. Sure enough, I see Seal sneakers by the door. I stand up and pull open the door, and Seal is standing right there. It's time, he says. Seal tells me the plan is to run four miles every four hours for 48 hours. Twelve runs of four miles each every four hours. He calls it the 4-4-48. Are you kidding me? Well, apparently he's not. 
In fact, we're going to train for it by running four and a quarter miles four times in 24 hours or four runs every six hours. I'm about to ask Seal's logic behind this, but instead I just say, are you kidding me? 0230. I open up my phone so I can get the light on it to shine, and then I use it as a flashlight. I don't want to put the bedroom lights on because that might wake up Sarah. She's been super cool about everything to date, but I'm not sure she would want me running in the snow at 2 a.m. in the mountains of Connecticut. I go to my closet and quickly open up my drawers to get my gear. I feel like I'm sleepwalking, but I know that's wishful thinking. I layer up, tiptoe out of the bedroom, and head downstairs to the front door. Seal is already outside. I'm wearing a thermal, a hoodie, a hat, two pairs of gloves, and thermal pants. Seal is in shorts, a hoodie, and gloves. It's freezing outside, wet and freezing. We head out. Every step feels like I'm about to fall off the earth. It's pitch black. I mean pitch. Five minutes into the run, Seal turns to me and says, rough road ahead, 20 meters. Now, how could he possibly know that? I can't see one meter in front of me. In fact, I'm not sure I even know what a meter is. I mastered military time, but I'm not up on the metric system. Anyway, apparently Seal's eyesight is not affected by darkness. It's like he has night vision without the night vision goggles. He sees fine. It's also bitter cold. My fingertips are completely numb. Seal runs like he's in Anguilla. It's 80 degrees and sunny. Meanwhile, the snow hits my frozen face like BB gun pellets. I'm squinting to see and closing my eyes for 30 seconds at a clip to keep the snow from pounding into my eyeballs. I'm no longer in the holiday spirit. Soon we hit a patch of rough road. I say to myself, that must be how far 20 meters is. We move on. We run four and a half miles in exactly 40 minutes. When we get home, we don't even turn the lights on. Our eyes are so adjusted to the dark that I can actually see fine in my pitch dark house. Apparently, SEAL's built-in night vision goggles have rubbed off on me. I strip naked and put all of my clothing in the dryer. My skin has red blotches all over from the cold and I'm freezing. I put on two sweatshirts and a ski hat and get into bed. Sarah is sound asleep next to me. Approximately four hours later, my phone alarm goes off. I got about three hours of sleep. I get my clothes out of the dryer. If only they were still warm. Seal is waiting at the front door. When we open the door, a bunch of snow falls into my foyer. It's 12 degrees outside. We head out. It's still as dark outside as when we got in from the last run, and it's still as cold and wet. It's like groundhog night. My muscles are super stiff from the cold and the mileage, and my feet hurt when they hit the hard, snowy pavement. We do the same run as before in 38 minutes. Brutal. Four hours later, 19 degrees. It's run number three in our 24 hours of runs every four hours. The hardest part so far has been the process of exerting myself, cooling down, and then having to start again. The restart's a bitch. Seal throws me a bone and says, if we do the loop in less than 38 minutes, we don't have to run again in four hours. That's a bone I like. Thus begins the great debate. Do we go out hard, the first mile is tough with big elevation, or do we pace ourselves? Seal says, go hard. Let's go, I say. Out of 100 runs on this mountain course, 
my fastest first mile ever is exactly nine minutes per mile. Trust me, this run is hilly. We do this one in eight minutes and seven seconds. We're flying. I'm gasping for air, literally. As we get to the top of the hill, 1.1 miles, I feel like I'm cramping. I keep going and it gets worse. I can't run. Stop the clock for a second. Something's off. Groin pull? It's so damn cold out, I can't officially diagnose myself until we get home. We walk the one mile back. The sweat pours off of me. I guess Seal was right. It is 80 and sunny, but with each step back, it feels like the temperature drops a degree. Then my body heat mixes with the cold and creates a thick white vapor that rises from my skin. I'm a human chimney. After we get home into frost, I confirm it. It is indeed my groin. I'm an abject pain. It's impossible to run. Push-ups instead, Seal says. We do 10 sets of 30 with a one-minute break in between. Drops of ice start to fall off my face as I go down and start the push-up routine. Is this the hardest 48 hours you've ever had, Seal asks. Physically, yeah, I say. Then again, this is even harder than the Grand Hill shit. The basketball player? Yeah, I say. You train with him? No. Then what the fuck are you talking about? One time, Foot Locker hired me and my partner Kenny to do a national radio campaign. It was part of the work we were doing for our company, Alphabet City. We were up against some other agencies, but we won the account because I promised them I could get Grant Hill to be in the commercial. Hill had been the NBA's Rookie of the Year and was a bona fide rising superstar. He was a big get. They wanted him, and I promised we could get him. No problem, I said. But there was a problem. I didn't know Grant Hill. After we signed Foot Locker to do the campaign, I learned Grant was making an appearance at a Foot Locker in Manhattan. So my plan was to approach him right at the event. All I needed to do was get Hill to say something like, Hi, this is Grant Hill, and I'm shopping at Foot Locker this holiday season. And then insert it into a radio spot. Then Foot Locker would give him a $500 gift certificate, and I would be on my way. Easy, right? Except that, I missed the event. I could go into a whole long explanation of what happened, but I'll save you the time. I just blew it. The next day, the CEO of Foot Locker called me and asked if I got Grand Hill, and I had to tell him, no. You got 48 hours, he said, or the deal's off. I immediately got the NBA schedule and found out the Orlando Magic, Grand Hill's team, was playing the Hawks that night. I went straight to LaGuardia and headed for Atlanta. I got to the arena at 10.30 in the morning, even though the game didn't tip off until 7.30 at night. It was so early that I was able to walk right into the arena. Some marching band was rehearsing, and nobody questioned me because I was with the band. I knew that players typically showed up at 5.30 for a 7.30 game, so I had a lot of time to kill. I just walked around like I knew what I was doing and just tried to look busy. Though it seemed like forever, eventually some of the Orlando magic began to show up. I stood at a payphone and pretended to make a call as I waited for Grant. And then I saw my mark. I walked right up to him as he came through the player entrance. Hey, Grant, it's Jesse from Foot Locker. I flew down and I'm here to get the audio clip I was supposed to get on Saturday, I said. You ready now? What audio clip? Right, the audio clip from the Foot Locker event? Okay, let's talk about it after the game, he said, walking past me. No, no, I said, I have to get it now and get back on the plane. 
He kept walking into the locker room, so I leaned over and pulled his ear close to my mouth. Grant, look into my eyes. I'm going to lose my job if I don't get this done. I cannot go home without this. I flew down here on my own dime today to get this. I don't know what it is, but they need it. The CEO sent me. Maybe he saw the genuine fear in my eyes or heard it in my plea or whatever the case. He obliged. Okay, he said, follow me. So I walked into the locker room with all the players goofing off and starting to get ready for the game. I pull out my handheld recorder and hand them a script. But it's too loud in the locker room. So I take him into the bathroom stall and close the door. I hand Grant the script again and push record. Hey, this is Grant Hill, and this holiday season, you can find me at Foot Locker. Foot Locker has got you covered. Halfway through the third line, he said, Who are you again, and what is this being used for? Grant, I've been on the phone with your agent all day. This is part of the Foot Locker package you did. They're running a holiday promotion. I was just throwing words at him. It's the uh, audio part. I was hoping he might pick up some buzzwords and think I actually was supposed to be there. Okay, fine, he said and finished it, and then I ran out. As soon as I got out of the arena, I headed back to the airport and called Kenny from another payphone and played him the recording. The next day, it was on national radio. That's some funny shit, Steele said without cracking a smile. Do you want to hear about the big red chicken now? No. 3 o'clock p.m. Seal takes me down to the gym to do some push-ups. Our Connecticut house has a gym on the bottom floor. Adjacent to the gym is a steam room and a sauna. It's like a mini training facility, and I love hanging out down there. I bought this house seven years ago and gutted the entire place right after the closing. At the time, I was building Marquee Jet, and I wanted a place where I could entertain customers. One of the most important things I told the decorator was that I wanted a steam room that you never want to leave. Yeah, I picked out colors and approved floor plans, but I really only cared about the steam room. This gym and spa area are my personal retreat. We do 20 sets of 20 push-ups with a one-minute break in between each set. Let me repeat, 20 sets of 20 push-ups. The first 10 are actually fairly easy, but the second half starts to get the better of me. I push my way through it and get to the final set. I'm jacked up sore. Finish up. Get this shit done, fucker. I do. I have to hold the plank position in between reps for about 20 seconds on each of the last 20 push-ups, but I get it done. That's 700 so far today, including the 300 we did earlier. Seal begs me to do 300 more to get to 1,000 push-ups. He begs me. I physically can't, I say. And I mean it. I can't do one more push-up. I can't even hold the downward dog pose. I head upstairs with my arms dangling by my sides. We call it a day and I relax on my couch. I grab the sports business journal and get caught up on recent transactions. The few hours of downtime are like a vacation, and I'm feeling cozy. Workout totals, 16.1 miles and 700 push-ups. Day 24, whiteout. The tougher the conditions, the more I like my odds. Seal. Connecticut, 5 degrees, 0600. We wake up to blizzard conditions. 16 inches of snow with 30 miles per hour winds and minus 7 degrees with wind chill. Miraculously, my groin feels better. Maybe it was just a cramp. 
Repeatedly scrolling across the bottom of my television screen is an extreme weather warning. The local news in Connecticut is advising everyone to stay inside unless it's an emergency. This is fucking perfect, Seal says. I guess he considers this an emergency. He stares at the TV, bobbing his head like he's listening to Jay-Z, only he's not wearing any headphones. Finally, he says, we gotta head out. We run 3.5 miles in the mountains. Seal decides to wear the 50-pound weight vest. He's out of his mind. I can't explain how hard this run is, in these conditions, with a 50-pound weight vest on. When we get home, I think I'm frostbitten. My shirt is so cold and wet, it hurts to take it off. In fact, my shirt is actually frozen. When I manage to get it off, it sits upright in my chair. We do 144 push-ups, plus an extra 10 for good measure. 2 o'clock p.m. Sarah goes outside to get the mail. The mailbox is at the end of the driveway, about 50 yards away once you walk out the front door. The only obstacle or threat between our front door and getting our mail is the grass, which is covered by snow. The danger would be that someone slips on a patch of ice. What I mean is, getting the mail is not a high-wire act. It's not something on our radar as far as a thing to worry about. Sarah returns holding three envelopes and a fashion catalog. She begins to open the catalog. Seal is livid. Sarah, you need to mix up your pattern. Pattern? Yeah, your pattern. Pattern. The time you get the mail. That's your pattern. It's the same every day. It's predictable. I get the mail after lunch, she says. That's the most convenient time. Why after lunch, Seal asks, baffled. That seems common. Because that's when the mailman comes, she replies. He delivers the mail after lunch. Exactly. You know that. And I know that. The mailman most definitely knows that. So I bet everyone knows that. For sure your neighbors know that. But I'm just getting the mail. At my house. On our property, she says. Just do me a favor. Change up the pickup time. Go an hour or so later tomorrow. Break the pattern, Sarah. Break the pattern. 2100. Sarah and I have dinner before we put laser down for bed. Nothing fancy, just some veggie burgers and salad that we whipped up. Shortly after we get laser to go to sleep, we get into bed together to watch some TV. I'm fading into sleepland, but can sense that Sarah is still up and watching CNN. At around 9 o'clock p.m., I feel Sarah get out of bed. She's doing it in a way not to wake me, but I'm slowly learning to be on alert. I'm awake. Where are you going, sweetie, I ask. I hear something in the basement. It sounds like our generator's kicked in. What are you talking about? Sarah heads down before I can ask another question to check out the noise. About eight minutes later, Sarah returns. She crawls back into bed and tells me, no biggie, Seal's on the stationary bike. He wants to get some mileage in and didn't want to ride in the snow. The next morning we wake up at 7 a.m. and the generator sound is still making the same noise. This time, I head downstairs. As I get closer, I can hear the noise coming from the gym, and music's playing in the background. I open the door to the gym, and a wave of hot air attacks me. It's like someone's holding a hairdryer on high and pointing it at my face. The room feels like a sauna, and the windows are all fogged up. Straight ahead, I see Seal on the stationary bike with his shirt off and a puddle of sweat on the floor. He doesn't look up. Clearly, he knows I'm there but he does not say a word. 
not even a hello or a good morning. He doesn't look happy. Shocker, I know. He keeps riding. He rode the entire night, 10 hours straight. Workout totals, 3.5 miles and 154 push-ups. Day 25, get your balls wet. Fear is one of the best motivators. Anger is the other. Seal. Connecticut, 5 degrees, 0930. Seal takes me on a five-mile run up Wanzer Hill. Wanzer Hill is the main road in my development, and it's so steep, it's almost vertical. There should be double black diamonds on the street sign. Cars can't get up it in good weather. Other hills don't even want to be in the same neighborhood as Wanzer Hill. It's that intimidating. Plus, there's snow and black ice everywhere, making the run slower, harder, colder. Didn't Seal just ride a bike all night? What the fuck? He didn't even stop. When we get home after the run, I complain that the tendon in my foot is killing me, recurring basketball injury, and my foot is swollen, really swollen. I got a solution. Let's go into the lake and freeze your foot, Seal says. Go into the lake? The lake's frozen. I'm not playing. Let's go, he says. I know this is the dumbest idea ever, but there's something about it I like. I get excited. I've always wondered how cold the water under the top layer of ice in a frozen lake is. We run down the hill from my house to the lake in two feet of snow. I'm in sneakers, socks, shorts, and a sweatshirt. It's about 300 yards at a steady decline. I stumble twice and faceplant before I reach the bottom. Seal descends flawlessly and effortlessly. When we arrive, he immediately takes off his shoes and finds a hole in the ice big enough to fit him and jumps in. The lake is frozen, but not completely. Parts of the lake by the shore have thin patches of ice. Hold on to the floating ice, he says. I swear this happened. I crawl onto the frozen lake and inch my way toward the hole where Seal jumped in. Get the fuck in, motherfucker. Get the fuck in. He's lost his mind. No, I can't. I'm sorry. I can't. Get the fuck in, motherfucker. Get the fuck in, he says again. His lips are blue. You fucking pussy, Itzler, get the fuck in. I take off my shoes. I take off my socks. This is insane. Get in. Balls deep. Get in, Itzler. I jump in up to my knees. It feels like someone's sawing off my legs. Or maybe it feels like I wish someone would saw off my legs. Deeper, he yells. I inch my way deeper up to my waist. Then all of a sudden, his expression changes. It's no longer taught with anger. Now it's furrowed and worried. We got five minutes till frostbite. Get out now. What? Don't touch your skin to the ice as you get out. It'll stick, he yells. What? Like that motherfucker in Christmas story. Grab your sneakers and use them as gloves. Climb out of the hole in the ice and crawl across the ice with your bare feet sticking up, he yells. It takes two minutes to get to land. My mind is counting down like MacGyver. We have about three minutes left until frostbite. We run up the hill toward my house with shoes off, barefoot in the snow. Seal's yelling again. We have two minutes. Run! Halfway up the hill, my body's fueled by fear. There isn't a coherent thought in my head other than get up this hill. My toes are going to fall off. I can't feel one thing from my knees down. With each stride I take, I feel like my legs could shatter like an antique teacup hitting the floor. This is bad. 
Finally, we reach the top. We go inside, peel off our wet clothing, dry off with towels and coats and anything we can grab. Sarah stands there, and I don't think I've ever seen her so angry. That's the dumbest thing I've ever seen, she yells. I'm sorry, I say. Sorry? You're a dad. Everyone knows not to go near ice on a frozen lake. She turns to Seal. And you, she says to him, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Tell me what the medical benefit of jumping into a frozen lake is. There is none, Sarah. This is what your husband signed up for. There's no benefit. Fifteen minutes later, Seal comes and finds me and says, we got to capitalize on this shit. We got to capitalize on this adrenaline. What? We do 15 sets of 15 push-ups on the minute, 225 push-ups. The entire time, I'm thinking to myself, nobody would ever believe this. Nobody. But I'm so far into it, I'm now embracing the challenges. It's like I'm over the hump, and I can't help but feel a little proud. 20 minutes later, Seal comes into my bedroom. I'm sitting with my feet elevated to ease my swollen ankle. We only have four days left. We need to push our limits. Your work isn't done. You aren't ready to go back into the real world, Seal says. I pause and then realize, he's right. My life with Seal isn't the real world. Then I think about him leaving. There's going to be a huge hole. These past 25 days have been like any other in my life. I didn't think this was possible, but I'm going to miss him. I'm going to miss the insanity. I'm going to miss the pain. I'm going to miss having him in charge. Let's make tacos tonight for dinner, I say. Tacos? Fuck tacos, he says. We're going into the steam room. The steam room? Yeah, the fucking steam room. Setting that bitch at 125 degrees and we're in there for 30 minutes. No dumping water on our heads. No talking, obviously. And only 12 ounces of drinking water allowed in. I'm going to test your will. Seal sets the temp dial for 125 degrees and we wait 20 minutes until it's properly heated. We strip to our undies and go in. To maximize the effect, Seal tells me to sit on my hands and keep my arms locked straight. That will force our backs to be straight and our heads to be closer to the ceiling of the steam. Heat rises, he says. (laughs) No kidding. By keeping our heads up, we will get maximum exposure, he repeats. So we go in. Five minutes? Okay. Ten minutes? Okay. 12 minutes, I drink all 12 ounces of water. 15 minutes, okay. 20 minutes, mm, not so okay. I hear a hissing sound. It's hard for me to see with my eyeball sweating. I hope the hissing isn't coming out of me. My heart rate is up and pounding. My skin looks like boiled chicken. I'm overheating. I'm nauseous. Seal sits in the opposite corner of the steam room and I can barely make him out. I hear him whistling and it's driving me mad. It sounds like a Beach Boy song. It can't be. I'm hallucinating. Only nine more minutes, I tell myself, but it's not working. I try to think about baseball, Jeter's baseball average, Mariano Rivera's whip. I'm losing my mind. Now I know how a Hot Pocket feels inside a microwave. One, two, three, four. I start counting to 100 in my head. 11, 12, 13, I'm drifting into faint city. I don't think I can do it, I say, finally breaking the 21 minutes of silence. I'm sorry. I don't even wait for him to respond. I leap up and thrust open the door, almost breaking the glass. 
Seal follows me out, steam pouring into the room as the door stays open. Okay, 30-second rest and then back in. I don't move. He looks closer. Whoa, he says, looking down at me crouched against the wall. You don't look so good. He looks blurry and his face is distorted like in a funhouse mirror. Goggles give, I respond. Man, we need to abort, he says. Abort? I sit in the chair outside my steam room for what feels like a day, alone. Seal does not come to check on me. My head is pounding. After 35 minutes, I finally begin to cool down. My heart rate's at 119. I'm sweating like I'm in the desert in August. I down five Zikos, and it takes 90 minutes before I begin to feel remotely human. Two hours later. I've relocated to my bedroom and Seal comes in. I'm under the covers watching CNN. He asks if I'm better. A little, I say. Good, let's go. Let's go? You don't even know what suffering is, motherfucker. He says with a look like he means it. He's right. I've lived a sheltered life. He tells me to do a slow jog by myself outside to loosen up my joints. The ones that were fused together in the steam room or the ones that were frozen together in the lake. He wants me to understand myself better. He wants me to feel the isolation. I'm not sure where he's going with this. In fact, uh, I don't know what the hell he's talking about. But I go outside, alone. Before I leave, he hands me a flashlight because it's starting to get dark so early now. Watch the black ice, he says. Thanks. I do a four and a half mile slow jog. When I come home, Seal's waiting at the door. He's literally sitting outside by my front door in the snow, eating a fucking apple. Nice work. You need that personal mind frame, he says. I still have no idea what he's talking about. Now, get your strength up and do 100 push-ups before you can come in the house. That's 10 every 30 seconds. I'm not fucking around, man. This isn't sleepaway camp in upstate fuckville. Again, what? But I get down and start to knock out the push-ups. Seal disqualifies my first one. Start over. Your nose needs to touch the snow. We're past this make-believe shit. Twenty hundred. Fuck, tacos is right. I eat up two veggie burgers. I'm obsessed with the Morningstar Grillers Prime, and tonight, I feel like I can eat the whole box. As soon as the microwave beeps, indicating my meal's ready, in comes Seal. You got a choice. Eat first and do 250 push-ups, or eat after and choose to do what's behind curtain number two. All of a sudden, he's Bob Barker? I don't even ask a single question. I just say, give me door number two. Well, more push-ups. We do 12, then eight, then six, then four push-ups on the 15-second mark, followed by sit-ups where we do as many as we can for 60 seconds. We rest one minute, then repeat for 30 minutes. I'm a beaten man. Workout totals, 9.5 miles, 775 push-ups, 125 sit-ups, 21 minutes steam, frozen lake. Day 26, primary target. Know what's important to you and protect it at all costs. Seal. Connecticut, 29 degrees, 0800. I'm fully recovered from the steam room incident. We're still in Connecticut and Seal and I head out for a four and a half mile mountain loop near my house. I'm breathing just through my nose. It feels like I'm flying. I check my time, 
35 minutes, 17 seconds. That's three minutes faster than my previous personal best. Course record for me. I'm feeling good. We get home, shower, and meet in the den. I turn the TV on. Getting Seal to watch television can be difficult. The only thing I've seen him sit still for is sports. There are a few college bowl games on today, so I'm hoping he won't ask me to wear the 50-pound weight vest in the second and fourth quarters. He seems fairly content on the couch. I wonder if he's thinking about leaving. The thought has been on my mind the last couple of days. At first, to be honest, I couldn't wait for the month to be over. But he's starting to grow on me. I appreciate his concern for my family's safety. It makes me wonder. Say, Seal, I say, what would you do if there was an intruder in the house? Slowly, Seal turns and looks at me. He holds me with an even, unemotional stare. Then he turns back to the TV without answering my question. No, really, I say. What would you do? He shakes his head slowly. I think you know what I'd do, he says to the TV. Well, tell me. I would protect the primary. Well, what's the primary? That's the million-dollar question, he says. What's your primary, Jesse? What would hurt you the most to lose? This big-screen TV? Those gold record awards you own? Jewelry? Cash? What do you hold most dear? No, I say, none of that. Well, he asks, my wife and son. Exactly, Jesse, he says. They're your primary. And as long as I'm in the house, they're my primary too. You ask me what I would do? I would protect my primary at any cost. And unfortunately for you, you're my third option. At that moment, I realized that despite all the time I've spent with Seal, he's always had an eye on Sarah and Laser, the plumber, the white van, the waiter. It's all been about protecting us. Sure, we've been training, but there's more to our relationship now. We have primaries to look after. 2100. I tell Seal that I have to spend a few hours closing the books for the year, and I beg him not to interrupt me. He agrees. Go ahead and handle your shit, man. I pull out all my notes and to-do lists for the past year and take some personal inventory. I also make my annual donations and send out our holiday cards. It feels good to close out the year. Once I come out from my office, he tells me, we got to get one in. We go out for a five-mile run at top speed. I push. My body responds. Holy shit, I feel fit. Almost immortal. I feel up for anything. I think this is starting to pay off. Workout totals, 9.5 miles. Day 27, 1,000 push-ups. I don't celebrate victories, but I learn from failures. Seal. Connecticut, 12 degrees, 0800. Seal says, today is goal day. Today, all your hard work pays off. We're going to see if you can do 1,000 push-ups. I start the day off with 10 quick sets of 10 push-ups. We take a 30-second rest in between sets. Feeling good, I rest. Total, 100 push-ups. Two hours later. First, 1 through 18 push-ups and then one set of 29. 8 minutes and 58 seconds. Maybe I'm relying on muscle memory as I've done this already, but still feeling good. Rest again. Total, 200 push-ups. One hour later. 
one through 18 push-ups, and then one set of 29, eight minutes and 30 seconds. Now it's a struggle. I'm grinding these out. The last 50, I had to hold the plank position for a few seconds before I go down and up. Total, 200 push-ups. Three hours later. One through 18 push-ups and then one set of 29. Eight minutes and 30 seconds. Now I'm getting into really hard territory. I'm taking long breaks in between each push-up group, but I'm doing it. My triceps are on fire. Total, 200 push-ups. 1,600, 25, 25, 25, 25, 1 through 18, 15, 14. These are brutal. My arms are shaking like a leaf. My triceps feel like they have pins in them. It's a feeling I've never had before, and I'm actually a bit concerned. Seal tells me to push through. My arms are trembling. Push through it, he yells. I have to take a two-minute break before I complete the set of 15. Then I need a five-minute break before I can complete the last 14. But once I'm close, there's no giving up. Total, 300 push-ups. In case you can't count them, that's 1,000. 1,000 push-ups in one day. Holy shit. I take a seat on my couch by the steam room and smile. For the first time during this whole process, I'm truly proud of myself. Not because I did a thousand, but because I stuck with the journey. I think back to the first day Seal was here and the first set of push-ups we did. This proves to me that if you push the body, the body will respond. 1900. My body is inflated from all the push-ups. I feel like I'm wearing a wetsuit and someone has pumped air into it. I'm jacked up. But to Seal, victories are short-lived. He tells me he never celebrates an accomplishment. Once his goal is done, it's time for his next goal. Our work is not done. It's time for our next goal. Seal and I head out for a three and a half mile run. When we get home, Seal tells me to get some shut-eye and that I earned it. I'm not sure, but I think that's a compliment. He's actually proud of me too. I go into my room and throw on ESPN to watch some bowl highlights. Seal heads to his room. He goes and continues to do 25 push-ups every 10 minutes, four and a half hours until midnight. He does 2,500 for the day. Superhuman. With fitness, there's never a finish line. You can always do better. For me personally, I guess I probably have 30 or 40 years left on earth. And how many of those am I going to be young enough and healthy enough to do things? I want to experience the best stuff I can. I've never jumped off a cliff. I should just jump off a cliff because I'm only here once. That's how I approach things now. That's how I feel about things. That's how I live my life. A thousand push-ups is something I could have never imagined doing. It just shows that repetition and consistency equals results. Workout totals, 3.5 miles and 1,000 push-ups. Day 28, up the ante. If you don't challenge yourself, you don't know yourself. Seal. Connecticut, 17 degrees, 0700. This morning, we go for an eight and a half mile run up Leech Hollow Road and back. Getting to Leech Hollow Road is not easy. My friend Fish calls it the big boy run. It's a freak show. Crazy hills, 
grueling course, and eight and a half miles is a good run no matter how you slice it. I've run this course with many friends, and only a select few have ever been able to complete it. Anyway, I run it in one hour, 17 minutes, and 41 seconds, an eight-minute, 57-second average with negative splits, which means clocking a better time the second half of the run than the first. I'm two minutes faster on the way back, and I'm feeling psyched. When we get home, the real fun begins. We have to up the ante, Seal says. The lake, I ask? Seal nods. I begin to nod with him. We stand there both understanding the mission and nodding together. One little problem. This time there are no holes in the lake. It's frozen solid, six inches thick. There are even kids playing hockey on it. I have a plan, Seal says. If you two knuckleheads even think about going through the ice again, Sarah says, don't bother coming back inside. It's frozen solid. It's like my wife is a crystal ball or something. I didn't even see her standing there. She knows the nod, but I know Sarah has a conference call later, so we wait. When Seal is sure my wife isn't watching, he sneaks down to the lake, grabs a boulder, and starts banging on the ice. And when I say boulder, I mean boulder, like from the Flintstones. This thing is huge, and Seal has to bend down and lift with his legs and hold it with both hands before he can hoist it up. I look over at the kids skating, and the game comes to an ice spring hockey stop. They're all watching Seal. Seal pounds away. Boom, crackle, crackle, again. Boom, crackle, crackle, again. Boom, crackle, crackle. The hockey players head to solid ground. The ice breaks. I think somewhere in Seal's inner ear, there's a tiny orchestra playing the theme song from Rocky. It's like he's at the top of the stairs of the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and he raises his arms in a victory pose. He gives a primal scream of, yes! Socks off, shirt off, he's in. I start to hear the Rocky theme, too. I can do this. Socks off, shirt off, I'm in. We repeat this twice and sprint up to my house to get warm. I'm still freezing, but feel amazing. Sarah stands in the doorway. She glares at me but doesn't say a word. She gives the same stern look to Seal. I feel like I'm seven. Seal, who doesn't raise his eyes, looks like he's five. My son's staring at my feet and looking puzzled. They have a reddish, purplish tint to them. And Seal, now, he's on the treadmill. We're in the penalty box for about half the day. Sarah wasn't really that mad, at least not at our house guest. It's like she wanted to be mad, but she couldn't. Maybe it's because she knows all of this is coming to an end. Or perhaps she knows I'll probably never do this again. It's not safe. 5 o'clock p.m., 30 minutes before dinner. We do 10 push-ups on the 30-second hand for 10 sets every 5 minutes. That's 100 total. Then it's 1 through 10, 10 to 1, and 3 sets of 30. Another 300 down. 8 o'clock p.m. I'm in the bedroom with Sarah, packing. We're going to Atlanta tomorrow, but just staying overnight. What day is Seal leaving again, Sarah asks. In two days, I say. He'll come to Atlanta and then spend New Year's with us back here in Connecticut, but is going home from there. I'm going to miss him, she says. Sarah had already told me that Seal was the best house guest we've ever had. She didn't have to tell him how to do anything or where anything was. He didn't need any instructions. He was spotless, thoughtful, and polite. 
But when Steele really won her over is when Sarah's grandmother, Nanny, stopped by one day in Atlanta. Nanny's right out of the Andy Griffith show. Steele was a total gentleman and did everything for her. Carried her bags, made her breakfast, and walked with her on his arm. She adored him. When Nanny was around, I think she was Seal's primary. Nanny kept referring to Seal as that nice young man. She would say, Jesse, that nice young man, that friend of yours is just darling. Sarah seems to be very intently folding a blouse. I've been thinking, she says after a minute or two, we should try and get Seal to stay a bit longer. As I'm looking at my wife packing, it makes me realize what a difference a month can make. I know Seal infinitely better than I did when he first showed up, but I still don't know him, know him. But I think that's by design. Sarah snaps me back to present day with a toss of a diaper. I guess she knows something I don't. I catch the diaper and I'm about to make my way to laser when she looks at me. I've been giving it some thought, and I think I'd like to start a workout routine with Seal too. Okay, sweetie, if that's what you really want, then ask him. I'm acting cool, but I'm psyched. Just don't expect me to jump in the frozen lake, she says. Workout totals, 8.5 miles, 300 push-ups, frozen lake. Day 29, sloppy seconds. I don't stop when I'm tired. I stop when I'm done, seal. Connecticut to Atlanta, 36 to 88 degrees, 0900. We're leaving for a day trip to Atlanta this afternoon to do another check on the house, but first we head out on a 10.6-mile run in the rain and slush. It's warmed up a bit, and the roads are sloppy. We gotta get one good one in before the flight, Seal says. The run's from my house to a diner on Route 22. I have no idea what the name of the diner is, but it's the only diner near us. I also know that when we drive up to the house from New York City, it's a marker for us. When we get to the diner, it's still a 15-minute drive, so the run's not going to be fun. As predicted, it's lonely, miserable, hilly, and tough. I tell Sarah we will be about an hour and a half and that we're running to the diner. You're going to run to the diner that we order takeout from? you got to be kidding me. I kid you not, I reply. Can you pick me up some, she says with a laugh. Seal must not have taken his patience pill when he took his handful of vitamins today because as soon as we start the run, he takes off. Every few straightaways, he becomes visible for the first few miles, but then he completely disappears. He beats me there by 18 minutes. Time, one hour, 36 minutes. Sarah jumps in the car and picks us up at the diner 95 minutes after we leave the house. 90 minutes later. It's noon. We have to get to the airport in a few hours, I say to Seal. Sarah will kill us if we're late. Two minutes later, he has me on the treadmill, walking 20 minutes on a 15-degree incline at a 3.6 pace. We'll get there, Seal says. Next, it's three pull-ups every 45 seconds for the next 10 minutes. We gotta go. Relax. We do 10 push-ups on the 30-second mark for another 10 minutes. Right before the last set, Seal says, we clocked out. Let's go. Workout totals. 10.6 miles, 20 minutes on treadmill on incline of 15, 100 push-ups, 30 pull-ups. The skinheads. I don't like assholes and I don't like bullies. 
seal. The weather in Atlanta is fantastic. The hot Georgia sun is pumping out punishing heat rays. I'm sitting alone at the pool in my backyard reading the paper when our cleaning lady approaches. She's flustered. Her English is good, but sometimes the words are hard for her to find. You come, Mr. Jesse, she says. I concern. Two guys in front yard ask for owner. Something no right, Mr. Jesse. So I throw on a shirt and go out front. Sure enough, there are two guys, approximately 20 years old, in white t-shirts and jeans, and they're climbing over our small hedges and approaching the front door. Both are heavily tatted up. Both have shaved heads. Both reek of marijuana. She's correct. Something no right. It's mostly a mix of doctors, lawyers, and young professionals who live in our Atlanta community. People go out for jogs in the neighborhood or ride expensive mountain bikes around the cul-de-sac, and everybody smiles. From the street, you can see our house quite clearly. Nothing spectacular. It is a well-groomed yard, better-than-average-sized driveway, and a decent-sized house. While we do have surveillance cameras around the exterior, you'd have to look closely to notice them. Can I help you guys? I say in my most laid-back voice. Sure can, says skinhead number one. Can you tell me who the owner of the house is? Well, what exactly do you guys need? We just moved into the neighborhood, son, he says. The guy calls me son. I'm at least 20 years older than him. We want to meet a thousand neighbors, each and every one of them. If we do, we get points for college. Number one smiles and shows me some bullshit pad on a clipboard. We already met Usher today. You know where Usher lives, dude? Well, we seen him. I know Usher doesn't live anywhere near me. I really think these guys are casing out my house. Holy shit. Sorry, guys. I don't live here. I'm only a guest. I lie. Well, then, can you get your daddy or the queen bee? We need to meet the actual owner, number two says. He looks like a number two. Did this guy really just tell me to get my daddy? You want me to get my dad? Yeah, or get the queen bee, number one laughs. Just get someone in the house that lives here. No problem, I say. Hang tight. I walk into the kitchen. Seal is making one of his military-grade shakes. We have a situation, I say, looking out through the window that faces the front lawn. Seal follows my stare. A smile spreads across his face as he looks through the window. The skinheads start to leave as if they sense something isn't right. Seal calmly finishes drinking his shake. Showtime, he says. Twenty minutes later, Seal's back, walking through the front door. He has his iPhone in his hand. He shows me a close-up photo of number two. His face is as red as his neck, and his cheeks are puffed up like a blowfish. His eyes are stretched with fear. This him, Seal asks. In the photo, you can see Seal's hand wrapped around the guy's neck. It reminds me of when Darth Vader picks the guy up by his neck in Star Wars. Yeah, that's him. Seal puts the phone in his pocket and walks over to the sink. He takes the glass from which he was drinking the shake and washes it. Well... I explained to them I was the homeowner and that I don't care for motherfuckers like them on my property. And if they ever came back, I would make sure they never walk again. Seal puts the glass back in the cupboard. I really don't think they'll be back. Resolutions. I don't want what you guys have. Seal. It's the last day of the year. Most people make resolutions on New Year's Eve, and I finished mine on the plane back to Connecticut this a.m. 
Sarah and I are having a bunch of friends up to the house for dinner. We'll go around the table, and everybody will say their goals for the coming year before dessert. I pretty much have what I'm going to say in my head. It's more like bullet points in my head. I'm a big fan of winging it, obviously. The whole Wonderful Wednesday clan's coming. A few years ago, we made it an annual thing that we would get together for New Year's Eve up at the Connecticut house. Sarah calls us the super friends because we also like to run marathons and other races together. There's a lot of truth to the super part. I've met, worked, and hung around a lot of people over my years, but the friends I have now are friends for life. These are the guys and girls I want to be in a foxhole with. The day and night goes like this. We all go for a nine-mile run up Wanzer Hill and then have dinner, wine, whatever, and everyone sleeps over. During dinner, the conversation shifts to the resolutions. I'm curious about what Seal will say if he takes a turn. In fact, I think everybody here is wondering what Seal will say, if anything. One friend wants to quit her job and start her own business. Another has decided he wants to move to California's wine country. When it's Seal's turn, the whole table quiets. I don't want the same shit you guys want. I'm not looking for anything else. I'm going to do the same shit I've been doing, he says, only I'm going to do it better. Seal excuses himself and stands. He then goes downstairs to ride the stationary bike in the basement. When he returns later, my friends start to ask him questions. They're drawn to him. A big circle is formed around Seal in the living room. He's still sweating from the ride, but he's placed a towel on his lap to catch any dripping sweat that could potentially end up on our carpet. The alcohol has loosened everybody up a bit. He looks at us all. His armors come down. It's as though he's sorry for coming on so strong at the dinner table. I just think you don't give your lies enough credit, he says softly. Day 30. Last run. If you can see yourself doing something, you can do it. If you can't see yourself doing something, usually you can't achieve it. Seal. New York City, 40 degrees, 12.30. It's after lunchtime and we just drove back to New York City. Seal gave me the morning off. I'm in the kitchen cleaning up. Sarah and Seal are in the living room. And then I see my wife in the doorway. How'd it go with asking Seal to stay and train you, I ask. He can only stay one more day, Sarah says. He's leaving tomorrow. My wife can be a very convincing woman. I'm surprised. Did he say why? Business. Business? Sarah shrugs. That's it? That's it. I'm both disappointed he's not staying and bursting with curiosity. I know better than to ask him, though. Anyhow, I like the image I conjure of Seal pulling off a midnight hostage rescue in Syria or something. Oh, he did say he'd come back to train me, Sarah says. Really? Yes, provided I do everything he says and nothing is off limits. Just that moment, Seal walks into the kitchen. He's wearing the biggest smile I've ever seen him wear. What's for dinner tonight, Seal asks. A big red chicken? He cackles like it's the funniest thing anyone has ever said. We head out to Central Park for a 6.1-mile loop. It will be our last run. My first run with Seal in New York City was 30 days ago. We ran the exact same loop. We did it in 56 minutes and 4 seconds, a 9-minute and 20-second-per-mile pace. After one month with SEAL training me, I'm running a 7-minute, 50-second-per-mile pace. As usual, we don't talk on the run, even though it was to be our last. 
There was no final test, no congratulatory conversation, nothing. Like two running partners who run every day. There wasn't anything unusual about the evening either. We had dinner together in the apartment, seal play with Laser, Sarah chatted with him. Although she tried not to show it, I could tell she was genuinely sad our time with Seal was coming to a close. So was I. Today's splits, mile one, eight minutes, two seconds. Mile two, seven minutes, 56 seconds. Mile three, seven minutes, 26 seconds. Mile four, seven minutes, 45 seconds. Mile five, seven minutes, 43 seconds. Mile six, seven minutes, 32 seconds. Total, 46 minutes and 34 seconds. Average pace, 7 minutes, 45 seconds. Pre-seal, I sometimes would be on the couch and not want to do whatever needed to be done, and I'd be like, fuck it, and blow it off. Procrastinate. I don't think like that anymore. Just get off the couch and do it is what I remind myself. Seal would never say fuck it. He'd get off the couch and do it, regardless of the time, the temperature, or how tired he was. I absorbed some of that just-get-it-done-and-there-are-no-excuses attitude. I'm grateful for that. My perspective on time has changed, too. I got so much more done when Seal was here. I was much more efficient. Now, if I have to drive a few hours in the car to get somewhere, I don't get frustrated. Rather, I think about how lucky I am to be sitting in a warm and comfortable environment. It's weird. Maybe I became more present or maybe I'm more appreciative, but whatever it is, I view time differently. Maybe it's a newfound patience or maturity. My will to not stop or quit has also changed, both in training and at work. Seal is an I-don't-give-a-shit attitude that really makes him different. He's an African-American Navy SEAL, of which there aren't many. An African-American who competes in endurance sports that are dominated by Caucasians. He doesn't give a shit. Seal does what Seal wants to do. He doesn't live the way everyone tells him he's supposed to live. And he does it with purpose. I admire him for that. His normal has been abnormal, and we have that in common. The first day Seal came to move in, he told me I needed to control my mind. I thought it was just a saying or a throwaway comment, but I think there might be more truth to it than I originally thought. Our minds sometimes tell us little lies about ourselves, and we believe them. We think we can't do this or that. It's not true. I've never had a real resume. I've always believed in a life resume. I take a look at Seal, who's writing in his logbook. He just wants to get better tomorrow. That's what I want now, too. Workout totals, six miles. Day 31, a sad day. The only easy day was yesterday, Seal. New York City, 31 degrees, 0800. I wake up on my own at 8 o'clock a.m. and the house feels different. The energy's changed. I go to Seal's room, but there's no Seal. He's gone. The room is spotless and the bed is perfectly made with military corners. You could bounce a quarter off it. Everything is exactly the way it was before he arrived. It's like he was never even here. Eerie. When I walk into the kitchen, I see a note. It's from Seal. No big send-off, no big goodbye, no big anything. Just three words. Hey, man, thanks. That's it. That's all he wrote. The guy woke me up at 5 a.m. for 30 days but didn't wake me up to say goodbye? It starts to sink in that it's over. 
Seal has returned to base. Though Seal left no trace in the bedroom, his fingerprints are all over the rest of the house. For example, every bedroom now is a fire extinguisher and a flashlight. Laser Sarah and I have full fire suits in case we wake up one night and, God forbid, the place is an inferno. And if the shit really hits the fan, behind our bar is an inflatable knapsack that turns into a life raft with oars and an attachable motor. It's there just in case some 9-11 shit happens. If anybody asks about it, I say what Seal said to us. It's our escape vehicle out of Manhattan, bitch. I also made a recent purchase at an outdoor furniture store in Atlanta, just in case I have to camp out on somebody. Seal left an indelible mark on me. I've never been stronger, faster, or mentally tougher. Take me to a frozen lake and I'll show you. I can do a thousand push-ups in a day. I smoked the times I used to do around the Central Park Loop. I literally don't have an ounce of fat on me, but getting me in supreme shape was only part of what Seal did for me. I have houses, a driver, fly privately. I have all these things. Seal has a military ID and cash. That's what he walks around with, just a backpack of belongings. He didn't want my life, and I wanted his. For starters, I'm going to simplify things. I'm going to try to get down to 30 items of clothing. I'm going through my closet and the extra shit in the garage and getting rid of stuff. I started deleting all my emails, and it felt great. I started not answering people right away, and it felt fantastic. Seal clearly didn't want any part of our lives. I really admired how easy he lived his life. He didn't have to listen to others or have a team of people weigh in when making decisions. Part of that comes with the territory, and I get it. The simplicity that Seal has is one of the most important things in life. He gets to do what he loves every day. He lives stress-free. When Seal broke both feet in the ultramarathon with the 20,000-foot climb, it wasn't the first time. He breaks his feet often when he runs grueling ultras. He has a hole in his aorta that surgeons can't seem to close. He's asthmatic, and he truly hates to run. But he runs because he raises a lot of money for charity when he does to help the families of SEALs who died on the battlefield. One of the most emotional speeches I ever heard was Jimmy Valvano's at the ESPY Awards. Dying of cancer with only months to live, he told the audience these important words. Don't give up, he said. Don't ever give up. I hired SEAL because I wanted to get in the best shape of my life. I also hired him because I liked the unexpected. And what better way to take a risk than having a Navy SEAL live with me for a month to train me? Finally, I hired him to get out of my routine, to shock the system, to mix things up so I could approach opportunities and challenges differently. But I got much more than what I paid for. It's about protecting what you have, he said to me about being a SEAL. He might have been talking about defending democracy or freedom or saving us from terrorists, but I think he was talking about protecting something closer to home. Now that SEAL's gone, I realize I don't need a lot of the crazy stuff in my life. These challenges I keep putting in front of myself to fulfill me, I'm not going to do any more of that. I'm staying put and focusing on the little things. I don't need manufactured adventures in my life to change me. But maybe the most important thing I learned from SEAL was the level of appreciation he has for difficulty. The harder the training, the more courage it took to do, and the more satisfaction was derived from it. SEAL taught me that you only get one shot at life and you should find out what's in your reserve tank. 
Coasting is for pussies, as Seal would say, and it's when you dig deep that you feel the most alive. He lives his life that way, and some of that rubbed off on me. Epilogue A couple of months after Seal moved out, Sarah and I took a short vacation to the Bahamas. I invited Seal to come down for a few days of R&R. It was going to be a quick trip, but I wanted to see if he was interested in joining us. Roger that, he said. He brought no luggage, only his bike and a stationary bike setup. I'm going to get a couple of hundred miles, then, he said. On the island? Nah, in my room. We were there for three days. He put the privacy sign on his doorknob, and he never left his room. The most beautiful setting in the world, girls, gambling, ocean, the color of a Dodger's hat. He never went out. He just pushed his bed up against the wall so he could face the ocean and ride. Ocean Club, the Atlantis, 27th floor was Seal's workout center. He said he was training for a bike ride across America. One year later. I'm in my office with Kish. The phone rings and she picks it up. She's smiling. It's for you, she says with her hand over the receiver. Who is it, I whisper. Seal, she whispers back. Hey, man, how are you? Good, Seal says. What's going on? Just giving you a heads up, I'm in New York for some meetings today, he says. Cool, I say. You want to crash with us? Nah, man, I don't want to impose on you. Just want you to know I'm in town. Well, where are you going to stay? I'm just going to sleep in Central Park, he says. I look out the window of my office. It's snowing, and my computer says 14 degrees. Roger that, I say. I'm thinking it's going to be 70 and sunny. Acknowledgements. I've always been a team sports guy. All great teams have outstanding teammates that are good at their positions. This book would not have been possible without the hard work of my teammates, Jennifer Kish, Lisa Leshney, Turney Duff, Rick Flynn, Mark Edelman, Adam Padilla, Brian Black, Erica Jaffe, Mark Brown, Johnny Photo, Joe Holder, Dina Levine, Stella Brown, Paige Luther, Chelsea Cardukas, Kate Hartson, and the entire Center Street staff. Without them, there's no way this book would have come to fruition. This book would obviously not have been possible without the support of my amazing wife, who let this outrageous stuff go on under her very own roof. Honey, I will not jump into Frozen Lake again. Fingers crossed. Last, I want to thank Seal for investing 31 days of his life to live with our family. The lessons I learned extend far beyond fitness. Thank you. Great teammates believe in each other. Roger that. This has been a Hachette Audio production of Living with a Seal. 31 days training with the toughest man on the planet. Written and read by Jesse Itzler. Produced and directed by Christine M. Farrell. Recorded by Tommy Harron. Audio editing by Bianca Ruffin. Mastering by James Bennett. Living with a Seal is also available in print and digital formats from Center Street, a division of Hachette Book Group. For more Hachette Audio productions, visit us at hachetteaudio.com. Thank you for listening. Text copyright 2015 by Jesse Itzler. Audio production copyright 2015, Hachette Audio. All rights reserved. In accordance with the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, the duplicating, uploading, and electronic sharing of any part of this audiobook without the permission of the publisher, 
constitutes unlawful piracy and theft of the author's intellectual property. If you would like to use material from the audiobook, other than for review purposes, prior written permission must be obtained by contacting the publisher at permissions at hbgusa.com. Thank you for your support of the author's rights. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.